everyone, and welcome to the Sheiks, episode number 428. I'm your host, Chris joined as always by my host, David Bix's band, and Bix, we have a big show this week. Really big show. So yes. yes. A Patreon-requested show yes. by Brian Peterson, who wanted us to go back to 2001. And you can do that as well at patreon.com slash between the sheets. Donate $5 a month, and that'll give you uh, the opportunity to, pay, to have the audio of the Patreon. And then $25 allows you to pick a show for the week, which is what Brian has done. And uh, he, he wanted us to do October 18th to the 23rd of 2001. So uh, if you want to do that, you know, have a uh, have, the, have the show in mind that you want to do. Have another show possibly as a backup. Um, follow the protocol on the Patreon website to ask Bix or myself about this show. Make sure that we can uh, get it on the air. Make sure it's something that we haven't done already. Make sure it's a show that's not already booked on the calendar. So I may have that week booked. Do all that and uh, follow the other protocol and we'll be able to have your show on the air. So uh, have more on that in the halftime segment, of course. But anyway, we got a big one this week. Um, 42 pages. We had a lot of results in this show. So, yeah, it's, it's big, but it's not as big as it could be. So let's go ahead and get started. Yes, although we do have a pay-per-view later. Yeah, WF section is pretty big, but, I mean, they're the only game in town, basically, as far as uh, clips and stuff. So, uh, Well, yes, yeah, so let's get to that as, as we have Dave Meltzer talking about the state of wrestling here in the week of uh, – uh, almost week of October 18th to 23rd, 2001. Yeah, because um, the reason why I went with a six-day is, like I talked about last week, this is a, a timeline fix because uh, we did August 24th through the 30th on show 171, okay? We did October 5th through 11th on show 64. So that frees us up to do 12th through the 17th in the future. That gave us a good six-day week then. So there you go. All right, the state of wrestling. It goes without saying this is a difficult period for wrestling since the evidence is basically coming in weekly. It was one thing with WCW when the product was so bad you could see them running fans off. Even ECW at the end was something that was clearly past its peak and hanging on. In both cases, the final death knell wasn't caused by the public, but by television executives who decided wrestling was some other year's big thing and nobody wants last year's big thing, but both companies were failing, or excuse me, falling, because of aging talent in one case and losing talent in the other. And in hindsight, the executives probably weren't wrong as far as how the company having any short-term hope to turn things around, even if it was the worst thing for the industry. WF has its problems, as we noted last week. It needs major changes, and Dave's not confident anybody really knows what the changes need to be because the problems aren't as simple as those that killed WCW or that those changes will be coming. Maintaining and gaining back the over 30 crowd goes against every way of thinking in that company, and Dave doesn't think anyone really knows what has lost the audience. Dave doesn't buy its less emphasis on the matches, although for long-term survival, that is part of the package that needs to change. Friends appears to be the perfect example of a new storyline with what months ago seemed like stale characters bringing that audience that left back in droves. Most of the shows themselves have contained good wrestling, at least by WF standards. So while people complain about matches, and there are problems like over the rep bumps and a fear that without a gimmick finish, people will think it's a flat finish, but that ultimately kills people taking wins and losses seriously, which leads to far-reaching problems. 
the riding, particularly long-term riding, is pretty bad, and the riders being the focal characters causes more problems. Dave thinks that long-term soap opera storylines, mainly the ones involving the top characters, far more than in-ring product are what builds the numbers. Perhaps the biggest frustration is everyone knows the multi-million dollar angle that will turn the thing around, but it requires getting Eric Bischoff, Bill Goldberg, etc. and requires the McMahons to be vulnerable and requires the long-term wrestlers to accept the idea that because business is so bad, some guys need to be jump-started ahead of existing, and in most cases, better talent. Ultimately, this business needs a separate approach to what wrestling is. Bring in some developmental guys up with a major push and not the wait-your-turn attitude and a separate writing staff that in some form interfaces with the existing staff so they don't do angles that appear identical, as well as new announcers that are more aggressive. This may be the place to try it out, even when the knowledge the odds are against it. It's not happening now, and it feels like we're in a holding pattern, waiting for, of all people, Kevin Nash to save the day, and that's not a position Dave would like to gamble the industry on. <laughs> yeah, because this week right here was a thing where, where Kevin Nash was talking about he was going to uh, make his decision on his future soon. And uh, he was going to be either WWF or maybe even working with the XWF or something like that. But uh, that's the big you know, underlying story of the week we're in here is what's the future of Kevin Nash? In wrestling. Something. <laughs> Something else. All I know about his future is that it involves him having beautiful hair. <laughs> well, at that time, yes. One problem, though, is the television, in particular the Heat and Excess shows. It's funny because when something is a work in WF, generally speaking, it's changed. Not always for the better, but the attempt is made. Excess was a failure from day one. If there hasn't been even an attempt to really overall the show. The fan interaction show idea is not new. Jim Ross and Livewire did it years ago and didn't work in the ratings. That show used Tammy Sitchin and Trish Stratus' role, and as the ratings dropped, started relying more and more on her being provocative, feeling that sets can always draw ratings. That didn't help ratings, and eventually the whole interactive idea was scrapped, ended up just as a highlight show. Years later, it was brought back, but with watered-down hosts and watered-down questions for the audience. They started looking at a plan, and People don't have much patience these days for works in progress. Now it's a dead time slot, doing numbers in prime time only slightly better than the nearly forgotten WBF body stars used to do in a morning time slot. And a lot of networks have thrown up their hands when it comes to Saturday night programming. In hindsight, WF was a lot better off with the old format of two morning recap shows. Even though superstars and live wire were drawing drooling ratings, their numbers out of prime time were the same or better in excess. The show was already being produced internationally, and those shows still exist. Instead, the cost of a new show to produce. Similarly, Heat was a failure from the start and the switch from a wrestling show to the WF New York show airing B-level wrestling matches. When Coke had its failure with a new product, it saved this product by going back to the original. Unless someone comes up with a new, better new idea, and until there's a split crew, there isn't going to be one. The old way could be an, only be an improvement, plus there wouldn't be a cost involved going live from WF New York. Wait, they were still doing that over a year later? I didn't remember it lasting that long. Yeah. Yeah. For excess, yes, the show could improve with a more gutsy approach, more news. Host clearly not there because of looks, but they're to really get into exciting conversations about the business and the products where the fans feel that they're missing something important if they don't watch the show. Clearly not the emotion anyone has today. 
But that format still isn't going to do numbers on a Saturday night. The current, uh, the current audience is out. The lost audience is lost. They originally planned to do a third night of taping either on Wednesday or Saturday for a WCW show, and that time slot would have done better ratings than this. But because it's effective for an added full-blown taping night, it would probably have to do at least a 2.5, 3.0 rating. And those aren't, aren't good. Presenting a risque live Saturday night show like Shotgun Saturday Night didn't last long either. Dave's belief is still that wrestling fans will find a really hot wrestling show and isn't the numbers you start out at that are important. It's the numbers when you settle in. But that change isn't being made anytime soon, so there's no excuse to at least not try a gutsy approach to making the talk show format as interesting as possible by hiring a host for their brain, not their face, or how they look in a low-cut top and delving into real issues and real views. Heat, on the other hand, could revert to the old format, no problem. Well, one problem. If you do another show using the A-talent, largely doing very short matches and shooting a bunch of angles to build for Raw, which is what Heat was after SmackDown started, and still maintain good numbers, you speed up burning them out. If crews are split, the show could be used effectively in that manner, but the big problem is long-term planning. Heat has to be taped on Tuesdays, at least until they split the crews and Thursdays are done live. To do a heat as a build-up for Raw, that requires knowledge on Tuesday of where Raw is going. Right now, they start writing Raw on Thursday. Dave thinks the beauty of reverting back to a format is because it would force some long-term planning out of necessity. Nothing could be presented on a Monday and Tuesday would have already had a strong idea of at least what the match leads to next week. Wrestling is always better when you're booking with a direct purpose as opposed to booking with just uh, self-contained ideas for a night. Boy, isn't that ringing hollow again with uh, WWE now that uh, Paul Levesque has full control of creative again. And is actually booking things once I mean, in advance. And we knew, I mean, like, you know, as we record this on the 16th of October, I mean, basically all the Raw matches, main Raw matches was announced the week before. Yes. So you knew you knew a full week ahead of time what you were going to be getting on the next week's show. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not Vince ch- making changes in the TV show as the show's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, so yes, big but difference. In this era, we're inching towards that. Uh, yes. The other thing he could be used for is to create stars and break patterns. With less pressure on ratings at first, since the ratings aren't that strong to begin with, you could start pushes for new guys that go somewhere. As opposed to just throwing guys who aren't over enough for, for Raw out there with no direction in matches that never serve a purpose. You can also break from the four-minute cookie-cutter-style television match. Why can't the right two guys go 15 minutes on a heat show? Not every week, for sure, but, and there are only certain guys you can do it with. But often enough that people that don't have it figured out that the match will end in five minutes, they can play a big, what a great match you miss on the other shows every few weeks, so it'll ring true. But if it's done weekly, by the third week, nobody will care. Maybe this will serve the purpose of getting over matches themselves being important, which at some point needs to have for a long-term product survival. It also gives the opportunity to build, spend some more time building angles for the matches on Raw instead of rush vignettes on Monday that build little or no heat. Maybe a 20-minute interview can be moved to heat some weeks to test whether Raw's ratings will decline without it. These are all just ideas for approaches because something needs to be done differently on these shows. Because in both cases, the new approach failed. Now, Raw and SmackDown are far more important, also harder. If it was me, I wouldn't want to change those shows with a format standpoint until completing a survey similar to the one talked about last week. Even if it isn't foolproof, because I've got a sense that a lot of the problems, besides all the invasion problems and lack of competition problems, that wrestling fans saw so much during the hot period and have seen basically every imaginable thing. 
going to the old standbys that work, like Vincent Austin would yield lesser results every time out. But in wrestling, it's so much easier to try and recreate something that did work when risk going all the way with something new that has no track record. Dave remembers the promoter once told him that they put in their program a deal for fans to choose the match they most want to see. He ended up being the top two babyface in the territory against each other. Since in those days, that was always the dream match for hardcore fans because most promoters wouldn't make the match. Since in most cities, the Bayface versus Bayface program usually wouldn't draw. And real quick, I don't know why he didn't say it here, but it was Paul Bosch. Then when he made the match, the house was a big disappointment. The conclusion of this is that sometimes what the fans tell you they want when you ask them and what they will pay to see aren't the same thing. Wrestling purchases are still impulse buys, which is why you, when you catch fire, it seems like nothing can stop you. And when you're cold, presenting a solid product often doesn't heat you up. Well, well, well go ahead. Well, uh, the, <laughs> this sentence needs to be plastered on uh, in front of wrestling fan online faces today. What fans tell you they want when you ask them and what they will pay to see aren't the same thing. I was thinking more about that last sentence, though, because, I mean, yes, there are other issues in various ways, including just with live promotion. But, like, look at how much better AEW does all of a sudden when they do these late local media pushes. Because they're impulse buys. Well, I mean, still, again, <laughs> you know, it goes back to what I just repeated about what they what the, what they'll tell you they want and what they'll pay are two different things, right? You yeah. know, I mean, how many times have I said on this show that the most successful periods in wrestling history are when the wrestling was at its basically least. It's all about the the gimmicks, the angles, you know, the excitement of TV shows. And that, there are that, exceptions, though. There's the Crockett ratings decline in '87 when they reduced the amount of the wrestling. That's that's different because the Crockett thing is really, I mean, this is what Dave said. Let me go back to this. Hmm. Even. Uh, a lot of the problems, like as wrestling fans saw so much during the hot period, and have seen basically every imaginable thing. So uh, with Crockett, they saw they saw so much of the same shit, and then when you had opportunity to do something completely different with a UWF invasion, you dropped the ball on that so hard that that's when a lot that's their problem started, and then and then you have burnout of Dusty. And it was just a, it was a combination of things. It got stale. It got too stale. The same people are still in the same spots. It just got stale. How aware were the fans though that Crockett bought the UWF? Um, basically, when UWF started appearing on Crockett TV, so and working more in the, it, summer, the, the or, summer. Yeah, yeah, the summer. Grand, the, the Great American Bash tour. Okay. Basically, I mean, when UWF became so prominent on Crockett television, on the Crockett side of things, UWF fans knew about it before then because Crockett sent their talent over. Yeah. Even if so you didn't they, know exactly what happened, you had an idea something was up. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. Now, going over the more specific, you know, WWF issues that Dave's talking about, um, 
that WWF XS show was such a bad idea. Well, it was just – it was executed poorly. Well, here's the thing, though. I don't think even with the best execution, a two-hour talk and recap show would have gone that well. It all depends on how you how you do it, though, in my opinion. It, it can be done, but it has to be done right. And they, and they weren't doing it right. If the talk parts were better, yes, sure. But... When has anyone ever done a two-hour recap show? Yeah, That's I agree. With you. Like, well, I mean, it wasn't supposed to be that. But it was always supposed to be at least part that. Well, it was going to be WCW. Oh, well. But then uh, but then Viacom didn't want WCW. I know. So then you need to – when that happens, then you need to, you know, figure out what you're going to do next. I mean, we, we've done the shows about that. There's got to be more to that story that we don't know, though. I've always found that whole thing very confusing. Was WWF wanting more money to do WCW, and that's why they didn't, like, there's got to be well, something my else thing, to do Well, it. my whole thing was, why didn't they, I mean, as we talked about before on, the, on some shows, why didn't Nitro go to MTV where Heat was? And make I mean, like a one-hour show on Sundays? Well, whatever. I mean, that would have been where to do it. You couldn't do two hours on a Sunday night for Heat. I mean, for a WCW show on MTV, like they like they had valuable programming <laughs> that they needed to air on Sunday night. <laughs> yeah, what really were they airing on Sundays besides Heat? <laughs> Shit, I don't know. And that and that era, I mean, MTV. They were still airing videos back then. Some, yes. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, let me see here. Let me see if I can find something. All right. Oh, we've got a wiki. Okay, let's see. Um, well, no, I'm, I'm going. I'm going to a listing. Schedule. You know. Oh, we have day by day schedules. Okay, or do we? Maybe not. Okay, this is a placeholder. Yeah, I doubt you're going to see a day-by-day schedule. All right, let's see here. Okay. All right, this this is Sunday. Sunday morning. Okay. Let's go Sunday evening. All right, Sunday afternoon, they're playing videos. Oh, they... Tough Enough was at 6. Oh, so... So Tough Enough went into Monday night and Sunday night heat. So they had to take two hours. I think that was a replay, though. I don't think that was Doesn't a Doesn't matter. Play. They said two hours. Tough enough went in the heat. Hmm. So you have a two-hour block right there from six to eight on Sunday. In a historically good wrestling time slot on a fresh network. Huh? <laughs> so it's right there. Yeah. I see what you're saying. But... I mean, this conversation wouldn't be happening if they were fuck, weren't fucking up the invasion angle. So how funny is that? You know, we talk about Crockett. Now here's WF fucking up their invasion angle. And remember what has Dave said about what Vince told him at the beginning after he bought WCW, that he was keenly aware of what the issues were with the UWF purchase, and he was not going to make those same mistakes. 
and he went over all of them in detail with Dave. It's not like he was being vague about it. He was like, you need to make the lesser brand stronger, strong, and blah, 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 blah. Like, he knew what he needed to do, and then he elected to not do any of it. Well, I think he got totally thrown for a loss that they wouldn't give him TV. Yeah. And he figures, since I don't have TV, I need, I mean, what do I do? You know? Yeah. If he would have got a TV clearance, the whole thing changes. It'd be interesting to see how it happened after the fact, but the whole thing would have changed. Yeah. If he would have got TV clearance. But it didn't happen, so we got what we got. But, um, I mean,. Yeah, the ratings are starting to fall and up because of how they were screwing up the invasion angle. I mean, that's part of it. So well, yeah, I mean, they had an opportunity there where they were given a whole bunch of new talent, people they could they could make on their television, and just didn't do it. Well, and also they didn't want to do the buyouts on the bigger content. And yeah, that's the other thing too. Or they didn't want to put money towards the buyouts themselves. They mentioned in Bischoff and Goldberg and, you know, all that type of stuff. Yeah. How much money, I mean, could they have made for that money they spent? You know, that's the thing. Uh, you, you know, I mean, look at what they could have made and didn't make. So. But, yeah, it, wrestling was an interesting spot in this time. Yeah. And, uh. That's what how Dave was assessing it at this time from the with WF and their side of things, and we'll have of course a whole lot more from WF later on in the show. No other thoughts on the uh, the TV formatting and everything. No, we'll have a whole lot more coming up later on in the WF section proper. Okay, so don't need to talk more about excess or heat or. Rebecca Budig, or is she still on Heat? It's Trish. I mean, well, I don't know if she's on Heat, but Trish is on Excess. Okay. I forgot uh, about yeah. that. That's what Dave, yeah, Dave was talking about her. I forget who the co-host was, the male. Coachman? Uh, I'm, I don't know if it was him or not. I'm checking Wikipedia, because that, that should have the answer fairly quickly. <laughs> or... <laughs> Is there, does it not have a Wikipedia entry, or is it just getting buried by other wikis? Okay, Fandom Wiki says, Jonathan Coachman and Trish Stratus. Stratus, however, was replaced in late 2001 by Terry Runnels. Oof. <laughs> I never forgot about that. Yeah, the program showed classic matches from the archives, many of which were often from viewer suggestions. I forgot they did that. Um... Starting with the April 6th, 02 episode, the first hour stayed under the excess name with hosts Michael Cole and Mark Lloyd. Mark Lloyd. For an hour, SmackDown highlights and news. Second hour was renamed Late Night Excess and was presented by, um, gee, I wonder what country the person who wrote this is from, Coachman and Raven. I don't know if I remember Raven having two different toast gigs in this era. Uh, I remember Heat. And that show had raw highlights. It only lasted about a month and was replaced by Velocity and Confidential. So yeah, Access as a two-hour show basically just lasts the season into May. Yeah. It, it was not a success at all. The Coach and Raven. Uh, that sounds delightful, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Coach. 
Oh, God, I was going to make a joke. I decided I'm not going to bring up uh, how you've described Raven's Anatomy in the past and asking if that uh, can be discussed on Late Night Excess. So let's move on. <laughs> let's go to Japan now and some very sad news. Ishizaki, better known as Hayabusa, was paralyzed at press time after landing on his head when his foot slipped and skewing a corporata a move known in the U.S. as Alliance Salt, in the main event of the FMW pay-per-view show on October 22nd at Corican Hall. Habusa was wrestling Mamo Sasaki with Shoichi Arai, former president who lost his power in an angle who's actually, in reality, the president, in Habusa's corner, and Shuei Yoshida, who in storyline is now running the company, in Sasaki's corner, with the winner getting the company running power for his manager. As Hayabusa went for the second of a series of running quebradas in a match he was scheduled to win, a trademark spot that he does in nearly every match, his foot slipped and he landed headfirst at a horrible angle on the mat and was knocked out. Sasaki, seeing the move, freaked out immediately and screamed to call an ambulance. While Hayabusa on the mat, unable to move, wanted him to not panic as it would alert people something was wrong. He suffered cervical vertebrae damage and a serious spinal cord injury. He was rushed to Nihon University Hospital in Tokyo after being given an oxygen mask and taken out on a stretcher in the ring. At last word, he had not regained any feeling in his hands, legs, or his body and was paralyzed from the neck down. There is some hope he'll be able to regain feeling in his upper body a lot more than his lower body, and his wrestling career looks to be over. There's been no official comment from doctors pending results of various tests. He's in an intensive care unit. Nobody said his family, mother, wife, and young son, and Arai are allowed to see or talk with him. His family says he is conscious, his brain is fine, and we're going to go on surgery after his results of the test. If he doesn't recover, Izaki would be the fifth man in history of Japanese pro wrestling to wind up in a wheelchair. There have also been three deaths in the past four years from in-ring injuries, and a fourth wrestler who nearly died from a massive stroke. This has opened up a lot of questions for business has become increasingly physical and dangerous as risks are taken by so many smaller promotion wrestlers to get noticed in a country or small geographical area that has so many different companies operating. Ironically, like in the case of Darren Drostoff, a WWE performer who remains in a wheelchair, it was from a relatively routine move that went awry. As D'Lo Rouse slipped in doing his running powerbomb like move, causing Drostoff to take the bump wrong on his head and suffer a broken neck. There was another famous U.S. incident years ago with prelim wrestler Chuck Austin, who had only a handful of matches, who took the move called the Rocker Dropper, now called the Famous Sir Wrong, taking the bump on his head, and he also went up in a wheelchair and sued WF and won more than $26 million, which was later settled for a figure in excess of $10 million before going to an appeal. The most famous former Japanese wrestlers now, headliners now in wheelchairs are Dynamite Kid and Manasuke Ueda. The latter suffered damage not only from a lengthy pro wrestling career, but also from a very severe auto accident. The 32-year-old Izaki had been FMW's biggest star on and off for the most of the past six years when company found their associate Anita stopped working full-time and was Anita's opponent in Anita's first of many retirement matches on May 5, 1995, before 50,000 fans at Kawasaki Stadium. A pro wrestler for 11 years, he's long been known as one of the premier flying wrestlers in the world. Suffered numerous injuries in the process, including a body left badly scarred by competing in so many barbed wire matches when they were the main event staple of the promotion. He was recently... Uh, being out of action for several months due to surgery on both elbows for long-term damage. He had attempted to tone down his style and change his name to H at one point, but a new gimmick never really clicked and was back to Hayabusa shortly thereafter. 
He has wrestled around the world, including Serious of Mexico, and appearance on the August 2nd, 1998 ECW Heatway Pay View team with Jin Sasaki against Sabu and Rob Van Dam, and numerous appearances on All Japan shows. He is scheduled to return to All Japan for a match against Tenugrichiro on October 27th, Budokan, yeah, for the anniversary show as well, as competing as the All Japan Tag Tournament at the end of the year. Yeah, um, I never will forget that day um, going on the Death Valley Driver message board and seeing Bahu report this happening. And it was just like a shock. A holy shit. And then because of, you know, where the time we were in, it took a while before video was actually available for people to see of what happened. Um, nowadays, it would have been instantaneous, basically. Yeah. Um, it took about a week before uh, even a video clip came out so people could see what actually happened. And even that era, that was quick for Japanese stuff. It was a, it was a pay-per-view, so it was live, you know? Yeah. So that made it easier. But it was just so fucking sad because Yahabusa had been wrestling for 11 years. He's still a young guy, you know? I mean, you, he started out young. He was, shit, 31? No, excuse me. He was 32. He was going to be 33 on November 29th. So still very young and about to have this huge match with Tenru at, at Budokan. Would have been in the tag league. I mean, there's no telling, you know, what his career trajectory could have been if he doesn't get paralyzed. You know, with all Japan being the way it is, you know, at this time, even with Mudo coming in and then the next year, he still could have been a guy who could have been, a, you know, a guy who was a, a player. And in the new All Japan. I mean, and, especially with FM, everything that's happening with FMW, he probably just had, does end up full-time in All Japan. Or, I mean, he could also done stuff with Hashimoto in Zero One. I mean, there's things – I mean, he had options now. That it he, would have been a good era for him to be a freelancer, yes. Exactly, exactly. But, I mean, he's a guy who – was you know so renowned on the uh, smart wrestling fan scene in the late 90s because of being a, a star in FMW but then having this injury at this point in time he's a guy that you know up until his death got forgotten about in a way because of when his injury took place and you had this whole new generation of wrestling fans that's starting to come up in the mid to late two thousands, and especially when you get to the next decade, where it's just he's a guy that he wasn't around when they started getting into it, unless they're watching old tapes. Nobody's talking about Hayabusa. You know, it's not that like, Ultimo was always relevant because of the connection with Dragon Gate. And Torimon and all that stuff in general. Plus, he had the WWE run. Hayabusa, you know, was mainly the FMW star. But, you know, he had he had his other dalliances, like uh, working in all Japan. And that ECW Heatwave match is, 
arguably maybe uh, one of the best matches in promotion history. You know, in the entire ECW history. Yeah. So, and, and also don't forget, there were the Tokyo Pop DVDs as far as, you know, his legacy in the States. Yeah, but still, I mean, when people talk about FMW, they, they mean, it's always talking about Onita. You know, I mean, it's just how Hayabusa just got pushed aside, so to speak, in, the, in that generation. But, you know, when he died, a lot of people, you know, got exposed to him again because people were posting stuff. Um, so that helped out, you know, but it's just a shame, man. It's a shame that he was paralyzed at such a young age here. Yeah, and, you know, when this comes up, something I always think about, too, is I remember uh, years ago, we had Matt Farmer on. I don't remember what year or anything we were covering, but Hayabusa came up. And he mentioned how when this happened, he wasn't, if I'm remembering it right, Matt said he wasn't entirely surprised because Hayabusa's style of flying was always more loose. It, like, it looked really graceful, but if you think about it, he was not necessarily showing the kind of body control that you would see, at least, you know, going with someone now, like a Ricochet or a Pac or someone like that. Pac, excuse me. You know what I mean? And then yeah. he w the idea that Hayabusa got badly hurt on something relatively routine did not surprise him because of that. And... I, I get what he's saying with that. Um, you know, it was it's a fluke slipping on the rope regardless. You know, Chris Jericho was millimeters away from something like this happening at least, what, two or three times? Yeah. It's a move where that, I mean, that is a dangerous, uh, dangerous, you know, risk to take doing that type of move, yes. Because if you slip at all, the height... The height change from going to the top to the second rope makes all the difference. Yeah. You could slip on the top rope doing a moonsault, and you'll probably be okay. Well, yeah, I mean, because it's higher up. You hit that second rope, it's not, you know, the, the height is not nearly as there as the top rope. Well, also you get more spring because you're not worried about your feet catching the top rope. If you're on the yeah. middle rope, you also have to make sure that your feet are clear of the top rope. So yeah. when you're on the top rope, you're also getting more spring and going higher because you're not worrying about catching your feet on anything. So it's not just the height of the ropes. It's even more than that. So there, it becomes a move, unfortunately, where there's very little margin for error. And, you know, given the WWF ropes and stuff, honestly, kind of a miracle that Jericho didn't have more close calls. Yeah. Because those are not made for springing. Those are real rope ropes. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's just a shame. And I, he definitely is someone that I think is seen more as like a influential legend today than he was before. I mean, I think going even before, I think he, that even started before his death. I think it, kept, I really got going after his death, but like, if you really think about, like, there are a lot of fans that that, just the cool look and everything really spoke to. And when you think about that, too, like, I don't know why we never really talk about this, but think about it this way. This is a guy who, 
right after, just a few months after he starts getting that big main event push, all of a sudden, and it didn't really go anywhere, WWF ripped off his gimmick pretty much completely for Avatar. Well. I mean, different colors, but it was the same mask and same gear. Well, he kind of ripped off Sabu. But the mask was identical, Chris. Well, I know, but I'm talking about the gear, you know, the gear, Sabu's gear. Yes, there is that. But he added the robes and stuff. He did make something different out of it. Yeah, but yeah, but still, we, as we talk about in the Sabu shows, that probably pissed Sabu off pretty heavily. That probably made him more likely to leave FMW, yes. So, you know, I mean, it's it's what it is in that regard. But he's just, he's a guy, like I said, that he was a big deal for a while there and then you know after this happened you know we had the fmw and plus fmw dying itself and all the fmw offshoots which he had his own of the future yeah. yeah for a while i mean it's just he just kind of fell by the wayside in a way because he just wasn't around and uh i mean that happens so what i mean out of sight, out of mind, so to speak, you know? But, um... Yeah, now... What what do you make of, you know, what Dave said about, and, you know, now, you know, in the last few years, we've had a few more, about all of the major, major brain and spinal injuries in Japanese wrestling? Well, I mean, this is the era when there were a lot of people getting dropped on their heads, with moves, it's a surprise we didn't have more. Yeah, I mean, of the head dropping, it really only ended up being like Masawa, who ended up having a huge catastrophe. I mean, I because yeah, I mean, like yeah, the spine, like the like Amiko Kato and Plumariko weren't spinal injuries; those were brain bleeds. Um, yeah. So you're right. Yeah, it is kind of amazing when you think about it that. Kabashi, Kawada, Akiyama, Tawe aren't in worse shape, but again, as we talked about before, Masawa took much more of those bumps than everyone else did. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the head injury, the head injury thing I think you can trace to the style. Because, sure, we've had con- our share of concussion issues in the U.S. and other parts of the world, but... Japan is the only wrestling scene where we've had this relatively consistent level of brain bleeds and strokes and all that, you know? I just, I think it's probably a a happenstance. I mean, well, look, though, I mean, one of the cases, you know, Shibata obviously was from a specific kind of spot in the style. Like, Shibata, I don't think we can really argue with. I mean, with some of the others... Who knows? But it's just like, you know, like you can count on, you know, like Dirk, you can only think of like a couple really bad issues like that in the U.S. And they're all years apart and more flukish, like Chavo Guerrero, Ricky Steamboat, etc. Um, but in Japan, I mean, I, you know, I made a list at some point, but, you know, you have Mariko Kato, uh, Masakazu Fukuda, uh, you know, Tachitoshi Goto and Nagata had the stroke scares. Um, who else was I about to say? You know, uh, Takayama had his stroke. You know, there are more I'm forgetting. It's just, it's a lot. 
you know, and so many big names mixed in, too. Um, now, with the spinal injuries in Japan, I, the, the bad ones, I think it's been more flukes overall. Ibuza was a fluke. Takayama was a fluke. Um, Otani is a spot people have done safely, but was probably too big a risk. You know, with the, the German suplex into the buckles. Um, so, and you get in that, you know, you get in that situation as age. Well, yes, yes, combined with all that. And that, I mean, the thing is, too, is like, Otani was still good. Otani was still capable of performing without, like, that kind of shortcut. Like, he really yes. didn't need to do that at all, you know? Takayama, no. like I said, was a fluke. Takayama went over wrong on a sunset flip. Um, but the, like, so, like, of the big spinal injuries, yeah, the only one that's off the top of my head that was more, like, this is a dangerous spot was, uh, why am I drawing a blank on his name all of a sudden? Was Otani. So, and then, you know, Dave talking about some of the stuff in the States, you know, we've talked about Charles Austin a zillion times. I don't think we need to go into that again. Um, Draws was a fluke. Yeah, I mean, most, most of the time when someone gets, like, paralyzed, though, in wrestling, it's generally a fluke, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So. Alright, well, let's, let's move on as we stay, uh, go more in Japan here. All Japan Pro Wrestling. Kijimuro and Taiakea captured the double tag titles from Yoji Anjo and Tenuganichiro on October 22nd in Niigata before 2,800 fans, leaving Mudo now holding five All Japan belts. When Kea pinned Anjo in 1951 with his Hawaiian Crusher at the Mudo laid out Tenru with the Shining Wizard. There was a big deal storyline because Niigata was Jaya Baba's hometown, and Mudo's gimmick as a veteran is he likes to pay homage to the history of the various belts and the people like Baba who built the Japanese business. And for as he was his personal protege, and this is kind of a company's chosen one if there's a long-term future. And that's a big if, so there was a story there as well. This is a unification match against Tetsumi Fujinami and Asami Nishimura on the October 28th New Japan Pay-View show in Fukuoka. This will be the first unification match with All Japan versus New Japan championships in the history of Japanese pro wrestling. There was a time when such a deal would impact the Tokyo Dome. Two tag matches without this step in 1990 did, but the title has been devalued in Japan as well. Also in Niigata, they had a commemorative match as a promotion's 29th anniversary this, is this month with Dojo Kawano Masafuchi, who had been with the company forever, meeting 70s legend Abdul the Butcher and Kamala too. Koto Fuyuki attacked Kawada after the match to build up their 20, October 27 Budokan match. Now, Tenru is announced as having injured his shoulder in the match and is out of action, but it's part of an angle. They're doing where he's boycotting the promotion. As Tenru, after the announcement was made, said he was really fine. He spent the wrestle, if at all possible, of the final show at Budokan. All right, results from Nigata on the 22nd. Had Nobukazu Arai over Grand Naniwa. Arashi, Kokikitahara, Masato Tanaka. Shigeo Kimura, Yuto Ajima, and Kazushi Miyamoto. Mike Rotunda and Jungle Jim Steele over Masu Nagai and Nobutaka Araya. Dr. Steve Williams and Mike Barton over Johnny Smith and George Hines. Kawana Fuji over Abby and Kamala too, And KM Muto over Tenru and Yoji Anjo to win the tag titles. Now, the big return on the Budokan show is planned to be Hayabusa as a new guy feeding with Tenru for Hayabusa's injury. At press time, they're trying to get Jin Shinzaki to take Hayabusa's spot. The overmotion is losing its distinct flavor. 
but maybe due to using the same talent, it has to do so to survive. All right, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, all Japan had its style for a long time, but with all those guys leaving, you have to adapt. I mean, they had to go to it in a different direction because, I mean, you have to bring in a whole new crew of talent and nobody was working that style. So you had to get different styles to make this whole variety act here. You know? Yeah, absolutely. What it turns into for a while is basically war plus Mudo and and Kojima. Eventually. Uh, But right here, though, no, right here, though, you haven't... It's just like this hodgepodge where you got yeah. Michinoku Pro guys, you got FNW guys, you got Abby here, Zero you one. got the New Japan guy. Yeah, you got New Japan guys here. I mean, you got this hodgepodge here until Mudo takes over in 2002. And really, with what was available at the time, what could they have done better? I mean, they did what they had to do. I mean, honestly, with hindsight, that business held up as well as it did is a miracle. It is. Clearly, like, when you really think about it and how the Japanese scene changes in the next few years, like, they held up remarkably well. There are only two wrestlers in the promotion. There are only two native wrestlers left in the promotion and the foreigners. That's it. They had to rebuild. They did another DQ finish on October 19th in Osaka in the first singles match with Masana Tanaka and Abdullah the Butcher, with Tanaka getting DQ'd. The five versus five Ultraman War feud on the twenty seventh feature Tanaka on the War Team, even though he really came from FMW and Hayabusa was on the Japan Team, because both sides don't have the depth. The main thing is worse. The main events two New Japan guys, Mudo against Masahiro Chono on top of the Triple Crown. New Japan's done that match so many times on big shows it's ridiculous. Something about the match that will draw, particularly with both guys being so racked up on injuries, is the idea they're main eventing an Ultraman show at the Budokan. Our right, results from that Osaka showed Osaka Prefectural Gen number two. Masafuchi over Katsushi Miyamoto. Shigeo Okamura over Nobukazu Arai. Mike Rotunda and Jungle Jim Steele over Kabbalah 2 and Yuno Ajima. Abdullah Butcher over Masato Nakabao's qualification. Dr. Def and Mike Barton over Taiokeya Mitsukuni Nagai. Araishi and Koki Kitahara retained knowledge fan, all Asia tag title, excuse me, over Johnny Smith and George Hines. And then over in the main event. I forgot they ended up teaming Doc and uh, Bark Gun. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But they talk about business. For business comparisons, All Japan ran no shows in September 2000, except for a sold-out Budokan house, so there's no real comparison to be made. In August, they averaged 1610 per show. In September, it was 16, $16.75, not including the Budokan, which didn't sell out, but drew about 12800 for was a very weak lineup. They had 40% sales in August and 25% sales in September. Wait, you so can what, see but, where they need that boost of Mudo. But also, why why is he not actually running comparisons to the other months in 2000? Why did he bring? Why does he introduce that thread and then drop it when he moves on to the other months and stuff? Well, I mean, because there's, I mean, I don't know. But but still, but still, I mean, you could see where they needed that boost. And bringing Mudo in full time was that boost they needed. Yes. Well, let's go to their sister promotion, New Japan Pro Wrestling. 
Tetsufu Chinoma Sumnishima retained the IWGB Tag Titles in the main event of the October 19th show in Bipu Beacon Plaza. Love that name. Four out of 3,500 fans over Keiji Mudo and Jushin Liger in the 24-12. When Fujinami used the figure four on Mudo, playing off the fact that Mudo's knees are legit in bad shape from a messed up moonsault to Tokyo Dome. But when are they not in bad shape? Yeah, but remember that. I mean, he, that early part of 2001, man, that through the summer, I mean, that's when he was revitalized. Then he missed it. Then he has that moonsault on October the 8th at the Dome. And that's when he starts back having problems again. Which match is that? Oh, fuck. What was that match? Uh. Jesus Christ. Was it a triple crown match? No. It was uh, him and Hase uh, facing Nagata Nakayama. That's right. Where you had All Japan, New Japan, and No in the same match. And trying to Which remember, was a big like, fucking deal. What was the deal with the moonsault, though, specifically? Uh, he, he didn't. He, he, the landing was fucked. So he just he, took he, it even harder on the knees. Than took you. it harder on the knees, yeah. Oh, you know, I mean, maybe <sighs> different, but it's like, I think about, like, what, you know, Kurt Angle when he did the moonsault off the cage. Like, he turned, and that made it much worse on his knees. Besides, just it really is amazing how Kenta Kabashi can walk when you watch. And I've been watching him doing moonsaults, you know, now like every show that I watch from All Japan in in the early nineties, and he's all knees. His landing is all knees. It's like Jesus Christ, and it's that's and, and that's someone who's even bigger than Muto doing it, and it's every fucking match too. Now oh. he he did give up on it much sooner than uh Yeah, than but did. He, he did it a lot though. So all that all that added up. He did, yes, earlier on he did. Um But anyway. Alright, the results from uh, Beacon Plaza in Pipu. Over the match, Kensuke Sasaki of Yutaki Yoshie in fifty five seconds. But more on that in a minute. Dan Devine of Rekasushi Takamura. Testoshi Goto and Akira over Hiroshi Tanahashi and Dogo Soto instead of Djibouti, otherwise known as Bibi. Katsuyori Shibata and Wataru Inoue over Kendo Kashin and Chris Candido. El Samurai, Minoru Tanaka, Masuki Naruse over Jado, Gedo, and Gokudo. Jado? Jado, Jado Gabor? Jado. I always wanted on this tour that that Chris Candido would have teamed up with Jado, Gato, and Gokudo. He had Dio in his last name. Jado, Gato, and Candido. <laughs> yes. Scott Norton and Super J over Hirosh Tenzan and Satoshi Kojima. So there's Tenkoji losing to Norton and Super J. Masuro Chono, Giant Silva, and Giant Singh. That's Kali. Over Yuji Nagata, Manama Nakanishi, and Kenzo Suzuki. And if Fujinami Nishima retained the tag titles over Mudo and Liger. It was a fun promotion at the time. You know, the, the yeah. young lions were really interesting. You know, Akira Nagami is in full time for the first time in a while. And as a junior heavyweight, uh, Candido, despite still being far from sober, was doing fantastic work when he was around. The Giants. Yeah, <laughs> no, but you know, Tenkoji are really coming into their own as a team. Um, you still got Mudo around. Jado and Ghetto are here as regulars among their five thousand different promotions they're working at the time. 
there's a lot of fun stuff going on. Yeah. Even in bad shape, Mudo hasn't missed any bookings either here in all, with all Japan. On October 23rd in Shimonoseki, Mudo did the Kakushi Muso gimmick for the second time. First time in New Japan. Basically, it's Black Kakushi. Teaming with Hakushi over Giant Silva and Akira, using the mist on Akira to set the win. Black Kakushi, uh, yes, didn't Kakushi that come out in the 70s? <laughs> it's no Black Emmanuel, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, but, no, that yeah, would be, no, how about, yeah, how about, how about Timox stars in Black Hakushi? <laughs> no, Black Emmanuel, that's a, now that's a quality softcore film right there. Um, they're doing an angle okay. where Kensuke Sake has to work his way up from the bottom after his uh, loss to Kazuki Fujita. He's now working the openers, beating Kenzo Suzuki, Hiroshi Tanahashi, and Taki Yoshie, all less than a minute. Like everything else, it stems from an 80s Antonio Noki angle where he lost a singles match. Dave thought the Riki Choshu, and he's right. He spent several weeks rebuilding himself from the bottom. Yeah, I watched that a while back, where all Inoki worked was openers and beat everybody. Uh, on the October 18th show in Kagoshima, he had a major, we had a major upset where Yuji Nagana and Dan Devine beat Tenkoji, when Dan Devine made Tenzon tap out to his sleeper in 1547. So apparently they're going to give Devine some of a push as a new American shooter type. On the next night, he choked out Kasuchi Takamura in 39 seconds, so they're trying to do something with him. On that same show, Tenkoji lost again, this time to Norton and Super J, when J pinned Kojima. So it's the big angle with Tenzan and Kojima. After the match on the 18th, Chona ripped on Tenzan and Kojima, and Kojima said they would be leaving Team 2000. Also, they'd be one of the new heel junior heavyweight called Kakuda, who's Pat Tanaka. There was a day when Tanaka was a great worker. But that was not even in the last decade. Yeah, this is the beginning of the split that was going to happen with Tenkoji and T2000. And we never really saw it through because Kojima left. Yes. After the success of Monsieur Chono STF box launches, of which they still formed 50,000 in three weeks, Circle K is introducing a Cajun Mudo box lunch set. Why did the Circle K stations in the United States do some shit like this? <laughs> I know. Well, we don't have bento boxes here. but I know. Well, at least outside of Japanese restaurants. But doubling back a little, though, uh, I mean, Dan Devine was good. I don't know why he just kind of disappears not long after this. But, you know, especially as WCW power plant guys go, he's got to be one of the best. I guess Dan wasn't enough of a factor for New Japan. Da, 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 da. In elimination matches on October 21st in Kobe before Seats 500 fans. But this is, a, oh, oh man, I remember this. This is awesome. Chono, Norton, Silva, and Singh, as expected, beat Tenzan, Kojima, and Hiro Saito, and Tetsu Shigoto in the main in four straight falls. With Goto and Saito being eliminated fast, and Tenzan and Kojima being babyfaces, a four on two for more than 17 minutes, until Chono pinned both of them <laughs> with help from the Giants. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, Chono beat everybody. Hmm. <laughs> On the other team. <laughs> uh, after the match, the junior T2000, Coach Katamoto, Gato, Jado, Nakira hit the ring, and surprisingly, all attacked Chono. Maybe not a big surprise to stay in line with Ghetto and Jado, more with Tenzan than Chono, so it made sense in a split for them to side with Tenzan and Kojima. See, all this stuff was setting it up, and then all then they all would end up in this, you know, back together again. Yeah. Yeah, by the, time, like, by the time Kojima leaves, it just they end up just 
dropping all this and junior team 2000 is just part of team 2000 even you know during the brief run with black tiger and eddie guerrero as members and stuff it's- yeah just weird um it makes sense for the split. So, yeah, I read that. So Saki and Dan Devine form a tag team, beating Nagana and Tanahashi when Devine choked out Tanahashi. But it was 11-23, so they didn't continue to one-minute deal. They tried to put over Nakanishi's Iron Claw as a finisher on Nishimura as a single. The return of Hio Kanemoto in the junior division as part of T-2000 with Gato, Jado, and Akira beating Liger, Minoru Tanaka, Shibata, and Samurai. Anyway, Kanemoto, Jado, and Shibata, and Tanaka. Jado used the crossface of Jado on Shibata. And Kanemoto used a moonsault to pin Tanaka. Now, the upshot, 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 upshot of, of T2000 split on October 21st. Seemed to be that Chono went aligned with the Americans. Norton, Silva, Singh, Jay, and the Tenzan Kojima had the Japanese group. However, on October 22nd, Akira teamed with Chono and Norton in the main event of that match. After Akira scored the winning pin, Norton attacked him. Gato, Jado, and Kokuda hit in the ring, and Gokuda gave Chono a low blow. Akira did officially announce he was signing with them in Kanemoto. All right, this Kobe show was uh, Follow the Legend at Kobe World Hall. We have Super J over Yotaki Yoshie in an opener. Kenneka Shin and Masuka Naruzi over Chris Candido and Gokudo. Masuka Kakihara over Atari Inoue. Then the Junior Elimination match, which we talked about. Nakanishi over Nishimura. Saki and Divine over Nagana Tanahashi. Keiji Muno and Taiyo Kei over Riki Choshu and Kenzo Suzuki. And then the Battle of T2000. One of the most exciting things about New Japan at this time is, as it becomes more clear with this set of results, is just how much the junior heavyweight division was being refreshed at a time yeah. where it badly needed it. I mean, think about well, it. Well, I mean, you had Otani and Takei were gone. And you, you, you mean you brought Gato and Jado in, Kanemoto's back. Um, you're bringing Candido. in Candido. Minoru Naruse's here. Kakihara's jump from all Japan. But Minoru Tanaka is a top guy. Uh, well, he was that, he was that he's way. Been there for a, he's, been, he's been a regular for over a year, but still, he's it's that he, he's still fresher than most of the names, though. Yeah. Um, Shibata, in a way, being so good as Young Lions. Like, yeah. It, it, it was a big improvement over where the division had been. Yeah, where like you had well, some highlights, but it wasn't super consistent. Now all of a sudden you have a stacked division, top to bottom again. Yeah, Divine continued getting a big push as he went over the fall tens on the tag match. Team was Sasaki against Tenzan and Tashigoto with the finish being a prize spot. Knees from the side mount again, trying to get Divine over as a shooter. Yeah, they were trying to do something with him, but something remember, happened. Like the shooter thing wasn't entirely a gimmick. Like he was legit. Training partners and a cornerman for Don Fry. Yeah. Oh, we have a business update from for New Japan. In comparing business with last year, all the negatives we've been writing about hadn't really come home to roost on the big shows until this month. Similar to both WF and WCW, where we could see problems, but business held steady for a while, then started hurting. Average attendance in September was 2,733, down from 3,795 last year, a 28% drop. August average was 8,000, but that was G1, so it's not fair to compare, since that's always the biggest monthly average of the year. Sell percentage in September was 44.4%, down 75% from last year, and 52.9% for August in the G1. TV ratings, however, were almost identical to last year, increasing slightly from 3.13 last year to 3.16 this year. Oh, come on. Plus 1%. 
August was 4.23, but that was with G1 specials, which again is always a big month. So, thoughts on the New Japan business story here? I mean, they haven't gone all in on Enochiism yet, so that's not the reason. But no. they just don't have anything super grabbing at the top of the card and haven't for a while. Well, I mean, they got Mudo, but Mudo is working everywhere. Yeah. So it's kind of you're kind of losing that specialness in a way. And the novelty of Mudo is in the other promotions. Yes. A Brian Johnson update. He's been moved from Stanford University to a hospital in San Jose. He's fully alert. His eyesight's blurred, so he's, he isn't able to read. Although he can watch television, and friends are bringing in videos. He's watched recent UFC and Pride shows. He struggles with talking, but he's able to do so in a fully coherent conversation. He has movements and control of both legs and arms, but he isn't able to walk on his own. The basic feeling is his progress is remarkable at this point. Yeah, he, he was lucky. Yeah, like, I remember Dave describing, like, how it just kind of to really help people understand how amazing Bret Hart's stroke recovery was. I remember him saying something to the effect of, like, you know, I see Brian Johnson all the time, you know, in San Jose, and I think of him like a living miracle. Because he was never able to be an athlete again, but Brian Johnson still made a far better recovery than most stroke survivors do. Yeah. Brett, who had a terrible stroke, probably just as bad, like, I th that's the thing, like, Dave would always say when people would ask about a Brett comeback and stuff, like, Brett, like, people don't understand the degree of stroke he had, and that he's as ambulatory and everything as, he, like, is amazing, but yeah, like, you can't, also then you can, you can't slight how well Johnston did in, you know, that recovery, and... Again, like, I'd love to know more details. Like, we brought this up the last couple times we talked about his stroke. I'd love to know, like, was New Japan paying him during this? Because they made that big gesture when he had recovered enough to travel of him coming out as a member of the roster. I gotta think there's something going on, right? Yeah, they're, they're doing something. But what we don't really know. All right, um, let's go to Pro Sonoa. Vader and Tuko Scorpio became the first GAC Tag Champions, beating Junakiyama and Nekler Saito in the tournament finals on October 19th in Yokohama on the final night of the tour before 4,000 fans. Not selling out the mid-sized building had to be a mild disappointment. From what we were told, the match wasn't good, mainly consistent of Vader destroying Saito. The idea behind it made sense as Vader went over like a monster. In a one-sided match, including pinning GAC heavyweight champion Akayama after a choke slam, to build those two up for a probable main, probable main event on December the 9th when they have the 12,000-seat book for their last big show of the year. Tetsuji Takeiwa 0-1 won the GAC junior title pinning Yoshinobu Kanemaru, and 17:35 with a former Michinoku driver, which keeps their thing alive, which is good since Takeiwa's match in Noah and 0-1 against Kanemaru have and tags have been hot. The other big matches were Daisuke Akane and Shinjiro Tani. Over to Kyle Moore and Stora Sako when Otani used the Cobra on Osaka in 1926. But after the match, Otani turned on Akeda. All right. Uh, Yokama Bunker Gym here. On the 19th, we have Rushkamura and Mitsumoto over Haruka Egan and Shoshikuchi. Masao Inoue and Kenta over Richard Slinger and Superstar Steve. Kitaro Shiga and Makoto Hashi over Masashi Oyagi and Takashi Segura. 
Wild 2, Takeshi Marishima and Takeshi Riki over to Mon Honda and Junis Amita. Mitsuru Masawa, Yoshinari Gawa, Takuma Sano, and Namichi Marafuji over Michael Modest, Donovan Morgan, Bull Schmidt, and Bison Smith. Then you got Daisuke Akeda and Shinjiro Tani over Takawa Moore and Star Osaka. Takiwa win the junior title from Kanamaru, and then Vader and Scorpio become the tag champions, beating Akayama and Saido. So yeah, the first ever GHC tag champions crowned on this night. And Vader and Scorpio did a really good job as the, 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 the champions. It revitalized both of them. They yes. needed it. Yes. Um, that said, I, I did not like the weird slow rollout of those belts that Noah did. Yeah. It took way too long. They should have they should have brought those belts out earlier so No Fear could have been the champ the first champions. Yeah, like so okay, so looking like yeah, they didn't introduce the heavyweight title till the spring of 01. And then and when was the junior title introduced? What wasn't it first? That sounds right. I'm checking right now. GHG Junior Heavyweight Championship. No, it was second in June. Okay. Well, still, I mean, you're right there around the same time. Yeah. And, yeah, I just, it felt like, I mean, why are you waiting? I mean, you're waiting over a year to introduce the tag titles. You're waiting, you know, more than half a year to introduce the singles title. I mean, close to a year on the junior title. It just... Early Noah, it felt like nothing had stakes. Yeah. Because of that. And now that you actually have belts for everyone, this is at least the beginning of, of Noah starting to have more direction. It doesn't necessarily have a clear identity yet, other than being like, this is where most of the All Japan guys are now. But Masao obviously wanted there to be more of an identity than that. I think it's... I think the two things that really click are... The junior heavyweight division becoming so strong and shining and showing that these guys who weren't really getting shine in all Japan, just how good they were, with help from Zero One, too, of course. But that, and then I think Kobashi as champion in early 03, because it allowed Masawa to kind of rest his brain a little from the stress of being the top guy and concentrate more on the booking, plus he was in more of a groove, and then... That that's the beginning of really Noah in that era as we remember it. Yeah. And Takeiwa, his two thousand and one was pretty damn great. One of the best wrestlers in the world at that time period. Yeah, I mean he I mean he and Hoshikawa were the glue of those early zero one pay per views. Yeah, but he's going out in the Noah and, you know, having these great matches there, too. That's another yes. thing that's helping, helping him out. That's fantastic. And he had, he had incredible chemistry with Kanemaru in particular. Oh, yeah, yeah. But Kiritawa missed the last few days of the tour, including this tag tournament match, due to a problem with his internal organs that haven't been specified. Uh, that's, that's a bit of a scary way to hear that, knowing how Japan is. But we all know how it ended up, so, I mean, it wasn't a big deal. fine, but, so when he ended up having the cancer years later, what type of cancer was it, though? Ooh, I don't remember. I'm checking real quick. Uh, it was stomach cancer, you know, a few years ago. 
So it does, it does make you wonder, knowing how Japan was about, you know, kayfabing stomach cancer and stuff as internal organ disease, if he had a scare. I mean, he comes back pretty quick, right? Yeah, I mean, he wrestles for a long time after the fact, so... So, if we were just wa- guessing wild, what, got a colonoscopy and had some polyps removed or something? I don't know about all that. Who knows? Because the, my point being, they're using the code word for stomach cancer. So, it makes you think it's whatever it is is relatively serious. That's my point. But it didn't miss any it range major time. Deal. Yeah, yeah there so. wasn't a huge deal as far as him missing time. <clears throat> Bull Schmidt got pounded on pretty good again in the match with Vader and Scorpio, including being knocked out cold by all-out clothesline by Scorpio at one point. He didn't do well on his first tours. At one point, taught a lesson of sorts in a match with Rikyo and Morshima. <laughs> oh. He did a lot better on this tour, but apparently this was something left over. Okay, I always forget. Which one is Bull Schmidt? I just remember him as Bull Schmidt. No, but I always confuse Jack Bull and Bull Schmidt. Oh, there's, I mean, there's no confusion. They're different dudes. That's what I'm Jack saying, the, but I forget Jack which one is Bull, which. Jack the Bull was a dude with shaved head and goatee. Bullschmidt had long hair. Bullschmidt's the Harley Race guy. Basically, yeah. And Bull Sh- and, and Jack Bull was UPW? Bat- was Batman. Bassman. Yeah. Yeah, totally different looking dudes. <laughs> I for business comparisons. They increased average attendance from 1,700 at this point last year to 2063, which is 21.4 increase. August average was 1850. Sub percentage in September was 50%. It's compared to 100% in September 2000 and 50% in August. So really, things at house show level are basically steady. Their TV average is 2.13 in September, down from a 2.48 in August. They didn't have TV at this time last year, so there's no comparison point there. Ah, yes, the buffer period where... uh... God, what was the name of the wrestling news show that aired in between All Japan and Noah? I don't remember. But you you remember what I'm talking about? That they yeah. had that it was it was on late night network TV. There was a wrestling news show that was airing all sorts of like indie clips and stuff. What was it called? Was it Coliseo, and that's why the satellite shows ended up being D Coliseo? Was it that? Maybe. Yeah, that sounds right. And that was just part of the whole deal of, like, we need this buffer period before we go from all Japan to you. Yeah. All right. Uh, Zero One, Antonio Nuki and the Zero One promotion from Japan have talked about doing the December show in Los Angeles. That does not happen. Nope. And that's all from Zero One for our week. Big Japan Pro Wrestling. Now let's go to the Indies. Van Hammer is turned for Big Japan with the CCW guys. Big Japan brought Mr. Danger, Mr. Matsunaga, back to the feud with Zandig. Going to no contest, up an ultimate death match where the loser will have to retire. With explosive barbed wire, broken glass, tarantulas, crocodiles, piranhas, and lambs all involved. I don't remember all that foolishness, but yeah, <laughs> that was being talked about. All right, October 20th, it's Pro Tyson Hall. We have Shimon Masazaki and Fantastic over Takakuba Benke and Naoki Nimazawa. Oh, here we go. Hiromi Yagi and Tanny Mouse over Yoshiko Tamara Marcella. So even though we don't have Neo Vix, we have Neo involvement. But we also have good wrestlers in the match, too. Ruckus over Yujito. That's a match. Mr. Danger, Bad Boy Hito, and Man Man Pondo beat Katara Kanamura, Shadow WX, and Abdul Kobayashi in a street fight. 
Beach Fan Tag Title Match, Men's Teo and Daisuke Sakamoto retained over Kamikaze and Hideki Osaka in a match that went 26-40. And then a fluorescent light twos and barbar board death match, Zandig and Van Hammer beat Jun Kasai and White Beater. And then we go back to Sportation Hall on the 21st. We have Yoshiko Tamara, Marcelo, Verumiyagi, and Tanny Mouse. The a maximum six-man tag league match of Dakakuba Binke, Abdullah Kobayashi, and Okinomazawa, skinheads, uh, going to a 30-minute draw with Kamikaze, Hideki Osaka, and Shun Masazaki. Van Hammer of a white beater in a singles match. Bad Boy Hino shot WS, went to WDQ. Another maximum six-man tag league match is Men's Club. Men's Teo, Daisuke Sakamoto, Rujito defeated Jun Kasai, Maman Pondo, and Ruckus. And then a Tarantula and Forest Death match, Mr. Mitsuhiro Matsunaga, Mr. Danger, and Zandi went to a no contest. I mean, it's the same thing we've said a million times. The CZW got, well, the CZW Death Match guys were just not ready for this opportunity. Um, no. Now, when they started bringing in your CZW Junior Heavyweights, they fit in a lot better. Yeah. Like Ruckus. I mean, the thing I've never understood, though, is. You have Pondo, you have Too Tough Tony sometimes. Like, why did they go with CZW as opposed to IWA Mid-South? I'm money, I'm sure. What, like Ian asked for more money or something? No, I'm just saying there probably was a money deal between Zandig and Big Japan. I just mean because the quality of worker you would have gotten for the death matches at the time would have been much Money, better. money talks. Money talks, that's all that matters. Oh, you so. think Zandig paid? I'm sure there was money in uh, – yeah, I'm sure there was money involved. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the opportunity to get the big trend guys in the United States. So – I mean, yeah. there is that. Sandig was more ambitious in that sense. Than he. Yeah. All right, DDT. They ran uh, Club Atom in Shibuya on October 18th. Up at Atom! At Ironman Heavyweight – Metal Tana match as uh, – we had a, a split winner here. Takashi Saki and Asian Cougar defeated Tomiko Hachimoto and Hiro. So they're co-champions, I guess? Uh, he, that title's always had weird shit going on. Well, of course it is. It's the title that's been held by a ladder and a plate of rice and all that. Yeah. Sanjiro Takagi. Shoji Jimiya doing his uh, Sanjiro Takagi cosplay over Showa. Tanama Sakatoba over Tomihiro Ishii by disqualification. Poison Sawada Julian Hibikaji over Shinigami and Shigeo Kato by disqualification. And Hitaro and Yoshia over Super Uchu Power and Mikami, where three of the four were all caps. Yes. Um, boy, Toba versus Ishii. I got a feeling that match might have been a bit stiff. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> Which, by the way, I, I did watch... I know, I know you aren't going to since you don't watch any current non-tv wrestling at this point but i did watch the uh we are the fighting detectives uh, battle arts tribute show from the other day that's on wrestle universe and uh toba is still really good from what he showed in that tag match he was in oh, that's nice yes uh it was it was him and uh it was him and akudo hadaka against brother yashi and hikaru sato Really good show overall for people who like that style, but that was my favorite match. 
right, we're going to FMW proper now. It's Kota Fuyuki's latest fight final match. After five years in FMW and a zillion fate retirement and loosely town steps, was said to be October 21st in Kyoto at Kyoto KBS Hall. After his win over Yoshida Sasaki, Fuyuki brought his family and tried to shake hands with his rival, Hayabusa, and told him to come to the All Japan show the next day with him. Hayabusa refused. Wait, so what day was the pay-per-view? The 22nd. That okay, day. So we'll get to the actual results of that in a minute. Yeah. To show his leaving is another angle, Fuyuki's last words were he would return to FMW next month with Tenru to take over the promotion. On the FMW pay-per-view show next night, the show where Habusa was paralyzed, Fuyuki did a take interview saying so he returned on November 5th with Arashi and Kokodahara and eventually run the company again. All right, on the 21st at Kyoto KBS Hall, Satoru Makita over Happy Akeda in your opener. Wait, someone Shin- did that gimmick before Happy Corbin? Yeah, of course. Shinjuku Same and Flying Kid Chihara over Riki Fuji and Yoshiro Rirano. Kyoko Inoue and Yuki Miyazaki over Mima Shimoda and Yuka Nakamura. Oh, so we got more Neo talent here, Bix. Uh, it's Akatsu Oya over Nosawa. Mr. Kanosuke and Mount Sasaki over Goimon and Onro. And Nikoto Fuyuki, Kitanka Namura, and Chocobo Makai over Hayabusa, Tetsuya Kuroda, and Yoshida Sasaki. Then the pay-per-view of Korkin Hall. Uh, Chocobo Makai over Happy Akeda in your opener. Mima Shimoda and Esko Mita, LCO over Kyoko Inoue and Yuka Nakamura. Flying Kid Chihara and Satoru Makita over Riki Fuji and Yashiro Rana. Onro over Shinjuku Same. Biomonster DNA over Hitsukatsu Oya. Mr. Kanosuke, Kitaka Namura, Nosawa over Tetsuya Kuroda, Goemon, and Yoshida Sasaki. And then Hayabusa and Mama Sasaki's match. I know it was all part of an angle, but imagine like the fans that were involved with FMW. At the time, you know, hearing about, you know, hearing that angle about Fuyuki asking Hayabusa to come to the All Japan show with him, he didn't. Did the FNW show instead and got paralyzed? Yeah. Again, I know it's all part of the story, blah, 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 but. It's still kind of eerie. Yes. It is eerie. Very eerie. And yeah, this this is basically, this ends FNW. I mean, FNW just, just, it's just non-existent after Hayabusa leaves, and that's why we got all the split, split groups. Yes, yes, well. And then yeah. Fuyuki, getting, Fuyuki getting his, you know, get, having his health issues as well. I mean, it's just, man, what a rough stretch. Yeah. Well, let's go to something lighter now and go to Kageki. Yeah, they ran Hakata, Southern Pier, and Fukuoka on October 19th. We have Kaze over Tyra. In your, in your opener, Diablo over Shiba, and Tobukaze and Jiraiya over Kaze and Azteca in your main event. Oh yeah, three matches, and one has Shiba, another has Azteca. <laughs> they met three matches in about 45 minutes. So I'm pretty sure the fans that were at the Hakata Southern Pier had a nice uh, little evening. Well, it sounds like they also had a nice view, so you don't need a long yeah. wrestling show if you get to watch the beautiful scenery at the pier. Yeah. Michinoku Pro in the B&G Ocean Center in Kawasaki on October 19th. We have Dick Togo over Chinen Hakai in your opener. You have uh, Michinoku Tag League matches now. Chad Collier and James Mason over Kendo and Subo Genshin. Grand Hamada and Pentagon Black went to a double countout with Masao Rihara and Grace Sasuke. 
And then Macho Pump and Pantera defeat Hideki Nishida and Tiger Mask. Huh. Those tag leagues were always fun, though. Always had oh, some yeah. interesting teams. You know, you got Chad Collier and James Mason as your, you know, technician team. Uh, I forget. Is Pentagon Black with Sochi Hamada at the time, and that's why he's teaming with Granamata? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. Are they still together? Or I think so. Ah, good for them. All right. NMC. What the hell is NMC? They ran Koshigaya Kazura Studios in Saitama on October 21st from 382 fans. What are they that they drew 382 <laughs> fans? As we have Hitaro over Tomokazu Iwasaki in your, in your opener. Tadahiro Fujizaki and Takashi Yamada over Makoto Miyazawa and Masumi Hashisu. Who? <laughs> Fujitori Karesu and Tanamasat Toba over Ghost Boxer, Totoro Kamoi, and Nisei Great Nita. That's right. Nisei Onita did the Nisei Great Nita gimmick. That's fantastic. <laughs> then we have Asian Cougar, Jack Geist, and Sheba over Hebekaje, Kaizoku Majin Viking, and Poison Sawada Julie. What was Jack Geist again? <laughs> ben 10 defeated Daiwa Kauchi. Oh, it's Billy Ken Kid. That's right. And Tornado Street Fight Car Crash Deathmatch Fuka Mentaro. Hirofumi Yura, Masayoshi Motegi, Shigeo Kato, and Shinagami defeated Daisaku, Koji Ishinriki, Naoshi Sano, Alka Shoshia, and Yusaku. Okay, I have questions. Um, <laughs> I had no idea Koji Ishinriki was still wrestling at this point. Yes. Um, at least he is working in a promotion on the level of his talent. Um... <laughs> I, I'm thrown by the results, including both Gentaro, Gentaro, however you say it, and Fukumentaro, because they're the same person, and really the gimmick was the same. He just changed his name, or did he put on his old mask to be Fukumentaro? Maybe it gets better. Well, he's, no, al he's also Benton. <laughs> That's one of his other gimmicks. So are we assuming that he's the promoter of NMC? The Three Faces of Antara. What the <laughs> hell is this promotion? It's one of those indie scum promotions, Bix. But do they run regularly? Like... And shows, yeah. But it's always hard to find results. So I'm oh, glad they, okay, wait. They were stable. That's what it is. They were stable, <laughs> in, and they had and, the, and they had NMC produce. Yeah. Okay. So okay. So. Shigeo Kato, Shinigami, Anryo, Kiketsugu, Nozumi, Majo, Devil Lats, Ghost Boxer, and Kaizoku, Majin Viking are an MC. And, oh, of do you know who the one with the long name is? Who? Tanny Mouse. Of course. All right, well, let's go to a more known indie, Osaka Pro. They had Osaka Saturday night at Festival Gate. On the 20th, we have Super Demican over Daigoro Kashiwa. Ebison over Tiger's Mask. Kengo Takai, Miracle Man, and Super Delphin over Anger of Beast King. Sure. Kenshibo Kamen and Kaiju Zeta Mandora. Infinity, Black Buffalo and Subasa over Azteca and Shu. 
And then a Tenazan tournament semifinal match. Takeru Murahama over Gamma. So there is Osaka Pro. I don't Torimon. remember Anger of Beast King. Yeah. Torimon, October 23rd in Niigata Phase. Fase Phase. I call it say Phase. In Niigata, one of my favorite venues. We had a three-way with Big Fuji. And Geki Horaguchi and Ryo Saito going to a no contest. We have T2P exhibition matches. Torowashi over Jun Agawuchi and Shuji Kondo over Takuhiyagi. Then we have Goodbye Saito, match number seven. As Kenichiro Arai and Gran Apache defeated All Cap Saito and Raimu Mishima. And then our main event, M2K. Masuki Machizuki, Susumu Machizuki, and Darkness Dragon defeated Man of Tokyo, Dragon Kid, and Ricky Marvin. And Saito doesn't actually go anywhere. He just becomes Super Shiza. Yes. It was noted uh, in the past few days. I know uh, our, our dear friends K-Slow and uh, Alan Farrell posted this on, on Twitter. But Susumu, you know, all his different last names. Susumu Yokosuka, Susumu Mochizuki, yeah. He has worked every month for the last 25 years. Not missed a month. Yeah, he's worked. He's worked at least one match every month for the last twenty five years. An Iron Man, and an unsung performer in that promotion. Just all, always fantastic. Great wrestler, absolutely. But that that is insane, though. Like, because of, of as people with longevity go, it's rare that they have that kind of schedule. And with the style, he works too. The style. Anything else? Yeah. Wing Revival ran different Ariaki on October 21st. For this 420. is World Wing Spirit, I think? No, it's just Wing Revival at this point. Okay. Yukide Ueno over Ryo Miyake. Nane Takahashi over Mika Nishino. Uh-oh. Hiroshi Shimada over Masaru Toi by Countout. Kairo Ito and Momo Nakanishi over Kayo Nomi and Tomoko Watanabe. Mm. A three-way elimination match where Kim Duck beat Jason the Terrible and Tomoki Honma. And our main event, Falls Count Anywhere. Iceberg Slim over Mr. Poco. Oh, that's nice. So, yeah, this is Iceberg's Japanese t- tour here. When did he stop being Iceberg Slim? Uh, he was stopping being Iceberg Slim in Wildside probably in 2002-ish. Okay. Yeah. But... <laughs> There he is, Vaughn. Good buddy Iceberg. Yes, in, right. w- in Wing. Basically, thanks to Abdullah, yeah. Oh, that's who got him booked there? Well, I mean, that's Abdullah was one of his mentors, yeah. Yeah, and he, he comes back uh, He comes back in December for a few shows. He worked, Oh, he works for both Wing and World Wing Spirit in December. <laughs> well, there you go. All right, uh, movie star and Pancras, the biggest star in history, Matsukos Funaki, now 32, and have been retired since he lost to Hisan Gracie to Tokyo Dome May 26, 2000, will be released at the Tokyo International Movie Festival on October 30th. Funaki plays a Bruce Lee-like figure and has gotten some pub because of his new ripped-up physique. How new? He was already pretty ripped. Well, he was even more ripped. This is the era here when there were quite a few fans, including myself, on the uh, Japanese uh, fan scene that was begging for Funaki to return to pro wrestling. Yeah, but uh, it, it, it took many years for that to happen. Yes. he. he imagine if he returned at the same time Suzuki did. 
And thing is, this dude was a better worker than Suzuki was. Yes. <laughs> and not by, and, and I mean by a good bit. <laughs> Be, I mean th- that guy was amazing as professional wrestling. And the Just, guys that were in New Japan Dojo with him always said he was the most talented. He was a natural. Yeah, he was the a natural talent. Just insane. All right, the Rings promotion, Clinging to Life, is still doing their annual King of Kings tournament, which started on October 20th in Tokyo. The tournament was its highest profile event of the year, going back to its inception as a pro wrestling tournament, which often came down to Akira Maeda and Volcan in their peak period. Over the past two years, it was replaced by a shoot tournament, which ended up being won by Dan Henderson in 2000. Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira, who probably should have won on 2000, but was robbed of the decision, had a match with Dan Henderson in 2001 both of whom ended up jumping the pride after winning the tournament and having some pretty good success. This year, the company is financial straits, and probably when the company's right now clinging to existence, there were no huge names involved in the show, which saw lots of longtime Rings regulars like Lee Hasdale of England, Chris Hosman of Australia, and Hiromitsu Kanahara advanced along with Fedor Emelianenko, the company's current world heavyweight champ from Russia. Then you had Ejixus Valavicius of Lithuania, Han, who put a, good, a much better showing against Nogueira in a shoot, not a Coleman or Gary Goodridge, is not entering the tournament this year, and his best said his shooting days are over. Maeda did manage a promotional tie with Caesar Takeshi's Shoot Boxing Alliance, which sent a fighter to his show. Didn't the tournament have a different name when it was at work, though? Um, Yeah, it wasn't the King of Kings. I'm drawing a blank on what the name of the tournament was, though. We've talked about yeah. this before, though. Yeah. The, yeah, King of Kings is really when it becomes... More or less all shoot. Yeah. Mega Battle was the tournament before. Or one of them, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know, and of course the joke back in the day in this era was, what's the prize for winning Rings King of Kings tournament? A contract with the Pride Fighting Championship. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> now let's go to the Joshi side of things. Arcean, October 21st of Cork and Hall. Renekase and Pika over Yu Yamagata and Bionic J. We have Sky of Arsian League matches. Tsubasa Kurakagi over Ai Fujita. Fabio Pachi over Chapurito Sari. Nokie over Miho Watabe. Then we have Rie Tamada's 10th anniversary match where Mima Shimona and Esko Mita, LCO, defeated Gami and Rie Tamada. And then the Twin Star of Arsian title match. Ayako Amada and Michiko Omakai defeated Linus Asuka and Mariko Yoshida to win the titles. Well... 2001, Ayaka Amada, Michiko Omakai. That's a, uh, it's quite the team there. <laughs> quite the team in the looks department. I think it could, uh, I mean, they could work too. But... Oh, they were hell of a talents, but man. Yes, they, they had their fan bases. Um, yeah, a lot of horny dudes when it was, uh, was, on that, was on that team. Is Ayako even 20 yet at this point? Well, no, she is by this point, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. She's like yeah, 21, yeah. 22 at this point, I think. Yeah, she would have been uh, 20. Okay. Yep. And Arsene right. still has some talent, but they, again, Aja Khan leaving and taking some of the talent with her, or some that retired and all that, just... It hurt, and Arcee never Arcee never really had a, like its own identity after that. It was just a promotion. Yeah, which I didn't really I didn't learn until <laughs> recently. They actually when they took on that new style that they had initially, they sent some of their wrestlers to train at the Battle Arch Dojo. Like that's how they ended up getting that connection. 
and having that similar style. Yeah. So I I always liked that. It was just kind of a shame that it changed so much for the worse. Yeah. All right, Gaia. Like your Hokuto returned to disappearing for six months at the October twenty first show at Corken Hall. Hokuto was married to Kinsuke Saki, left the promotion with her husband when they left Japan for the U.S. to train all summer for his return with his new shooter gimmick. Hokuto's first match back will be October 10th, I mean November 10th at Corken, forming a heel tag team with Shigusha Nagaya. Alright, uh, this show at Corken on the 21st had Tashi Yamada over Sakura Rota, Mayumi Otaki and Karu over Sakura Rota and Karadakayama, Chikai Nagashima and Toshimatsu over Miko Sadamura and Carlos Amano, Aja Kong over Karu, then we had Dynamite Kansai, Toshio Yamada, and Shigusa Nagayo over Miko Sotomura, Shikaya Nagashima, and Toshiyamatsu in the main event. How wild is it, Shikaya Nagashima, working a weekend of U.S. indie shows 22 years later? Yeah, God bless her, she still goes, yeah. Yeah, she did the, uh, she did West Coast Pro, and I'm trying to remember if she was at anything else before that, but and then she also did Deadlock over the weekend in North Carolina. Yeah. Then we have JD. Oh boy. At Cork and Hall on the Long Strong Distance show. Oh, oh come on. <clears throat> and we had two actresses matches Miso Ishikawa over Ayano Omori, and Taruko Kagawa and Keiko Furuta over Shikai, Sh- I mean, Shiaki Kashida and Emi Tojo. Then we get the Number one contender for the QOR and AWF World Women's title, long, strong distance, two-hour Iron Man gauntlet match. That's right, two hours. Fang Suzuki ended up being the winner, defeating Arya, the Bloody, Chitoshiyamoto, Drake Morimatsu, Haruka Matsuo, Hiroyo Muto, Kazuki, Kuryoniyama, Kyoko Inoue, Kyusei Ninja Remaru, Maru, Abashizuka, Sachiabe, Sumisakai, Takago Inoue, and Yuki Miyazaki. So basically everyone other than the actresses was in one match. A two-hour Iron Man match. Well, but Gauntlet, so what, basically whoever is standing the last winner once they hit two hours or something is the winner? I know that your uh, your thought is why didn't Neo run a two hour Iron Man match with Masai Genki and Tanny Mouse? Sure, um, you've been all in on that. What wasn't the actresses also what led to Jaguar Yakota finally giving up on training anyone in this promotion? Yeah, pretty much. So, and they'd continue to exist, but not necessarily at the same level because it's. You're not having all the wrestlers being trained by one of the greatest wrestlers of all time anymore. Yes. And to close out Japan, Oz Academy. They had a show at Zep Tokyo on October 20th. We have Karu Nakayama and Sakura Rota over Karu and Police. <coughs> Shikai Nagashima over Karl Zamano. Aja Kong and Linus Asuka over Chigusa Nagayo and Mayumi Ozaki. And Carl Samano, Shigeru Nagashima, and Mayumi Ozaki over Toko Inoue, The Bloody, and Toshi Yamatsu in the main event. At this point, at least. I mean, it still exists now, but in this era when Ozaki is mainly working for Gaia, Oz Academy is basically just Gaia, but with Carlos Amano and a couple other people maybe added on the shows. Good shows, though, but it's basically a Gaia offshoot at this time. 
Yes. And by the way, since we rarely talk about police, uh, just for the record, if you were around Death Valley Driver back in the day, yes, it has become clear in time. Police was a cisgender man, or is, I should say. He's still alive. Police is not a butch lesbian woman, as some people thought at the time. <laughs> yes. So there you go. All right, we're going to a different type of section now as we have Australia, we got England, and we got uh, North America. So let's start with Australia. And this is familiar in a lot of ways to what we've heard on the uh, you know, the, the WWE Patreon shows. But anyway, this is well, the Brian Alvarez version. Now. Yeah, that's the thing. We did not have this version on the Patreon shows, I don't think, to not get too redundant. So we've got something different here as we covered the beginning of World Wrestling All-Stars, or at least their first tour. All right, so let's go to Brian Alvarez's uh, version of the Perth Australia show on October 20th. <clears throat> this was the tour that Vince Russo was supposed to be involved in, but he allegedly pulled out and quit wrestling forever. Write that one down. Anyway, Jerry Lollinger and Borash did commentary. Fans absolutely hated Borash. Someone should have fallen in that without him, there would have been not even been a tour. He came out for the show and announced Bret Hart wouldn't be able to attend since he was on Chicago with his mother. Some fans actually booed his announcement. In some ways, it's hard to blame them because I know from experience that a lot of rather uneducated fans go to wrestling shows, and the people that booed probably hadn't heard about Helen and thought it was a typical bullshit excuse. <clears throat> Still to be just on the safe side, that's not the kind of announcement you should be doing, booing. Actually, I do think I included some parts that were unique like that, but not yeah. the whole thing. So Yeah. Juventud Guerrero beat Sakosis to win the vacant WWE Cruiserweight title. Conan beat Gangrel, who came out to his WF music. Going to be some papers filed there. After the match, Gangrel and Luna got into an argument. <laughs> she kicked him in the nuts to gave her the implant DDT right on her implants, I might add. Of course, this was a the dart wedding match, or whatever the hell it's called, the pay-per-view. Gangrel was said to be one fat man. <laughs> okay. um, oh, on a related note, between music and Luna, um, someone pointed out in one of the replies, I forget if it was to the show tweet last week or to the, me tweeting <clears throat> the Luna's Angel Baby promo, that they were looking up the following week where Honky Tonk Man debuts in the AWF, and he comes out to his WWF theme. Yeah, he does. I remember that well, yes. Yeah. That, that's, that's a great idea when you're trying to be a new national promotion. But nothing was said. Uh, who knows? Get this angle. Jerry Lawler came out with some strippers. Stevie Ray interrupted the festivities and said he was appalled at Jerry's behavior. This resulted in a match being set up for later. But Bagwell, who's still getting booked, <laughs> beat Disco Inferno. <laughs> Disco got a ton of heat and the crowd was inexplicably, inexplicably in the Bagwell. Nathan Jones, big scary mofo who used to be under WF WFWL contract but was dropped when he couldn't get a U.S. work visa due to legal problems in his home country of Australia. And Danny Dominion beat the West Hollywood Blondes, Lenny and Lodi. <clears throat> Apparently there are no gay rights activists in Australia because Lenny and Lodi did their old shtick which U.S. gay rights activists con convinced WCW to ban. Or maybe there are no gay people in Australia. <laughs> anyway, the blondes got a ton of heat, and Jones chose Sam Lodi to death for the pen. You know what's funny about this? <clears throat> this time, Nathan Jones can't get a U.S. work visa because uh, of his criminal history. Nowadays, Danny Dominion probably wouldn't be able to get an Australian work visa. <laughs> yeah. Norman Smiley beat Crowbar. Crowd chant RVD at their Van, Van Damme spot. Crowbar did a crazy dive off something high as well. 
<clears throat> Lawler beat Stevie Ray with a schoolboy. Then Road Dog beat Jeff Jarrett. Ref took a bump, so Lawler hit the ring to count. Dog had his old WF music and did all of his DX mannerisms. Said it'd be a good show. Forrest announced a return date for April 2002. <clears throat> Man, my throat is bothering me. They ran the Adelaide Entertainment Center on October 21st. Hoobie and Sakosas, who were fighting the night before, beat Lenny and Lodi. Norman Smiley beat Crowbar with a garbage can shots to the head. Good to see old Crowbar came to his senses about unprotected chair shots to the head during his time off. Stevie and Lawler did their spiel again. Road Dog beat Conan in a dog call match. Adara James and Danny Dominion beat Luna Vachon and Gangrel. Also got in a big fight the night before. <clears throat> Nathan Jones killed Disco Inferno. Brett showed up and cut a promo saying he's going to be a fair commissioner and bring the best talent available to Australia. <clears throat> which led to Bagwell beating Jeff Jarrett when Brett came out and counted the pinfall. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets for more on uh, World Wrestling All-Stars. <clears throat> Quite the couple shows there. Yeah, by the way, have you seen the stuff Crowbar's been tweeting lately about how how much of an impact he thinks the constant sitting of wrestlers in cars and on planes actually contributes to their health issues? I mean, I guess. I mean, remember, he is a physical therapist and a very good one. Um, I don't know. I thought it was interesting. I mean, it's something you hear about sometimes. I mean, remember when Punk got that big con- contract coming back in 2011 and he got the tour bus rental? You know, he explained, like, that the main reason he got it was to save the wear on just his knees and everything from being in a car for hours at a time. <clears throat> yeah, I can see it. All right, an update on Helen Hart. Helen Hart said to be aware of her surroundings. She can't talk because she's hooked up to a respirator tube. She's aware of what she's gone through, but has no recollection of it, but knows because she's been told. Doctor's prognosis for her is not good because her liver has largely given out. And the feeling is it would likely lead to multiple organ failure. <clears throat> she was given her last rites at one point, but it's hanging in there. When Brett left for the tour, he gave word that if she took a turn for the worse, he could leave the tour early. And she died on November 4th. Yeah. And we've talked about this before. Um, Brett basically blames Bin Laden and, not, and all that. And then, you know, for the, on the resulting 9-11 security protocols, basically she and Stu were not really prepared for the changes and I forget it, it was like she needed her insulin it was somewhere Stu was confused and with all the security changes and stuff she ended up not getting the insulin and uh, everything just kind of declined from there yeah sad yeah. <clears throat> alright um, let's go to the UK now Russell Express yes a much lighter note Apparently, Jody Fleisch and Johnny Storm stole the show the revamped Russell Express car on October 20th in Dagenham, Essex. In the TLC match, Fleisch did a moonsault off the arena wall. He's done that one in Japan. A springboard shooting star to the outside, ditto, and a springboard punch off the ladder. Steve Carino worked the show as NWA World Champion, pinned Sandman, and then angle where Earthquake John Tenta challenged him to a title match. Dynamite Kid, who was advertised as being there, didn't appear. The British heavyweight title match was disappointed as the tournament came down to Robbie Brooks signing Doug Williams. 
We'll be in the King of Indies tournament this coming weekend in Vallejo, California, which ended in no contest. Vallejo, Chris? That's what it's called. Vallejo? No, it's Viejo. Isn't it? Whatever. Okay. I might be wrong. <coughs> now that I think about it. Because <coughs> it's V-A. Vallejo. But it's two, double... I think it's an A-A. I don't think it's double L's. It's a Spanish name. I've always said Vallejo, so... All right, anyway... Brian Alvarez is, has his version of the Wrestle Express show here. The much maligned Wrestle Express show took place on October 20th in Dagenham, Essex. This was a show that doesn't move 100 miles from Coventry at the last minute. Yes, it was originally scheduled to be in a fairly large building, the Coventry Sky Dome. <clears throat> Skull Murphy won an eight-man elimination match. Steve Carino cut a promo and said he wasn't going to retire after all, just not wrestling in the United States anymore. Doug Williams beat Kerry Cabrero in a tournament match for the British Heavyweight title. Paul Travell, Zach... Xavier and Raj Gosh defeated Mark Sloan, James Teague, and Andy Simmons in a six guys with weird names match. <clears throat> Robbie Brookside beat Guy Thunder in a tournament match. Guy Thunder. <laughs> Guy Thunder, yeah. <clears throat> Drew McDonald beat Horace Hogan. John Tenta wrestling as Earthquake and Justin Starr defeated Klondike, Kate, and Flash Barker. Excuse me? That's what it says. <laughs> Tiger Steel beat Murphy by DQ Alex Shane over Scott Parker in a false good anywhere match Sneaker in over Sandman in a hardcore match to retain the NBA title which Alvarez notes Pinky George is rolling over in his grave <laughs> an NBA champion from like the 30s Jody Flash beat Johnny Storm was described as an awesome TLC match the finals of the tournament should be rushed because the show had started approximately six days earlier. Saw women's go, women's Williams go to knock contest with Brookside. So Brian guesses there's no British heavyweight champion after all. Maybe this was the show Russo booked. So it'd be a good show overall. Diamond Kill supposed to be there, but no show. And what makes this whole situation so ridiculous is this is basically a teenager who tried to con everyone into thinking he was launching a new big startup promotion. Yeah. And doesn't he end up going to jail on for something? Yes. A lot of that going around in 2001. Yeah, there is. Yes, for more on Wrestle Express as well as uh, main event championship wrestling and uh, Super Fed and all that, listen to the MECW shows at uh, patreon.com slash between the sheets. It's nice to know that Fast and the Furious is taking place right there in, in the background, Biggs. Sure. <laughs> Some car was hauling ass just then. Well, you know how it is. All right, let's go to Mexico now. No triple A. We have to start with CMLL. It appears Paco Alonso made his choice in the feud between Rayo Lisco Jr. and Io de Rayo. It was one of those sage decisions only a wrestling promoter in the 21st century would make. Rayo Jr. is back. His infinitely more talented son is on ice. Okay, so we've talked about this before. But this... you, not son, Dave. Well, build as this is on. <clears throat> yes. But basically what happened is Rai Tito got really over really quickly, and Uncle Rayo got very jealous, and basically decided to cut off the rights to the gimmick and at least for a while, block him from getting booked by uh, the CMLO office. Mm-hmm. Now he just come back 
first is Ombre Sin Nombre, and then it's Rayman. Which, I mean, Rayman actually was the name he had been using before. Yeah. But he just was never able to get that level of a star again, which is a shame, because, like, he... You know, I mean, he was being set up as Santo's new tag team partner. Yeah, in a way. I mean, that was, they started teaming him and Santo up instead of Santo and Negro Casas as Santo's tag team. And the magazines were saying, oh, they're so great. They're, you know, the new uh, Preha Atomica, you know, like Santo Sr. and Gory Guerrero. And unfortunately, Uncle Rayo got very jealous of all this, and that was about it. I mean, I mean, is there a bigger case of, of just straight-up politics getting in the way of someone who otherwise was going to be a star? Anywhere in wrestling. <clears throat> well, this is one of the biggest ones. Because, like, he's there. He's on the trajectory. He is being booked as a top guy very quickly. Yeah. He's being booked as Santos' tag team partner against Ultimo Guerrero and Ray Bucanero. And then he's gone, and... Like, it's not like they tried to obscure that Ombre and Ombre or Rayman, like, they didn't try to pretend he was a different guy. Like, they were clear it was the same guy, but I don't know if it's the gimmick. I don't know if it's just that his momentum got stopped and he couldn't get it back, but it just he's never able to get where he was again. No. <clears throat> Which was a shame, because the dude had so much talent. He's still worse today. Yeah. He's basically been stuck in Guadalajara. Uh, the wrestling scene there for the past decade and a half is where he stayed. Who was it that you compared his style to? Was it Andrade? For people who <clears> haven't <throat> seen him? Um, yeah, Voldor Jr. ish. Yeah, he was he was right there with those what those guys were becoming, what they would become. Yes. All right, Black Warrior beat Negro Casas in a main event at Reno Mexico on October 19th to win the Leandro de Plata tournament. Casas should have been a Tecnico, but worked as a Rudo says Warrior is turning, and Warrior apparently got a Tecnico reaction when he won. All right, uh, results. Neutron, Jimmy, 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 Neutron. <coughs> Olympus and Volodo Jr. Defeating Nimigo Publico, Rammstein, and Sangre Azteca. That's an awesome trio. Arcana de la Muerte, Mr. Mexico and Virus over Allen Stone, Cristone, and Tony Rivera. Damn shame we didn't get these matches on tape. Emilio Chavez Jr. for Guerrero and Scorpio Jr. On, over Black Tiger, Felino, and Olimpico. <clears throat> Atlantis, Yodelis Mark and Mr. Niebla over Dr. Banner Jr., Satanico, and Shulker by disqualification. And Warrior over Casas in the main event. Okay, Chris, Lucha Wiki, and I would assume this is accurate since it would be, you know, some variation of Cubs fan, Bahari. Jose Fernandez at one point, etc., putting this together. Everything about Rayman says that he is Ryo Jr.'s son. Well, he's always... <clears throat> well, I'm all, we've always called him his nephew. So I don't know I, where that came from. I know, from. I remember, like, at the time, the joke was Uncle Ryo. Yeah, so... <clears throat> I, yeah. I, may, I may message some of those guys to ask, like, when this came out, that he actually is his son. Well, whatever. <clears throat> Well, I think there was another guy who eventually was his son that did some type of guy. I can't remember. Nope. I mean, the the way the family tree has it laid out, the only other third-gen Ryo, um, <clears throat> Ryo family member is Sauruman, who's one of Tony Sugar's grandkids. 
and the son of a non-wrestler uh, family member. Hmm. Well. Well, and and Star Black may be a grandson, but it's only a rumor. Well, I guess it's possible, I guess. Yeah, I that know. is so much more cold if it was a son. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the way, way it looks, I guess it has, I guess that may be right. Wow. That's a kind of a revelation in a way, because it was always talked about and he was his nephew. So, huh. Now, back to, I mean, maybe we'll get through more of the results, but just great promotion at the time, though, regardless. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Uh, Arena Pueblo on the 22nd. We have Fuerza Chicana, Siki Asama of Carisma and Mercy Lago, Alan Stone, Cristone, and Tigre Rojo over Bobby Jacques, Manyakap and Tarahamara, Averno, Loco Master Satanico and Virus over Felino, Safari, the Tiger, and Tony Rivera. In our main event, Atlantis, Io de Santo, and L.A. Park over Ribeganero, Tarzan Boy, Nutumo Guerrero. This is very early in the L.A. Park name, right? Yeah, and this is a deal where these are the type of shows that he could work because they weren't televised. Yes. Pueblo would eventually get TV, but not for years. Uh, yeah. And also uh, noticed from watching some of that combat TV stuff on Plex, uh, Maniac Cop, still around in IWRG, still got the mask. Yeah, he's still around. That was nice to see. Always had one of the cooler masks in Lucha. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, as we proceed here, Arena Coliseo on the 23rd. Heke and Mandabla over Sambra de Pata and Zeta. Mano Negro Jr. and Volodo Jr. over Nimigo Publico and Rammstein. Psychodelico Jr. and Starman teamed up with Tigre Blanco to defeat Acarajal de la Muerte, Mugger, and Mr. Mexico. Atlantis, Mr. Niebla, Negro Casas of Lupanta, Rip Cunero, and Ultimo Guerrero in a Tonio de Trio semifinal match. Delta Banner Jr., Mila Chavez Jr., Scorpio Jr., defeat Apollo Nates, Fuzzle Guerrero, and Shocker in another semifinal. And in the finals, Atlantis, Niebla, and Casas over Wagner, Emilio, and Scorpio Jr. They ran a lot of these tornadoes, um, Coliseo shows in, in this era. Tornado de Tercias, Tornado de Parejas. They did that a lot. Just 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 to do random shit. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, since they lost the rights to the Infernalis name, Tarzan Boy, Mascara Magica, Ribeconero, and Ultimo Guerrero are now called Los Guerreros del Infierno. Or as Dave guesses, the Fire Warriors. No, the Inferno Warriors. <laughs> yes. Don't tell Dave that. <clears throat> the October 23rd Galavision show aired the Black Warrior Black Tiger match, which is very good. But they did this campy deal of the early 90s, WWF, where Warrior was in a vignette with these two voices on each side of his head the angel and the evil. One told him he should turn Tenniko, and the other one told him he should stay Rudo. Dave, how dare you? <laughs> well, it's a week later is when we get Dr. Badner Jr. and the cat. But also, CMLL has been doing this type of skit for over a decade. <clears throat> well, yes. But th they're really cranking out the vignettes in this era, though. It's, I mean, there's a lot of great ones in this time period. Uh, yes, absolutely. Oh, we get the Halloween one right after this, too. Yeah, Halloween's the next week. Yeah. Well, which is more than one vignette. It's a bunch of vignettes. <clears throat> yeah. Like yeah. Uh, Suki being chased around by Ghostface from Scream. I mean, we covered that. We covered that week. Yes. So, so yeah. 
IWRG. They ran uh, the 18th TV in Macapon as Blue Panther, Herodas, and Toro Iderson defeated Dandy, Felino, and Rambo. And then Tenebulous Jr. <clears throat> beat Scorpio Jr. by disqualification in IWRG Intercontinental Heavyweight Title match. Scorpio retained his title. I forgot that they had the titles not changing on DQs here. Also, I have no memory of Arotes being in IWRG around this time. Yeah. Then the Sunday show, which is the house show, we had Black Dragon, Rumbo, and Ultima Vampiro over Caronia and the Defuntos. And then Terador, Herodas, and Nico Navarro over Nivianos, 3, 4, and 5. <clears throat> Don't you just love how they had their own Undertaker? Yes. Monterrey on the 21st in Arena Colosseo Monterrey. We have La Bruja and La Tigresa over La Intrusa and La Justiciera. <clears throat> Esfinge and Raiden over Bengali and Katz. Macabre, Orlando Santa Cruz, and Vaquero Roma went to WQ with Poder Barriqua, Pineno, and Violencia. Poder Barriqua, of course, being Rush's father. Blue Panther, Deluvio Negro, and Dadabana Jr. over Blood Tiger, Brazo de Plata, and Io de Desmarc. In the main event, Io de Santo over Shocker in, your, in a singles match. Uh, two things. One, how dare you not refer to Bestia del Ring by his proper name? Well, he's Rush's father. That's enough for me. Yes. And uh, Io del Santo versus Shocker was an absolutely excellent match. Well, of course. I mean, Shocker's on top of his game in 2001 and Santo Santo. I mean, Shocker's arguably the best wrestler in the world at this point. He's definitely one of them, yes. Is is this the point where he won or topped the Death Valley Driver 500? Yes, it was November 2001. And he deserved it. That was a controversial pick at the time. It shouldn't have been. Oh, that wasn't the most controversial pick on that list. No, it was Loki at number uh, seven. Yeah. Which I only remember the specific placement because then Phil Schneider did his best of Loki lucky number seven uh, compilation. Because yeah, he was ranked over Muda, which blew some people's minds. Yeah, I, I am curious to – let's see. Okay, no, I have to do it on way back. Yeah, because the McAfee thing that Verizon uses is still uh, getting alarm bells set off when I go to try going to Death Valley <coughs> on my home network. The Panther, who just a few months ago announced his retirement after losing his mask because he wanted to spend more time with his family, returned on October 23rd. Oh, well. Tijuana, they had a huge show in Tijuana October 19th, which ended with a big angle as La Parca turned Rudo Neo de Santo. And it's been phenomenal for 5,000 fans. Disappointment as they were expecting a sellout with such a loaded card as Parca and Santo were teaming with Blue Demon Jr. and Brazo de Plata against Ultima Guerrero, Arriba Ganero, Tarzan Boy, Neo de Diablo. <clears throat> Before the match, La Familia de Tijuana, Alamin, Damian, Cesar and Rey Mysterio Sr., we were to talk Rudos, although Technicos on this show, as I say, Technicos when they face teams from other parts of Mexico as the locals, asked Parker to join the team. Parker said he loved to, said they hated Damian, and only joined they kicked him out of the group. It was left at that. During the match, Parker turned on Santo and ripped up his mask. Fans went crazy for the turn, with Parker being showered everything. Particularly when Diablo, Santo's big northern Mexico rival, helped Parker destroy Santo. Santo challenged both Diablo to a Dodo y Wotoy title match and also challenged Parker to a mass match, which Parker accepted, although no date was announced. Then in the main event, it was a strange two-fall match with the Tijuana Trio against La Familia de Mexicali, which is the closest major city, something like a New York versus Boston or Philadelphia type rivalry. 
First fall was a Caballero match where the Tijuana guys won. Then it had an X-Style trio title match, which Mexicali guys won. And then uh, the Tijuana guys won the third fall. Parker came out after the match and said that he was joining Tijuana and said nothing about Damian and went to shake everyone's hand. When he went to shake Damian's hand, Damian refused to shake. Ray Mysterio Jr., who didn't work the card, showed up and said if Damian needed a partner to fight against the Tijuana team, he'd be there for him. Damian then challenged Parker to a Caballero Contra Mascara match. So the October 26th show will be headlined by Parker, Rey Mysterio Sr. Halloween as the new Familia Tijuana against Rey Mysterio Jr., Damian, and Vampiro, plus the Santo Diablo title match. Okay, two, so... Two, 2001 Tijuana was so fucking great. Hot oh, it, yes. we were, Well, it was multiple promotions. Well, yes. I mean... We were getting all, all these tapes, all these handhelds. Alfredo was selling them. I mean, there's just so much great shit in Tijuana 2001. Well, and then the Mara stuff also ends up coming out on first on TV and on DVD, too. You know, there's the Fox Sports show that airs a few years later, and then also some of that stuff came out on DVD. But, I yeah. mean, is this the last, like, big Tijuana glory period, would you say? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Crash and other promotions have done strong business in recent years. Yeah, but it's... this is, yeah, the last of the Tijuana, as Tijuana type shows. Yes. As a scene, yes. Yeah, that Familia Mexicana, Familia de Tijuana feud was hot, red hot. Yes. And those guys, I mean, they didn't work anywhere but in this in this region. So, I mean, that's the only way you saw those guys. And but man, that, I mean, that feud was hot. So I just checked. November 2001 is Loki at number seven. It is not Choker at number one. That's the May 2002 Seth Driver. That's right. That's right. So to compare your top tens, November is – so counting down from ten to one. Choker, Silver King, Minoru Tanaka, Loki, Toshiaki Kawada, Liho Del Santo – the Bionic Redneck, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Yuji Nagata, Blue Panther, number one, Jushin Thunder Liger, which that was controversial at the time. If just because I remember the Dave Meltzer, this is 2001, not 1991 comment. Yeah. Now, May 2002 was going down from 10. Actually, I'll count down from 15 because it includes some people who were on the top 10 of November. So going down from 15 to 1. Tanro Ganishiro, Nicho El Mion Dario, uh, Sama Nishimura, Loki, Ghetto, and now for the top 10, Yuji Nagata, Tatsuhito Takiwa, American Dragon, Satoshi Kojima, Blue Panther, Jushin Thunder Liger, Shinya Hashimoto, Elio Dos Santo, Eddie Guerrero, and Shulker. Yeah, so, there you go. All right, Tijuana newspaper La Frontera ran a story about a meeting held with the Tijuana Commission. Wrestling promoter Benjamin Mora and WBC boxing champion Eric Morales over statements both have made about head commissioner Roberto Magaña and local newspaper stories. Morales claimed that Magaña made decisions that benefit certain people. Mora claimed that he faced reprisals from Miguel Contreras, who runs the auditorio, because he didn't rent the sound system from him from his last show. Morris said this was the most dishonest commission he's worked with in his 22 years of promoting Tijuana. The story claimed that Mora had been promoting wrestling in Mexico for 38 years. Wait, 22 or 38? In Tijuana. Okay. 
he, he promoted the largest uh, ever uh, tutorial when he put 7,300 fans in the building. If you ever been in that building, that number sounds frightening for a 1985 match where Ildo Santo beat Tornado Negro in a Mascara Contra Mascara match. The story noted that the rent for wrestling in Tijuana is 350 bucks. Hmm. Not surprised to hearing about the uh, shady commission, especially Metzka. Yeah. So okay, so if the auditorium is three fifty, I wonder how much less uh, the palenque is. <laughs> Rent for <a> sandwich. <clears throat> All right, let's go to Puerto Rico. Shinemakabe, New Japan will be starting here next month as Vito Quinones and New Japan opened up a business contact when Quinones was in Japan for the October eighth Tokyo Dome show. Quinones is this week sending one of his prelim wrestlers, Eric Alexander, to Dorfell and Junior promotion in Ocala, Florida. Ah, uh, yes, Dragon Makabe. Yeah, where he basically got lost. <laughs> yeah. The New Japan people were so pissed because, uh, I mean, he just, he was a guy that was looked at as somebody who's going to be, you know, a possible main event guy as a heavyweight. And then he just goes for Puerto Rico and he comes back and they try to do stuff with him, but it's not until he becomes Togi Makabe is when he really picks up the steam again. And starts doing the Brody stuff. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he becomes a bigger celebrity outside of wrestling. So there's yeah. that too. And this is an old style excursion <clears throat> because he's been wrestling for almost five years at this point. Yeah. You know, people for people forget how there were some eras there where those young lions would be young lions for like five years. Oh, absolutely, yes. All right, double double C. They ran Caguas on October 20th for La Cancha, Hector Zolabazares. We have La Tigresa, J-Love, and G-Love. Over Six and Marie, Rufero, Alejandro, and El Embonano. El Catero over Tahitian Warrior. Carlos Colon over Bad Boy Bradley. Jeff Bradley. Dudley Dudley. Puerto Rican heavyweight title, Invader Numero Uno, retained over El Nene by disqualification. Mr. Ratings, Ray Gonzalez of 80 Cologne by referee stoppage. Dow Jones and NASDAQ, love that. With dollar signs for the S's. Over Mustafa Saeed and Jodon Smith. That's a match with wrestlers in it, in theory. And then we'll continue a match for the junior weight title. Three-way as Justin Sane hmm. defeated Barabas Jr. and El Raquero. And the main event for the WC World Tag Team Titles. Thunder and Lightning retain their titles, going to a no contest with Bronco Numero Uno and Super Gladiador, the Kane brothers. <laughs> Thunder and Lightning. Well, Blue, I mean, they they predated Blue Kane, Blue Kane by twenty years. <laughs> yes. Although, like, I remembered them keeping the Blue Kane outfits longer than they did, because I know I've seen the pictures. I cannot find them online anymore because you cannot find any photos of the actual Blue Kane outfits anymore. But they did transition into something more distinct pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, when they started, they were basically just blue cane. Exactly. And Justin Sane is Canadian, right? Yeah, I think so. I don't remember if he ever did anything of note outside of Puerto Rico, though. <laughs> All right. Well, oh, no, excuse me. This is a different. This is a different Justin Sane. Okay. Trash. Never mind. Well, this is the uh, in the first segment. As uh, we're going to have time. Well, first seven, first half. Yeah. As we're going to have time, so there's some great 2001 commercials. We'll hit the halftime segment where we'll talk about Patreon. We'll hit the plus. And then we'll come back 
and we'll go back to the U.S. As we go to the indie scene, we'll have uh, news on the XWF. We got news on AOL Time Warner, Mikey Whipwreck's retirement show. We got MECW news, update on Jeff Jarrett's contract status, in demands involvement in wrestling, and a whole lot more after the break. Hi, it's Pam. Watch me on Baywatch on the new TNN. Danny Morrison accused his stepfather of a horrible crime. He killed the guy. I saw him do it. But his real father is the only one who believes him. Do you want me to ignore the fact that my son is living with a killer? Do you think I'm going to endanger my own child? John Travolta. I have never failed Danny ever. And I'm not going to fail him now. Vince Vaughn. You're a little liar, aren't you, Danny? My son isn't your problem. I am. Domestic disturbance. Rated PG-13. November 2nd everywhere. Never once have you uttered the words cars. Can't live with them, can't live without them. Or have you referred to your car as the old ball and chain? Your car never nags, never gives you the cold shoulder. It thinks that spare tire of yours is a good thing. Isn't it time you return the favor? You used all your quarters up in a payphone, didn't you? Next time, dial down the center. 1-800-C-A-L-L-A-T-T. It's free for you and cheap for them. By the way, this one's hot. Save big oh, bucks on every call. Just dial 1-800-CALL-ATT for collect calls. This fall, get ready for parenthood, Bernie Mac style. Go to the hall closet, give me some toilet tissue. I can't reach it. The Bernie Mac Show. Stay in the kitchen. Series premiere, Fox November. True Philly, and I'm watching the National Network, the new TNN. The attitude, the excitement, nothing beats the experience of the WWF Live. Tomorrow night, it's live action at the Civic Auditorium in Omaha. Saturday, we come to the Prairie Capital Center. Sunday, we head to Robert Stadium. One week from tonight, the Freedom Hall hosts WWF Raw. And one week from tomorrow, we rock the First Star Center. There's nothing like the WWF Live. The time has come to witness the power of one. Freeze! From the director of Final Destination... November 2nd. There's only one place he could be going. One man bend reality to control the universe. There's never been anything like what I have become. Jet Li, the one. Rated PG-13. Open November 2nd. Boys, that is the sorriest first half I've ever seen. So here's what we're gonna do. First, we're gonna get changed. Change. Change. Then, we're gonna get on the bus. The bus! Then, we're gonna go home. We're gonna go home! We can play video games! Video games! Loss of competitive edge. Another unfortunate side effect of hunger. Grab a Snickers. Packed with peanuts, caramel, and chocolate. Later on, we're gonna take a nap! <laughs> Snickers, don't let hunger happen to you. Think you're a Rumble Robot Master? Think again! You gotta get the cards to get the power! Armor on, power up! Master your enemies with Rumble Armor! And master 
It's an event where memories are made and champions are born. And on March 17th, for the first time in over a decade, it returns to Skydome, WrestleMania. Tickets for WrestleMania go on sale Saturday, November 3rd at Skydome, Gate 7 at all Ontario Ticketmaster locations. Order online at WrestleMania.com or charge by phone. In the States, call 716-852-5000. In Canada, call 416-870-8000. Long distance charges may apply. All right, we're back. Let me show those great 2001 commercials. This is the fifth and a half time segment of the show. We'll be into about Patreon, patreon.com slash Tweeny Sheets, where we almost finished recording last week, but we are, we'll finish recording <clears throat> before the end of the month. <laughs> Some things have happened, but we will get the show definitely up before uh, the end of October. And as uh, part two of our look at the Todd is God series here, and uh, our two part series on the, the book. And we get into the whole mole situation. And boy, there's a lot going on there. <clears throat> Believe me. So uh, you definitely want to listen to this stuff as you learn a lot of stuff you've never learned before through Todd's book and stuff through the shoot interviews that uh, was going on at the time. Well, not the time, but now, during our time, current time. Um, so, yeah, you'll find out what the real story was. And it's a little bit different than the story that you've been hearing all these years. So you'll have access to that, and we'll be talking about uh, Todd's post-ECW stuff, working with Dennis Corluzzo with the quote-unquote ECW invasion of uh, his promotion in the New Jersey. So, uh, yeah, that should be something. So there's that, and all the Todd-Paul drama still going on as well. So ton of stuff on this show. You oh, you forgot something. It. We also have, in the part we didn't record yet, his side of uh, main event championship wrestling. Well, there's that too. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot on this show, as in the first show. So if you haven't listened yet, you need to listen to it. If you're a patron, you need to get on that. If you're not a patron, well, $5 a month gets you access to that. And all the other shows that we've done in our seven complete years of the Patreon. Now we're in year eight. And uh, we got a lot of shows coming up down the pipeline you definitely want to be a part of. So uh, get in now while you can. And if, if you want to do an annual, it's $50.40 a year. So you save 16% on that. That way you'll be ready to go. You don't have to worry about doing nothing for a full year. Patreon.com slash Sheets. Dollar month gives you access to the Discord and thanks in this segment. <clears throat> $25 allows you to pick a show for the week, like uh, Kevin did for this week. Uh, if you want to do that, have two shows in, in your mind. Um, the show that you may want us to do. could be something that we've already discussed. Kevin? Was it Brian Kevin Peterson? Peterson. Brian, Brian Peterson. Peterson. Yeah, you had Kevin Lyon on the brain because we just recorded this. Well, no, segment. we had Kevin Harrington. There was a lot of Kevins in the uh, the next segment. Yes, that we just recorded. <laughs> yeah. Kevin Sullivan was mentioned. There a lot of Kevins. Yeah, Brian Peterson. Sorry, Brian. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. Um, it's late for me. And Kevin Nash elsewhere on the show. I'm tired. But, um, so anyway, there's, uh, I'm completely lost where I was at. All right, so $25. To make a show for the week like Brian did. Yes. This week. Yeah, have two shows on your mind. Um, the one, like I said, the one you may want us to do could be something we've already done. And, uh, could be something that, uh, somebody else has a week on the calendar. And also let us know what event 
guests or events during that week in particular you were wanting to hear about because sometimes people have the dates off or the coverage is so minimal that we don't want to feel like you're not getting what you paid for or whatever. So, like, just make sure to include that as well. Yeah. And follow the protocol on the Patreon website to get that information to us. And we'll make sure to get your show on the air. And also remember, you got your uh, 30-day rules in effect. You get that in, 10-year rule, Wednesday, Tuesday on the timeline, all that stuff. $50, I just said, for a segment of the show if you choose, and 100 for the whole show if you choose. So patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Big Swift, this week is our new and or returning patrons. All right. We'd like to thank uh, Jamie Hama. Thanks, Jamie. Pat uh, Sigsworth, who signed up at, uh, I guess that's the $5 tier, Canadian seven fifty a month, and then edited it to an annual subscription. Who was that again? That would be Pat Sigsworth. Thanks, Pat. Then we got Rob Strothman. Thanks, Rob. Mr. Ulala, so West Coast Mr. Ulala of uh, Pow Pro. Thanks, West Coast Mr. Ulala. And Zachary Dunn edited uh, his membership to uh, fit to annual fifty forty a year for the five dollar tier. All right, thanks, Zachary. So we thank all you uh, new patrons, your old patrons, patrons that have left, come back. We thank all of you for your patronage at patreon.com slash between the sheets. Yes, and also remember, uh, we have anniversary billing, so no need to worry about, oh, do I need to wait till the first of the month or anything like that? And also remember, we do have Spotify integration, so you can listen to the Patreon show through Spotify if that is your preferred uh, podcast app. All right, well, what's going on in the world of our streaming friends, IWTV and Fight TV? All right, let's see. I realized I forgot to leave a VOD window open for IWTV, so I'm opening one now to see if we have any uh, additions of note as far as archival or non-live streamed shows. Um, there, Okay, there was a prestige show that I don't think live streamed, so I guess I'll go to that. I'm not really sure what the deal was there. They've had some production issues with the, on the live end before, so maybe it was just avoiding that. Um, so, uh, the show that went up, uh, uh, Decimate the Week from... Oh, it was a Thursday show in Portland. Okay. Thursday, October 12th. Okay, the, yeah, this definitely didn't live stream then. So, the show included... Uh, Liza Hall versus Mio Momono, Tom Lawler versus Alan Angels, Motor City Machine Guns versus Sinner and Saint, Judas Icarus and Travis Williams. I'm recording again. Um, I'll explain later. Or not. Uh, sorry. Sandra Moon taking on Takumi Aroha as part of her American trip where she did more than just West Coast Pro this time. Uh, plus, uh, the workhorsemen of J.D. Drake and Anthony Henry taking on C4, Guillermo Rosas, and Cody Chen. That and more on that show there. That's available on demand now. And now coming up on live streams, a bunch of stuff. Uh, as 
We start uh, Thursday, October 26th, 8 p.m. Eastern. Stan Styles Intergender Bonanza 17, Hollow Scream Havoc. I'm assuming, like most of the recent ones, this is from the H2O Wrestling Center, although this doesn't say. Uh, Marcus Mathers defending the Intergender Bonanza Championship against Sue Young. Uh, not much else in the way of names on this show. Oh, the uh, East Coast Mr. Ulala is on the show, though, against uh, Abs, the guy who wears the uh, Abs airbrushed shirt. So I guess it's not just intergender matches then. So that's that, if you are into that. Um, Wrestling Open, of course, is every Thursday at 8. This one, they have a title match they've already announced with Ishiban defending against TJ Crawford. Freelance has a show on Friday the 27th at 9 Eastern, including Storm Grayson defending their title against Effie. Uh, Brian Keith defending legacy title against August Matthews of the former Bang Bros. Uh, Shane Mercer defending the Underground Championship against Ali Catch in a match that definitely has wrestlers <coughs> in it. Uh, Shaz McKenzie versus Jaya Brookside. Jordan Oliver in action against Coda Hernandez and more. So, as usual, freelance. Interesting mix between the outside names and the homegrowns. And then we move on to Limitless as one of their shows in Maine, Fresh Blood 23, on Saturday at 7.30 Eastern. Uh, Alec Price defending the IWTV world title against Jay Malachi. Devisman Cole against Ortiz. It, uh, now that he's a singles, I'm, I really don't like just calling him Ortiz. Why can't he be Angel Ortiz again? Is it because he doesn't, he doesn't want to do the same thing as Mike Santana? Who knows? Uh, Warhorse in action and more. So that's limitless. Of course, we've got H2O shows, because why wouldn't we? They got Bound by Blood Saturday at 8 Eastern uh, for a show headlined by Neil Diamond Cutter versus Declan Grant. Also includes Ron Bass Jr. versus Matt Tremont and much more, mainly, you know, the homegrown uh, H2O folks. They've got another show. Tremont's Deathmatch Tournament on Sunday at uh, 8 Eastern. With the uh, first round is all four-way matches. And uh, not really any big names. Again, mainly, you know, the locals. So that's... Oh, Tim Donst is in it, though. Returning to Deathmatch, I think. Maybe the first time since that one tournament of death he was in that uh, Vice did the web, like, mini-documentary about. So that's interesting. So that's that as far as live streams this week. If you want to check any of that out, if you're not already an IWTV subscriber, go to independentwrestling.tv, use code BTSPOD, and we will get a referral fee for each month you stay a paid subscriber. So that's independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. Now, meanwhile, on Fight TV, uh, on Fight Plus, uh, let's see, there's a Newcastle Pro Wrestling show coming on... Saturday at 8 a.m. Excuse me, 6 a.m. Wait. Okay, I don't have the VPN on, so wait a second. Why would... So wait, that would even be like 11 a.m. local time. Oh, wait, Newcastle's Australia, not just England, right? It has Probably. To be. No, I think it has to be if it's in that time slot. Uh, no matches listed, but 
always find it interesting that they have that kind of variety on there. IWS has a show Saturday at 8, East, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you know, get mainly just the uh, Montreal locals, but they've got some good talent there that hasn't necessarily gotten much exposure until recently. Plus some of the the old names from uh, IWS, like Green Phantom, and I think Sexy Eddie is in there, too. Uh, and then I think, is that it for Fight Plus? Oh, of course, you know, there's the Southern States Wrestling Power Half Hour, of course, which premieres on Sunday at 5 Eastern from our dear friend Bo James. Uh, oh, AIW, our dear friends of the Cleveland Territory, of Wrestle Rager 7, Sunday at 7.30 Eastern. And that includes, as I scroll down, Team Fonzie of Bill Alfonso, Joshua Bishop, Marino Tanaglia, Mikey Montgomery, and Philly Collins against Team Duke of Chuck Stone, Elijah Dean, Eric Taylor, the Duke, and Zach Nystrom. Dan Champion against Kaplan in a uh, hoss fight of sorts. Filthy Tom Lawler versus CPA. Our dear friend, uh, the Bone Collector, Dominic Carini, and Shaw Mason against Cisco Silver and Tyson Riggs. Uh, what else do we have here? I'm not going to mention everything. Ziggy Haim against Katie Arquette. Jocelyn Navarro against Dr. Dan and more. So that's AIW, which, you know, I've, it's not a surprise with the way their fan base is, is, but I do find it interesting that they've largely been able to draw the same, switching to much more of a student promotion. Yeah. Chris? I guess. I guess. <laughs> Jeez, even with the Cleveland Territory, you don't got anything to say? <laughs> Not really. Well, anyway, that's it as far as that. And then, of course, uh, as far as the iPay-per-view, well, as far as that being Fight Plus, iPay-per-view-wise, on Fight, there's Fight Fighting Spirit Unleashed from New Japan, from Vegas on Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern, which includes... And, of course, they don't have the match list here. <laughs> Great. <sighs> See, I was, I was get, I was getting hopeful because the other ones did, so I didn't bother to open it for this one. Give me one second. I don't understand why these aren't on New Japan World though. But all right, Fighting Spirit Unleashed 2023. Okay, thank you, Wikipedia. All right, show includes okay, main event: Tamatanga defending the Never Openweight Title against Shingo Takagi. Uh, four-way match to determine the number one contender for for Eddie Kingston Strong Openweight Title. With Satoshi Kojima, Fred Rosser, Jeff Cobb, and Alex Coughlin. Uh, Hikaleo and Phantasmo against Alex Zane and Lance Archer. Well, that is a match with wrestlers in it. Uh, Sonata and Yuyu Imura against Tetsuya Naito and Hiromu Takahashi. Oh yeah, Eddie Kingston versus Hanare. Uh, Julia defending the strong women's title against Hyen. Uh How's this for a match, Chris? Hiroshi Tanahashi, Mystico, Atlantis, and Atlantis Jr. against Rocky Romero, Tiger Mask 4, Soberano Jr., and Adrian Quest. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of people in there uh, that's been around a while, and some young guys. Tom Lawler against Gabriel Kidd, uh, women's tag, mixing uh, Luchadora, and, uh, well, actually, I guess Stephanie Backer kind of qualifies as Luchadora. It's, uh, Yuvia and Johnny Robbie, who's been training at the dojo and is really good against Zeusis and Stephanie Vacker and more. So pretty fun looking show there. $20 eye pay-per-view. And 
you want to sign up for Fight Plus or buy an iPay-Per-View, go to tinyurl.com slash btsfight, that's B-T-S-F-I-T-E, and we'll get a referral from whatever you buy when you go to Fight TV. So that's tinyurl.com slash B-T-S-F-I-T-E. <clears throat> Today's episode Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. If you use incognito mode, your search provider is storing your browsing data and many times even selling it. The Private Internet Access can help. Private Internet Access occurs for us, your internet traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you can get understated access geoblock content from around the world. Private Internet Access comes to use apps, browser sensors for all devices, <clears throat> a rock-slide privacy policy, open source security, advanced customization settings, and was just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mag. <clears throat> and if you sign up on Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of especially the only four Between the Sheets listeners. We have three different options we offer you guys. We got a regular monthly option, eleven ninety five a month. A yearly option, which gets you down to three dollars thirty three cents a month for thirty nine ninety five a year. Or the best deal we have is a three years plus four months, dollar ninety eight a month, seventy nine dollars for your first three years. Usually thereafter, eighty three percent off. Best deal in the game. Why is that? Because it's so much more expensive than virtually every other VPN in the market. If you get it right now and take advantage of private internet access 30-day risk-free challenge, try it out for 30 days, see if you like it. If not, just turn for full refund. Well, how do you get that, you ask? Well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash twin sheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. <clears throat> All right, next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 1984. It's been a while, but we got uh, quite the show on uh, this one next week. As we will talk about uh, the Cotton Bowl, world class at the Cotton Bowl. Big show there. Chris Adams finally cements his status as the lead heel in world class. So we'll have uh, clips of that. We'll have Sunshine's return after being gone for a while and her makeover and her return in the helicopter. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about uh, other uh, things going on in the card as well. And world class in general at the time, as they are a different promotion than what they had been just months earlier. We have some big shows in Japan to talk about, featuring the Freebirds and all Japan. We got uh, interesting matches with uh, the foreigners in New Japan to talk about. U- UWF Japan had a show going on. We got some Montreal and Vancouver to talk about. Got some interesting looking stuff in Mexico. Dave Meltzer watches uh, some Pro in USA and gives his thoughts. We'll have that. J.J. Dillon trains for Starcade at Ricky Steamboat's gym. Jimmy Hart makes his debut on TBS. We got Jesse Barr turning on Dory Funton Jr. in Florida. Rick Rude and King Kong Bundy have uh, fallen out in Memphis. We got a Mid-South TV just loaded with, with angles, including the return of one Ted DiBiase. Um... We got those uh, wrestling war in St. Louis and Kansas City during our week. We got uh, an update on Southwest Wrestling. Vern McGanya and the AWA. You got to listen to the show for, to get that. Uh, and in World Wrestling Federation, we got Hulk Hogan, who's battling a knee injury, which would be a story for a while there. And uh, Tonga Kid and Ronnie Piper have a match on television. And on Piper's Pit, Roddy Piper and Greg Valentine buried the hatchet. All that and more next week on Between the Sheets with our guest, the infamous Robert O'Connor, making his return. So it should be a fun, fun show. Lots of clips. 80s shows are always great. 
So uh should be uh, good times next week on Between the Sheets. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R, show proper and PT Sheets by Big Set David Bix. And not a whole lot going on this week, Bix. It's pretty kind of, kind of slow week. Coming off the, the uh, Tuesday night wrestling war. Yeah, I mean, is there really anything to talk about? At least no. this recording? like Not really. I mean, there, I guess there's Mystico helping AEW draw, but I don't know if there's that much to talk about there. I mean, we'll see what happens. I mean, I'm Salvador Luderoff was there too, which is a, a story. So uh, we'll see what happens and what that means for uh, really what that means for the Mexican in uh, AEW that used to be with AAA. That's not with AAA no more. I mean, the only one in AEW at this point who's theoretically like signed to AAA would be Vikingo, right? But he's also not signed to AEW <clears throat> as far as we is it. Yeah, but you know, Commander and those guys, those types of Commander, guys. Commander, Lucha Bros. Yeah, so we'll see what happens, but it could be a deal, a, a, a deal down the line for sure to watch out for. For us, uh, CMLL guys going to AEW and or Ring of Honor. So uh, there's a lot there. And of course, Danielson, you know, who barely tweets ever, was over the moon about you know Rocky Romero Mystico <clears> being announced. You know, quote tweeting and be like, oh, you know what this means? Because now he thinks he can actually get his Blue Panther match that he wants. But it may not happen in Rio Mexico, though. So that's the thing. I've seen already speculation it could be at Ring of, the Ring of Honor show in December in Texas. So oh, that's happening in Texas? I thought the rumor Garland, was going to be at the Hammerstein. Garland, Texas. Have they announced it yet? Supposedly. Let me see. I didn't think they did. Wait. Because I saw people giving Dave shit for having the Ring of Honor, the favorite in the wrong city. <laughs> okay, yeah, they did announce it. Curtis Col- Colwell Center. <laughs> yeah. What did Dave say? Did he say New York or did he say a different Yeah, he was talking about going to the Hammerstein. It was talking about how, how much tickets and stuff like that. It was about, something about some tickets. And then the Observer last week. Who was it? Andrew Zarian that had said it was going to be the Hammerstein? Yeah, I guess somebody uh, got some false information, but. So there's that. Yeah, I mean, is there really anything else to talk about this week? I mean, no, not really. So this show's big enough as it is. So I think we're okay to have a week where we don't have a whole lot going on here. So uh, on that note, let's get back to the rest of the show. All right. Well, since this is 2001, this section is not just an indie section. Basically, just other America. As there's all kinds of other stuff going on. Well, I, I always label it as other USA in the uh, description anyway, but at this point in particular, yes, it's a mix of indies and startups and other assorted uh, business. Non WWF, basically. <laughs> yes, non WWF US. All right, so let's start with the XWF. XWF has been very quiet, as, as, has been very quiet, as very. What is Dave writing here? <laughs> Dave says this now. XWF has been very quiet as very making as ma- any public statements. What? About no, Bret as Hulk- very as making. I know. It's so stupid. About Bret Hart and Hulk Hogan. Both names have been thrown around by those in the company as far as talks with wrestlers to get them to come in as being the top names in the promotion. Bret hasn't made a commitment one way or another and don't know when his status is right now of, of Hogan. 
While most agreed for a startup as far as getting sponsors and business contacts with older decision makers, his name value would be very strong, but long-term, a lot of the wrestlers are afraid he'll turn into a personal vehicle for him, as all of his projects end up being, which would be a long-run disaster. The key decision makers, Jimmy Hart, Brian Knobs, and Kevin Sullivan, are longtime Hogan political allies. They've also been talking to Ric Flair and telling him they're willing to buy him out of his contract, and the idea of another Hogan Flair program has been discussed. Now let's go to the torch. Jimmy Hart has been meeting with wrestlers and potential office staff while organizing the startup XWF. Jimmy, Greg Hammer Valentine, and Brian Noms are the biggest wrestling personalities involved in the project. As previously reported, Valentine and Noms are responsible for finding the group's financial backers, while Jimmy is taking control of the day-to-day operations. The group is working on an office in or near Tampa, Florida. Janie Engle, who is Eric Bischoff's longtime secretary in WCW, is among the company's only employees. Plumbers reports state that former WCW employees Rob Garner and Jay Hosman met with XWF officials. Although towards sources, it says that only informal phone conversations have taken place between the parties. The fact that the group would consider hiring Garner and Hosman seemed to indicate they had pay-per-view aspirations. As pay-per-view was Garner and Hosman's area, especially they were working for WCW. That said, one source reports that the group has yet to finalize its business plan, so the entire concept is still in the infancy stage. Meanwhile, little is known about the person or persons financing the project other than Jimmy Hart and others who said they met with the funder or funders in Las Vegas earlier this month. Oh, the Universal Studios has agreed to host XWF events at its Florida theme park. Sources say the company is not invested in the project. As of last update, XWF officials have been offering one-date contracts for a planned November TV taping. Jay Hosman, huh? Hmm. I'm sure all of those so- dealings were honest and above board. <laughs> I'm blanking on this. So who was the backer or backers of the XWF? Here? I don't remember. Because, I mean, it was just one of those deals where you you heard about it, you heard about it, you heard about it. And then it's just right, Kevin Harrington. Who? Is, oh, it uh, was the, Ke- it was Kevin Harrington from the first two seasons of Shark Tank? Yeah, Kevin Harrington, yep. Oh, okay. The as seen on TV uh, maven. Yes. Yep. I I completely forgot that he was the one behind this. Which also yeah, makes it, sense because Chris, what did they do to try to salvage the XWF at turn it once they stopped running shows? Yep, running infomercials to sell DVDs and stuff. He Kevin Harrington came with the plan himself. Yeah, he to the to Jimmy Hart, Hulk Hogan, and Nancy Boys Great Valentine. Saying, why don't we replace, why don't we create our own WCW? I mean, he's someone with real money and all that, so why not? I think if Hogan doesn't go to to WWF in, in January 2002, I think the XWF may, may have had a chance to do something. But once Hogan goes... And uh, Kurt Hanning, that's it. It's done. Um, I know it was Walter Frank. Kevin Harrington hooked them up with Walter Frank. Okay, from what I'm reading, it says Kevin Harrington came up with the idea. Yeah, Wikipedia says it was his idea, but I'm reading an interview Brian Nobbs gave, and he said it was uh, 
Okay, started out with me, Greg Valentine. We even had Macho Man involved at the start. There was a guy by the name of Kevin Harrington who was a very intelligent man who had connections. Kevin Harrington ended up hooking us up with Walter Frank, who was very interested in investing in a wrestling company. We then created the name XWF. And yet, like, now that I think about it, we've talked about it before. The name has always been Walter Frank. Well, who was Walter Frank? Uh, okay, so Harrington might have been funding it some. Uh, let's see. Yeah, who's Walter Frank? Is this a? Because uh, well, I'm just do a Google search for Walter Frank. I don't see anything that comes up with that name that is some like some big time of business person that would have been around then. Uh, let's see. If I search for him without XWF, there's nothing. There's like a guy from uh, a Nazi historian, the, uh, a Holocaust survivor, actually. Holocaust survivor, excuse me. Uh, then you had the, uh, uh, Walter Frank, who's younger, and then you had Walter Frank that died in 2000. That was a Wall Street executive. Why There's is no... it not him? Oh, wait, he died in 2000. Yeah, wait a second. So, sorry. My yeah, brain, he was 91. My mouth got ahead of my brain there. Um, oh, what is a sausage from uh, Ink Masters named Walter Frank? Well, I mean, I don't <laughs> I don't think it's him. No. So. So, yeah, if we. Uh, does that sound like some type of mysterious uh, pseudonym for some money mark or something? Like, uh, uh, what's his face for Heyman's parents? Brian, what's his face? Yeah. Yeah, something, something, something ain't a jive in here. Uh, so. Wait, Walter Frank is the name that's in the newsletters at the time, isn't it? I don't remember, but I'm just saying. There's no Walter Frank that's on Google that matches, and you would think if there's some big money man, he should be on there. You would think. I guess I'm searching. Okay, I'm gonna I'm searching our Google drives for both Kevin Harrington and Walter Frank to see if there's anything contemporaneous we can figure out here. Okay, so Harrington. Okay, there's a Jimmy Hart torch talk where he says, originally Greg Valentine was friends with a guy named Kevin Harrington who owns Reliant Media. He, excuse me, he went to a party and was talking about the wrestling situation. Um, he passes the phone to Brian Nobbs, who, saying he doesn't want to get the story wrong. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing very good, man. I don't know if you know... Greg. Uh, so we met down there and we went on a big yacht with XWF ownership. Spent about eight hours out there. We talked about the wrestling project. I sold them tapes and told them the concept we were trying to do. I go to the Universal. Blah, 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 blah. Two weeks later, I get flown overseas to do Wrestle Express. Knobs. Oh, wait. So this is back to Jimmy Hart at this point. This is not labeled well by Wade. Uh, okay. They were in Las Vegas. Wait. Okay. Wait. Where was Reliance name here? Okay, so Nobbs calls him saying, Jimmy, you got to meet over, over here at Reliant right away. They want to do this deal. A meeting in Las Vegas. Janie Engel. Yeah, it's not clear. Okay, so Powell asks, Jason Powell asks, what's the management breakdown of the XWF? I know that Walter is the majority owner, but who holds the various titles? Okay, so Walter Frank is definitely the owner. Yeah, but who's Walter Frank? Okay, Walter's the man. He doesn't act like he's the man, but he's the man. He's the greatest guy you'll ever meet in your life. He grew up loving professional wrestling. He grew up doing it. He's got so many irons in the fire going. I get 
some people like sports cars. Some people like beautiful homes or collecting rings or women or whatever the hell they do. But I guess he's always loved professional wrestling. It's always been his little escape, and he loves it very much. Doesn't put any pressure on us about anything. He loves talking about the merchandising. Blah, 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 blah. Mike Lima, who we talked about a few months back. Da, 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 da. Uh, yeah, it doesn't really say anything who about who Walter, Walter Frank? Frank is. No. Something ain't jiving. I'm telling you. I don't know. I mean, uh, there are all sorts of rich people who there's not that much out there about. Uh, Roddy Piper interview when uh, with ChairChats.com where he talks about Walter Frank's ownership and stuff or whatever. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Search again. Walter. Uh... Key sorts reports that Walter Frank suffered a life-threatening heart attack during the fall of last year. Frank, who is believed to be over 70 years old, is a known chain smoker, which has caused many to question his long-term health stability. Uh, some, oh, Lud Danny, I don't know who that is, also said to have a financial stake in the company, but is seen primarily as Frank's right-hand businessman. So that helps narrow it a little bit bit i guess that he's at least 70 years old in february 2002 uh, maybe you think uh, walter I, frank is just some, just some guy kevin harrington hired what okay i've uh, found something here i um this is from uh chair shots uh the the financial backer owner of sws would be walter frank Mr. Frank's net worth apparently exceeds $100 million, and he has told people within XWF he's willing to spend $30 million on the promotion. Did he own any shares in Kongi Sports enter and Entertainment? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I don't know. I mean, here's the thing, though, because this, like, came up during depositions and stuff. When there was the whole lawsuit about the, you know, Paul White boxing thing, you know, Cecil Barker was the guy funding all that. And he was a billionaire who had, like, an aerospace company that he sold. And then he had Sobe with the energy drink and the record label and funding Brooke Hogan's career and all that. He's asked about, like, how are you this billionaire and you can barely find anything on Google about you. And he basically says that's by design. So, the idea that there could be this very rich man, I mean, who's probably dead now, but still, who's not really Googleable, is not that outlandish. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I get what you're saying, that no one's actually said what this guy's fortune is from. Uh. That is a bit weird. I, like, I, I get what you're saying. Do have... I think do I think there was somebody that was supposed to be Walter Frank? Yes. But <laughs> you know What would be the point of there being a fake Walter Frank? Is who knows? That's shit like that happens. Okay, what's this I found in an observer from March O two? Uh Randy White, a Dallas Cowboys football legend who's minority owner of the group, was introduced at the start in Lubbock for the house show. He came with owner Walter Frank. We did that week on the show. Okay. I remember that. I don't know. 
I, I I get what you're saying, but it's not the most outlandish. So wait a minute. So if he's involved with Randy White, he's got to be from Texas. Okay. Walter Frank, Texas. There's a Walter Frank. Okay, I think I found the right Walter Frank. Possibly. There's a Walter Frank born in 1927. There's nothing there, Biggs. Who died last year. I went to the obituary. There's no no information. Yeah, I see it. I mean, that could be him, though. But I get what you're saying. If it was a very rich person, there'd probably be a big... A sub- more substantial obituary. I found it. What? Walter Frank, Walter Julius Frank Jr., nineteen thirty to twenty fifteen. Oh, the one on so, legacy.com that legacy.com link? Dallas News. He formed uh let's see he was he helped Century Telephone become a public company, then helped build TC into the largest independent telephone company in the United States. He was a businessman and loved to propel people forward. Yeah, so he this is gotta be him because he's yes. from Dallas. Yes. Right in Gotta be him. Yes. So there you go, we found it. So there it is. See, I, I told you. I told well, you. Well, yeah, but still we had to really go look we had for to this. search for Walter Frank, Texas. Yes. Yeah. So there we if go. I search for if I search for Walter Frank Century Telephone that legacy.com link and similar stuff is the first. I mean, that's the first link. So it doesn't seem like yeah. it just doesn't seem like there's that much about him online. Yeah. Well, we figured it out. Yes. So there you go. Oh, yeah. Only on this show. All right. Uh, let's talk about AOL Time Warner and staying with a torch. Perhaps the final chapter in the AOL Time Warner version of WCW was written this past within the past few weeks when AOL Time Warner laid out the final two WCW employees. Ever since they purchased WCW, AOL Time Warner's had a small group of WCW office employees working to essentially close down the company. On October 19th, the company laid out the final two remaining workers, Greg Prince and Jennifer Henry. Sources familiar with the situation report that despite the final layoffs, there's still no, a lot of unfinished WCW business, such as finalizing pay-per-view audits and exploring licensing concerns expressed by several of the company's former wrestlers. The sources believe that other employees in the AOL Time Warner office will be assigned to remaining business matters. I think they just wanted to cut all ties with the WCW name, one source said. Well, so there, the final, the true death of WCW, right here. Well, not exactly, because Universal Wrestling Corporation didn't technically fold until what was it, twenty seventeen, twenty sixteen, something like yeah, that. Yeah, but these are the last employees, right? Yes, I mean they. I don't even get what the deal with that quote at the end is, though. It's like okay, it, they were dealing with whatever remaining active business was, like, and I guess now they're done with that. So, what do you expect? Yeah. All right, well, let's go to – now that we go to an indie uh, deal here, and we go to Fearful Weekly. Mike Whipwreck had his retirement show on October 20th at the Deer Park Community Center on Long Island. He beat little Guido with a top rope whippersnapper to a table. Guido cut a promo for the match asking how Mikey could retire when he's never even had a career to begin with. <laughs> Mikey had his big celebration afterwards and cut a promo mid-ring, thanking all sorts of people. Kid Cash, The Wall, Simon Diamond, Johnny Swinger, Balzahoney, Tom Marquez, Tony DeVito, Mike Bell, the guy Saturn destroyed during that one jack match, and King Kong Bundy all worked the show as well. 
And this was a USA Pro show. So get ready, folks. We have 14 matches. <laughs> we open with a three-way where Kid USA beat Damian Dragon and Thunderbolt. Not Patterson. Boogaloo Lou and Damian Dragon defeated Chris Devine and Quiet Storm. King Kong Bundy defeated Mike Bell. Sure. The Masked Maniac defeated Rockshaw 337. Oh, Jesus. Malice defeated Tony DeVito. Malice the wall. You know, same guy. Uh, the Hit Squad, Mafia Monster Mac, defeated the Maximos, Joel and Jose. Wayne, the convenience store guy, defeated the Trekkie. Mikey Whipwreck defeated Guido Maritado. Oh. Coming to Storm and Norman and Larry McKinney winning a Battle Royal. God knows who was in that. Kid Cash over the Amazing Red. Mike Cruel wins with no contest with the Prodigy, Tom Marquez. Then we have a four-way elimination match for the USA Pro New York State and USA Pro United States titles as Matt Stryker, teacher Matt Stryker, defeated Ken Sweeney, Low Rieta, and Tim Arson to win the title. DBK, the Boogie Knights, Danny Drake and Mike Tobin defeated Simon Diamond and Johnny Swinger. And their main event for the USA Pro heavyweight title, Balls Mahoney retained over, I mean, excuse me, Xavier retained over Balls Mahoney. This is definitely a USA Pro show for 2001. Oh, what makes you say that? <laughs> the talent, the list of matches. I mean, it is a I mean, talent USA Pro extravaganza. Talent should be in quotes for some of those matches, but well, I mean, it's from it's from the community center in Deer Park. This, Deer is, Park their, community center. this is actually their first show there, I believe. What's no wait a minute? What's the show? No, it's not. Didn't they run a show in the summer there? I think I, I think I have it on uh, on DVD. No, the shows they were running in the summer were. Mineola, Atlantic Beach. Mini, what's the venue that had the stairs? That the, the wrestlers had to walk up a flight of stairs to get to the ring. That might have <laughs> – I don't remember. Like what? Like the door they came through for the entrance. You could see they were coming upstairs. Well, the camera followed them up and down the stairs. I don't the, remember the locker, the locker room was downstairs. Okay, what, what? Like, tell me a match you remember from this video. Oh, that was on the, that was the only USA Pro commercial tape that I I I own. So what because was on the rest, it? The rest of them were RF. Uh, well, this is the first show RF did. <laughs> All right, so let me let me let me go to. I think I have that watched. Yeah, I know I did. All right, so that would have been as I scroll on my list here. Let's see, USA Pro, September the eighth. No, I was so, at I was at that show. That was in Manila. The Road Warriors against the Hit Squad and Loki uh, Crowbar Iron Man match. Yes. What 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 was going on in the stairway then that that was going down? It was the Knights of Columbus, and I guess like many indie venues, the locker room was downstairs. Well, there you go. Okay. So, okay, there it is. I didn't know. I mean, the whatchamacallit, uh, the Ridgefield Park locker room is downstairs. So they had a stairway. They were showing the wrestlers, you know, doing interviews in the stairs before they walked up to the floor that had the damn uh, ring. What right. a show that was. Yeah, there was some good that stuff was on the that one, show, they announced, That was the one that had the announced team of, uh, let's see, Missy Hyatt. Was it Fred the Elephant Boy? Um, it was terrible. The one guy that was announcing basically naked. 
Oh, oh, God. The guy, the guy who, uh, what was his name? The guy who uh, Matched Maniac would abuse during his matches. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God. It was horrible. What was his name? Beef something? Yeah, just terrible. Also, there was that endless angle at the beginning of the show with Missy and oh. Tammy and oh. some, like, invading ICW, but whatchamacallit, Jack Sabbath's thing was not called ICW yet, so it wasn't them. UCW. Yeah, so it had no bearing on the rest of the show. It, it was horrible. It, 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 you know, of course, that show also had Mass Maniac defeating Rockshaw 337 and the new Dynamite Kid. Yeah, three-way dance, yeah. Um... Three days for nine eleven. Yes. Amazing Red versus Abunai. I'm not going to make the joke that they watched this show and decided they, had to, they were going to do something because this show was terrible. No, this show had some good matches, though. It had some good matches, but god damn. I mean, the, 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 I mean, I guess. The, I mean, well, look, the six way is the worst match I've ever seen live. Yeah, but that I mean being there was different than watching the commercial. You, have you ever seen the commercial tape of this? Uh, I feel like I did at some point. God awful. I mean, but yes, there was some good stuff. There was uh, Boogie Nights versus Damon Dragon and Striker versus Boogaloo and Homicide versus the Maximos. That was really good. Loki and Crowbar was really good. Road Warriors Hit Squad was fun. Uh, Xavier Chris Candino, Candido was very good but yeah there's way too much uh yes the equalizer defeating billy rival kuvacha the flesh eater jimmy hustler the mighty finn and sledge in, in a six way is the worst match i've ever seen live by far it's gone awful God yes. awful. probably okay second second worst i think i might have said best by mistake there without thinking uh second worst would probably be there it was I think it was the first Jack Sabbath show back uh, five years ago, and I, I believe it was like these two tag teams. I think they were Grim Reefer students, and that and it just wouldn't end, and that was bad. Um, but I otherwise, yeah, I'm not sure what would jump out as the worst matches I've ever seen live. But no. Uh, All right, well, we have more. Well, yeah, as, we, as far as this show, though, I mean, is there anything else to talk about with this show? No. I mean, Mike, no. Mikey came back very quickly. Of course, they always do. When, I think it was the, the ROH anniversary show, I think, was his first match back, right? Um, they always come back. All right, CZW, of course, they're in Japan, but John Zandig is saying that CZW is very close to a deal with a company would tour Germany and the United Kingdom in 2002, plus get their TV show on in Germany. Sure. I mean, they end up on Wrestling Channel. I forget when Wrestling Channel starts. They don't tour, though. They know touring. They do end up running shows in Germany, though, don't they? If they do in any of this era, it's later. Uh, let's see, Germany results. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah, as I know, uh, I'm right. <laughs> but do right. they have it, like offer matches or anything on anything? Does that fucking matter? It's not their promotion. Uh, yeah. MECW, which if it exists, is being run by Todd Gordon. But they canceled their October dates in New York and Philadelphia. They're only two dates because Gordon was unable to get enough people together to put on quality shows since most of the indie guys were already booked. Some in Alaska. Well, not in a minute. 
and some on other shows over the past weekend. Theoretically, they will be running in November, but don't put too much money on that. And they don't. I have no recollection of this even being announced. A New York show. It that, was. Apparently a New York show that was announced for our week, too. Yeah, it was. But okay. Doesn't happen. More on Alaska right. in a minute, though. Yeah, International Wrestling Council. They ran Monroeville, Pennsylvania, on October 19th at the Sports Center. We had a baseball bat match where Jimmy Vegas defeated Chris Hero. Dennis Gregory defeated Kid Sensation. A.K.A. Kid Sensation, who will be driven out of the wrestling business by Loki in a few months. J. Rue, Scotty Gash, and Quaifa the Flying Hawaiian de- defeated J.T. Rogers, Eric Ecstasy, and Mark Mess. A.K.A. Oh the most Pittsburgh possible trios team you could Sexual find in this era. Mark Mess. <laughs> and how about, uh, the- how about Quaifa here outside IWA? Yeah, the the uh, team of sexual harassment, JT Rogers and Eric Ecstasy. My goodness. Oh, CM Pummer over Christopher Daniels. How about that? Then the Maximos, Joel and Jose over Quiet Storm and Colt Cabana. Blue Meanie over Toby Klein, which I don't think is Mr. Insanity because it's spelt differently, but you yeah. never know. And the main event for the IWC Heavyweight title, excuse me, the IWC World Heavyweight title. Orion retained over Shirley Doe. That Maximos versus Quiet Storm and Colt Cabana match always stood out to me on tape list. Like, how do we end up with Colt Cabana teaming with Quiet Storm? Well, Cabana was on Law for the Ride, and, you know, that's filled in a spot on the car. Uh, perhaps, I guess. Um, if I remember right, this was not a Smart Mark video show. This was... Uh, An IWC-only uh, distribution. No, well, no. I remember it being a thing that uh, Mike King Sr. shot and was selling. Well, IWC sold their own tapes. So you had that, too. And maybe that, maybe he shot it for them maybe and they were selling it, it too. Yeah. yeah. But um, I remember it being something on his tape list that at one point sort of intrigued me because that tag match sounded so strange. Fright Night 2001, NBA Wildside, October 25th, uh, the NBA Arena in Cornelia. David Young and Terry Knight over Kid Cool and Kid Ecstasy. Jeremy Lopez over Laz. TNT, Todd Sexton and Tony Stradlin won a two out three falls match over the Lost Boys. Azron Gabriel. Rip Michaels retained the Wild Saveway title over Scotty Wren. Onyx retained the TV title over Adam Jacobs. No, he won the TV title from Adam Excuse Jacobs. me, won, sorry. Uh, Foy ladder match for the junior title. Jimmy Rave retained over AJ Styles, JC Daz, and Jason Cross. And then Four Corners of Pain for the tag titles. Tank and White Trash defeated Project, Project Mayhem, Tank and White Trash, uh, defeated Homicide and Rain Man to win the, the championships. And, and that, of uh, course, is Murder One Homicide. Yeah, Murder One Homicide. And yeah, also, so. since you were going over the team names, you did neglect to call Kid Cool and Kid Ecstasy uh, G-rated. Yeah, and of course, Blackout is Homicide and Rain Man. Yes. If you want to hear me talk a lot about this, Exxon Bad Street covered this show. Uh, last year or year four last, so so uh, go check that out with uh, Dan Wilson and Jeff G. Bailey. We go over this uh, in depth. Yes, and uh, that ladder match is definitely one of the best matches you'll see of the uh, indie scene in that era. Yeah, and it's easily one of the best matches in Wildside history. Absolutely, 
Yes, which I mean, it says a lot too. But even at the time, the, it was a match that everyone knew was something special. You know, like I just remember as soon as like I saw you know the ads they were running on TV because I don't think they showed the full ladder match on TV. I think they showed part of the card on TV. But when they were promoting the home video, as soon as you see that clip of Cross and Styles doing the, and they were the first ones ever to do this spot, the thing where they're both on the ladder, someone tips it over, the two of them both catch, you know, they're a foot on the top of the top rope, and then bounce the ladder back straight and try going for the belt again. It was like, oh shit, I need to see this match. Lots of stuff in this match. I mean, you would see in in later years, and it was. I mean, they were doing this stuff before anybody else was, and uh, yeah, just a great wrestling show altogether. And uh, go check it out; it should be still up on IWTV. So uh, go check that out because it is uh, well worth your watch. Uh, just a lot of a lot of great stuff on that show. So, uh, again, listen to Exile on Bad Street. You can find out more about it there. All right. Uh, I mean, hold up. Well, I can say because I said a lot on that show. All right. Let's go to uh, for Weekly and update on Jeff Jarrett. Jeff Jarrett's time water contract expired last week, which means he would be able to sign with Jeff any time. <laughs> Don't hold your breath waiting for that to happen. Although Vince fired Jarrett in the foundation of Nitro, he also fired Bub Bagwell. As times change and business changes, so changes the attitude of those making decisions about who to bring on board. With that said, my man does see Jared as a main event level superstar, and Jared isn't likely to come in with a drastically reduced role in paycheck. He can always make money working in his dad's various businesses, so it's not like he needs wrestling. Uh, it's a matter of a few more months into the next year. <laughs> so, but, yeah, he would... There was, yeah, there was no way he's going back to WF in this time period. Not a chance. So, no. I mean, but <sighs> here's the thing: as Jeff, Jeff, Jeff has talked about on his podcast, Jeff Jarrett, Jeff, um, <sighs> he doesn't know if this is him being an eternal optimist or what. <sighs> He figured the Vince thing was just Vince doing shtick. And he was like, well, I'm under contract through October. Just relax with my family, make some money, and then presumably, you know, we'll see what happens. And then as the months went on, and, you know, I mean, and it's not like he had a high guarantee. So as far as, like, you know, bring him in for the invasion, uh... You know, and doing a buyout. So it's not like that would have held anything up. As time goes on, he realizes, oh, wait, they're not bringing me in. And I mean, he, I believe he was involved with the talks with the, you know, fi- you know, the mysterious financiers who were working on a new promotion, right? With J.J. Dillon and Scott Steiner and those people. And that's, that stopped being a thing after 9-11 for obvious reasons, because the company was headquartered at the World Trade Center and destroyed their business, killed some of the people involved. So, eh. Yeah. Not a fun situation to be in at the time. 
No, I mean that's a a story that you never hear talked about. Is that that whole deal there with that possible startup and being headquartered at the World Trade Center and all that going on? But uh, but yeah, I mean, Jeff's just in the writing on the wall. As long as Austin was was around and on top, he wasn't coming in because Austin definitely had it in for him at that time. So, yeah, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> but anyway, it worked out good in the end for old Jeff. So, there is that. All right, In Demand. Let's talk about In Demand. Speaking of Jeff Jarrett in a way. And going to the torch. And let's predict In Demand is likely more willing to work with a startup rust promotion than it had been in the past. Since the World Trade Center attacks took place, several motion pictures scheduled for release have been delayed for various associated reasons. Most notably effect has been the big budget Spider-Man film because it was set in New York. The poster released to hype the film project September 11 featured a lead character swinging by a web between the, the World Trade Center towers. Since the attacks, the film's producer decided to remove all scenes in which the World Trade Center was shown, which will lead to the film not being released until over a year after its originally scheduled release date. Meanwhile, some action movies that feature terrorist themes or plots have been delayed indefinitely and may never be released. In-demand officials are said to be concerned that they could find themselves with a shortage of quality pay-per-view programming in the coming months, when many of these movies are scheduled to be released on pay-per-view. This has led to some television analysts for pay-per-view distribu- the, the pay-per-view distributor will likely search for new programming. UFC promoters have apparently been already benefiting from in-demand's concerns. One source reports that while some in-demand officials were furious that UWS's September 27 pay-per-view lasted longer than the satellite time provided, UFC's in no jeopardy of losing their spot Oh, pay-per-view. One television analyst even predicted that in-demand's concerns could open the door for startup wrestling companies and mixed martial arts companies such as Pride. Those investigating the possibility of running a new startup national company are finding the pay-per-view industry is bending over backwards to make it worth their while. Well, you know. <laughs> but? It's very interesting to read this here knowing what's coming. Yeah. And, and that's especially. Why pla- Go ahead. That's why I placed it with, with, Jeff, with the Jeff news. Yes. Back to back. So, yeah. yeah. And it's so hard to put into perspective now the whole, the post 9-11, like, content paranoia of, like, what is acceptable right now. It's, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of surprised we haven't had that come up with what's going on right now in the Middle East. You know, um, maybe because we're not having any pro, you know, anything going on because of the, the strike. Yeah, that could be part of it. But uh, yeah, I, I did. I did see this though on online, and I, I thought about it, and I'm curious if it, there's talk. You know, the talk about you know war games is supposed to be set up for Survivor Series. Will they do a match named War Games with all this going on? Hmm, perhaps. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, this, this was cool. Well, I mean, Columbine, 9-11, I mean, those were the two, the two events that really changed content, you know, in, in, in that era as far as what was come, supposed to come out, what had to be changed, just to, like you talked about the combine thing, you know, with the with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, 
the World Trade Center was a lot that was changed on that one. A lot. So, and of course, there was you know the infamous like Clear Channel Radio songs we recommend not playing list. And I told that story, you know, uh, on uh, on nine eleven day, you know, coming home from work. And the song I hear on the radio is Jet Airliner by Steve Miller Band. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> you know? I mean, so, yeah, 22 years ago. Jesus Christ. My God. All right. I am South. They ran their fifth anniversary show on October 20th at the House of Hardcore in Charleston, Indiana. We had Garrett Marks over Gavin Starr. Is Garrett Marks Hubie Marks' son? <laughs> It's Zeppo's son <laughs> or something. Uh, the American Kickboxer over Quay for the Flying Hawaiian. Phoenix over Adrian Serrano. A three-way where Isaiah defeated Dysfunction and Richard X. Isn't it Isaiah? Isaiah, Isaiah, whatever. Uh, Cole Cabana over Paul E. Smooth. Chuck E. Smooth, who was Paul E. Smooth initially for reasons I don't really understand. CM Punk over Michael Shane. I have no recollection of Michael Shane being in IWA this early. Here he is. Rolling hard over cash flow in your meaning versus hard matchup. Um, what? No. Mitch Page was mean. That's right. That's right. What am I thinking? Of? Uh, yeah, I was thinking about Mitch Page and Rolling Hard. It's cash flow. Yes. All right. Um, I didn't miss the title. Chris Hero defeated Trent, the rugby thug, Trent Baker, to win the championship. Three-way fans bring the reppins. Me, Mitch Page, over Corporal Robinson and Sick Nick Mondo. And Steel Cage. As we had the three bad motherfuckers, Bull Payne, Mitch Ryder, and Todd Morton teaming up with Terrett the Great. Go to a no contest with Ian Rotten, Mark Wolf, Sabu, and Tracy Smothers. Now, that is a match. Oh, my God. Yes. Uh... I've never seen this one. How insane is it that at least right at this moment, although that will probably change soon, the most relevant wrestler on this card is somehow cash flow? <laughs> well, I mean, Chris Hero's in the news. He's coming back. Well, there is that. Yes, yes. He, yes. Uh, working Timothy Thatcher with his uh, scruffy beard. Yes. I mean, CM, Punk's always, CM Punk's always CM Punk. Well, CM Punk's not wrestling, brother. I know, but still, <laughs> I mean, he's, his name is... Yes. It's all over every day. Yes, Cabana's working occasional indies and otherwise is Brandon Cutler's mascot on ROH TV or whatever. So, yeah, I mean. But Cashflow's got, got his next Netflix flame. Flame. Fame. <laughs> yeah. All right. Josh Lomberger, tough enough, made his pro debut on October. Oh, there was one thing I forgot to mention, actually. I was about to. Um, boy, would Roland Hard not be a thing that would exist today. Well, we talked about that yeah, on the. I've mean, always the heard he was a nice guy. Uh, may he rest in peace. But that gimmick, uh, no. Josh Lomberger, tough enough, made his pro debut on October 20th in Hammond, Indiana, for foreigner fans on a World Wrestling Zone show, headlined by Terry Funk. Lomberger, using the ring name Josh Matthews, slipped up top rope, fell headfirst on the floor in his very first spot. <sighs> he seemed to shake it off. It was put over. Rapid Fire Rory Fox. No, Rapid Delivery Rory Fox. Rapid Delivery Rory Fox, excuse me, who gained his own MTV fame a few years back, being the focal point of a real-life documentary about starting his broker in Les Thatcher. He was said to have wrestled a Jeff Hardy style. True life. 
Yes. Rapid Delivery, Rory Fox. Yes. That's a Battle of MTV right here. That's something. That's probably why they booked it. Yeah. Also, how about... Oh, God. This is Josh Matthews. Yes, and how about how about Terry Funk's homecoming to the family uh, hometown of Hammond, Indiana? Yeah, never couldn't find results of this show, but uh, yeah. Yes. But we do have results for Midwest Championship Wrestling. Yeah, they ran Juliet, Illinois, on uh, October 20th. We have Airborne over Jay Jensen. Vinny Massaro over Sin. Did he fly himself in? Did he get flown in? It's I'm curious about that one. Magnificent Mike over Vic Capri. MCW heavyweight title, Scoot Andrews defeated Acid to win the title. Danny Doring defeated Mick. That's what it says. Mitch Blake and Rick Walsh won the MCW tag titles from Christopher Daniels and Jason Rain. And MCW TV title match main event, Chris Chaddy retained over low-key. Gentlemen, that man is a no-good jabber. Um, I hate maybe, you, Vandy, I, Vandy, maybe Vandy came in with Daniels. I guess. Uh, I hate when you selectively leave out nicknames, though. Like Ice Pick, Vic Capri, do, well, Black whatever. Nature Boy, Scoot Andrews, State of the Art, Jason Rain. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's well, whatever. In other news, bro. Yeah, Vince Russo. Vince Russo uh, is telling everyone he's through with wrestling. He's up at a record store in Atlanta. Well, which is he, a CD warehouse. Yes, it was a CD warehouse franchise. Which is not a record store, but used a CD store at the time. Yes. Uh, even if, though, it's a UCD store, also not the best time to open a CD store. Yeah, but those, I tell you, the, uh, I always enjoy going to a, the CD warehouses in my area. I always got a lot of good stuff there. It depended on the location and just how much they were charging on some of the stuff, but yeah. Well, maybe it's different down here. I don't know. Perhaps. I mean, the one the one up here wasn't a CD warehouse uh, franchise for very long. They transitioned into CD uh, Island. Oh, see, I never heard of that. They must have had a good deal on rent because after a certain point, it was clear that like they were doing the bulk of their business online and that they were using the store and like the storage downstairs as the, their warehouse so to speak see we never had any two-story city warehouse they're always a strip malls well i mean it was it was just a little storefront but like there was a basement i think yes yeah, we didn't have that there was in strip malls and there i mean yeah again you could always find some stuff in there for the cheap you know and uh i enjoyed it I did once call the only Atlanta CD warehouse in this era I could find and ask if Vince was there, and they told me there was no Vince. Well, there are a lot of CD warehouses in Metro Atlanta. When I, I feel like I, I feel like I knew it was the right one, and they told me there was no Vince. So I don't know. Because uh, there was one uh, in Stockbridge, there was one in Morrow. And there were ones, other ones scattered in Metro Atlanta. I mean, not Metro Atlanta, but Atlanta proper, and other other northern suburbs. But uh, yeah, good old CD warehouse. All right, and Russo would have been, probably been in the ones north of Atlanta. So, Michael Minus is at the King of the Ring, King of the Ring, King of the Indies tournament, on October twenty seventh, twenty eighth, in Vallejo, that he was originally booked to be part of. 
Dave's impression is with his Japan deal going so well, he doesn't want to risk himself over a relatively small, as compared to what he earned in Japan, payoff. He got a slight concussion in his last All-Pro all Wrestling match with Donovan Morgan before the tour, and they went home early because he was nauseous, and he and promoter Roland Alexander had words. Well, it's not a matter of heat, and the two are in contact. The injury may have been a wake-up call. He just felt that he was so banged up by the Noah style that his body needed to rest. He was booked to do four matches in two days, and they, wanted, and they wanted the fans to be expecting high-quality matches out of him, and his body may not be up for him. And he has to look at it as a business decision, as he only makes $225 working APW shows which is good money for the Indies, but he feels he wouldn't be able to perform at the level that Roland Alexander expects from him in the tournament doing classic hard-style matches. Tony Jones will replace him. The old-timers confirmed as attending the weekend events are Nick Botwinkle, Dick Beyer, who was hospitalized this past week, but still planning on coming in, Don Manukian, Fritz von Goring, Pepper Gomez, Paul Diamond. The original, not The Tom original Boyd. one. Yeah, the original one. Red Bastine, and possibly Kenji Shibuya. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Modest was either going to win the whole thing or be in the finals, at least. At least after this, Morgan was supposed to win originally until plans changed. Um, but it, I, regardless, there are all sorts of issues between Modest and Morgan and their camp and Roland at this time. But again, how it makes you wonder how different is the whole thing if Modest is in there and he wins it. Who won the I mean, who won in two thousand? I completely forgot about that one. I'm trying to remember because uh, I'm looking it up. Okay, King of the Indies two thousand Daniels. Daniels Morgan Daniels beat Morgan. Yeah, Morgan beat Modest in the semis. And Daniels was the actual king of the Indies, so it made sense. Um, if Modest wins... I mean, things were already trending in a particular direction, so I don't know how much it changes. At least as far as the impact on APW and the NOAA relationship. No, it's about, I mean, Ring of Honor is you know, pretty much born from this. And you're saying, does... If are they inspired the same way? If this is not a tournament with Brian Danielson going the distance, yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, if Michael Modis is the if Michael if the finals is Michael Modis and Donovan Morgan, I mean, yeah, I mean, how different is that? Well, I'm curious. Let me see what the bracket was as far as well, they have always was... changed that. No, I know, but uh, let's see. APW, APW, APW. I'm looking at pro wrestling history. There should be something here. Or maybe I should just Google APW King of the Indies 2001 bracket. But here's the thing, though. I don't think it's necessarily the finals and all that. Because they already had their ideas for ROH at this point. It was more... Dragon Dragon beat Morgan in the semis. Loki beat Daniels in the semis. Okay, so no, but I'm looking. It was was it? The, it was Tony Jones who replaced Modest. Tony Jones lost to Bison Smith in the first round, and then Bison Smith in the second round did the whole weird thing where he worked the knee injury because he was pissed at Roland, and route to losing to Morgan. And then, as it happened, after they changed the plans, Morgan loses to Danielson, like you said, and Daniels loses to Loki. Um, 
So if this was how it was, I don't remember if they announced a bracket in advance, though. Do you? No, that's what I'm saying. So anything could have doesn't matter with the original plans. Yeah, I mean, if they, if they announced a bracket in advance, it would be one thing. And here's Dave flat out saying that Monos is going to work four matches in two days. He's flat out saying it. Well, yeah, so he's at least going to the finals. Exactly. So, I think because what really inspired them was just, okay, this shows us that there are enough wrestlers to build a promotion around, I don't think it changes that much as far as ROH. But yeah, for those who don't know the story... But but Danielson winning that, though, is a major part of the whole deal. To a point, yes. For those... (laughs) <laughs> that's a big thing at the time with him winning that tournament I mean that, that final match is a, is such a huge deal I mean you had the legends talk about that that match and how it was put over the newsletters if Modest is there you don't get that match I get what you're saying if we don't well okay so let me give the backstory for those who don't know so Morgan is set to win after the Danielson-Kendrick match in the first round Nick Bockwinkle, and I think then backed up by one, at least one or two of the other legends, goes up to Roland and says, pointing at Danielson, if you, if you do not put that guy over in this tournament, you are a fool. And because it's Roland and it's Bockwinkle telling him this, he completely rebooked the tournament to have Danielson win. And because he felt he needed to justify it further... This leads to him offering Danielson the job to take over for Morgan in running the school. So, and here's the thing, you know, if if Modus is in the tournament, I mean, who knows what matches would have been what they were? It could have changed the whole. It could have changed that dynamic too with uh, with Dragon and Spanky. You know, we don't know. It's just an interesting hypothetical with all this going on here. So, definitely interesting hypothetical. Yep, it could have changed uh, a lot of wrestling history if uh, Modest competes in this tournament and wins it. So, let's go to Alaska. A very yes. rare part of the a rare time to say that. Yes, and I will go open our DM so I can. Uh... Steven DeAngelis put together a tour of Alaska this past week using a lot of ex-ECW guys. Balls Mahoney, Sebby Anderson, Simon Diamond, Don Marie, Roadkill, Sinister Minister, Julio Dinero, Chris Hamrick, and referee Jim Mullineau, plus the Road Warriors and two sexy Bron Christopher's big name headliners, as well as indie guys like Christopher Daniels, Banksy Boys, Nova, and Frankie Gazarian. The latter two teams, from all reports, stole the show. Well, uh-huh. Hawk, Hawk ended up making the tour due to a leg injury and a concussion, so Animal Team with Jim Duggan in the main event. They drew 2,000 in Anchorage on the 21st and then 800 in Fairbanks the next night. Well, let's go to Anchorage here. And uh, let's let's hear 22nd. So it could be either either or. Opening match on this show. The Rep Pro guys are here too. Super Dragon and Rising Sun defeated Excalibur and Disco Machine. Then we had Mini Spike Dudley over Mini Kane. Sure. Balls Mahoney won a three-way over C.W. Anderson and Rick Fuller. The Backseat Boys beat Nova and Kazarian. 
Becky defeated Jade. It's Becky the <laughs> farmer's daughter and Jade from WoW. Not Becky Lynch against Jade Cargill, which might be a match down the line. <laughs> mm-hmm. Simon Diamond over Roadkill. Brian Christopher over Christopher Daniels. And then Animal and Duggan over Julio Dinero and Chris Hamrick. All right. At the time, these shows caught everyone's eye just for how weird they were. Including the WoW girls doing what I believe were their only non-WoW bookings. Uh, and as legend has it, and D'Angeli has always said, there is tape of everything from this and also the tour a few months later in February, but he's never done anything with them. And that was, wasn't Eddie on that? Yeah, Eddie Guerrero versus Christopher Daniels was the big match at Super Slam 2. Uh, less names on this one. So the one we have results for also Anchorage, uh, Trust in Pain over Jubel. I don't know if these are Alaska locals or what the who the hell these people are. Shade over Calvin Smooth. Max Steel over Blade. Spanky over American Dragon. Taylor Matheny over Frost. And uh, I'm trying to remember, didn't it turn out or something that like that Kendrick actually met Taylor here and not in Japan? Because I don't think either had been to Japan yet, right? Yeah, sounds right. So this is where they fall in love, I guess. Uh, Samoa Joe over Frankie Kazarian, and Eddie Guerrero over Christopher Daniels in a match that everyone who heard about it has always wanted to see, but we have been deprived by Stephen D'Angeli. Uh, now we have extra details on this, though, because our dear friend Taro uh, of the Rev Pro Gang uh, was hanging out with Disco Machine the other night, and he provided these details to me and Chris in DM. So I now go to the words of our dear friend Taro, who uh, may or may not also be named Kevin Lyon. Two shows on this tour. Fairbanks was the first show and is not on cage match, but Disco said same lineup for both shows. RevPro guys got in trouble night one because, A, they did the regular RevPro match, which was mostly high spots and early in the card, which... uh. I think he forgot would be... Oh, no, there is B coming up here. Uh, which crowd seemed to always like, but got heat backstage with some of the boys. Note f- from Kevin. This happened to us at XPW, too. <laughs> As a result, Simon Diamond pulled the RevPro guys off to the side before the second day to politely give tips on how to do an opening match. After Simon left, Super Dragon said, Fuck that, they brought us here to have our match. That sounds like Super Dragon. <laughs> B. One of Excalibur's regular moves was the air raid crash. He was doing it as a fan of of Shima, and of course Nova was mad backstage about Excalibur using the move. At the end of the uh, second match, Disco got busted by so second night. Uh, Disco got busted by a lariat and then knocked Loopy on a psycho driver at the end of the match. So Disco, after this, in a daze, he screwed. It, Dreams, you f- <coughs> he screams, you think this is fake, and starts spitting blood from his mouth at the audience. <laughs> Excalibur gets him out of there ASAP. Well, because Excalibur is a mensch. Uh, next thing Disco remembers is getting checked by a paramedic. Nova sees Disco's lip backstage and asks what happened. Disco says he got a lariat from Super Dragon. Nova then said, Super Dragon, ring, ring, it's a work. And us among ourselves made the ring, ring, it's a work, 
joke among us ever since. <laughs> okay, so before we continue, assuming Excalibur and knowing how he's encyclopedia of moves and move names and move differences, if he was doing it because he was inspired by Shima, he was doing the Schween, which is technically a different move from the Air Raid Crash. On the, on the Air Raid Crash, you have your opponent's legs over your one shoulder and then their head above your opposite hip that you're then tucking with your arm. On the Schween, it's on, both on the same side. So assuming Excalibur's doing the Schween, then it was not the same move. Regardless, it's also Nova, so he can get fucked. Um, but still, probably not the same move, and as we've talked about before, Nova had a habit of claiming people stole his moves that were not actually the same move and that often they had been doing before him anyway. So, yes. meanwhile... <laughs> Being so concussed that he starts spitting blood at the crowd and saying, you think this is fake. He showed them. Kids, be careful out there. Also, just super dragon, ring, ring, it's work, is the most Nova possible thing, too. <laughs> at least non-move-stealing category. Yeah. All right, we can date you now. Even though Kappa Publishing, which owns London Publishing... Oh, no, Publishing, continue with, with what Taro said. There's more. Oh. Okay. Uh, last thing regarding the Anchorage show, the wrestlers were debriefed about a famous fan known for crossing the barricade and entering the ring. No one knew which, what match it would happen in, but the wrestlers were asked politely, please don't kill him. So the guy entered during Brian Christopher's match and Brian attacked him. Of course. And then regarding the WOW women, uh, AWC, so I guess it's uh, whoever was in charge of AWC. Oh, no, American Wild Child. Sorry. Because <laughs> wasn't there also a promotion called AWC in SoCal at the time? Uh, AWS. Okay, thank you. AWC is American Wild Child, Ron Rivera, uh, was there to ref their match, and they were so inexperienced that they were practicing their match until the door opened. Well, I mean, they've only worked WoW, so is that really any surprise? No. And then he said, yeah, I got a lot from Disco here. If you use any of it, great. If not, you got some fun stuff to read. But, there you go. Yeah. Um, shocking that, that we got a Nova story out of this. <clears throat> well, he is what he is. Yes. But, uh, yeah, we close out the section with the magazine talk. Yeah, Kappa Publishing, uh, even though they, they own uh, London Publishing, which that's for was illustrated, purchased the WOW magazine title the auction from bankrupt H&S Media. The magazine's essentially dead. Kappa purchased the rights to several of the H&S titles, some of which were to continue the magazines and others, like with the rest of the magazine, to own the rights simply as self-protection to make sure someone else didn't buy it. Some would say that's the same reason Vince bought WCW. That is true. Which basically leaves them as the only real players who said WF in the rapidly constricting wrestling magazine market. WoW joins Wrestling World and Starlog magazines as being defunct over the past few months. While Rampage magazine, which at one point appeared to be done, has cut back and supposedly will publish quarterly. As it pertains to Bill After, he's probably still the most famous name in the wrestling magazine world, stemming from his national TV appearances for Croc in the 80s. There is no real answer. After was well liked by most working in London, but his leaving seemed at the time to close the doors to his ever coming back. No decisions have been made regarding him coming back. After he's fairly quiet, aside from doing a Philadelphia Daily News interview where he indicated interest in coming back and probably still friends he's interested, but wasn't optimistic about the odds of it happening. Stu Sachs, 
one of the lovely wrestling editors who, like after, goes back 30 years and come pro wrestling, doing a newsletter as a teenager, says decision one way or the other the company hasn't made. He himself would be in favor of after returning. Sachs explains the constriction of magazines on numerous factors. The magazine business overall is declining across the board, and many high-profile magazines are struggling, probably because of economic reasons as well as internet competition. Two factors that probably hit pro wrestling magazines harder than most. The nature of distribution has changed, making it more difficult to get shelf space for most magazines. London has published fewer magazines per year than any time in recent memory, with the wrestler and inside wrestling being cut back to bi-monthly about a year ago. Sachs said the PWI family has experienced some growth since July, when WoW published its final issue, despite the overall decline in wrestling interest. WrestleLine.com, the wrestling offshoot of CBS, SportsLine.com, which at one point was the biggest wrestling website in terms of trafficking, announced it was closing down effective October 18. I bet Vince Russo wished it would have done that two years earlier. The combination of constriction and thus loss of popularity of wrestling as well as similar economic charges in the web business, the advertising crash, are changing so that, that business as well. This comes on the heels of the recent folding of IGNWrestling.com, Scoops Wrestling, iWrestling.com, and Iata.com, which aired our Wrestling Observer Live show. A lot here. Yeah. Where do you want to start? I mean, the magazine thing, I mean, that's totally what what they were doing was to buy it out so nobody else could get it and compete against them. Well, also, they kept happened. their IP and photos and stuff, too. Well, yeah, but still, I mean, still, that's the reason why, the picks is to, show, is to yeah, keep yeah. somebody from buying it. No, I agree. Um, After doesn't go back. No, and I mean, this is when he basically has to pivot his full-time job to being outside of wrestling and starts doing the uh, the job placement for uh, people with certain disabilities thing that he still does to this day. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as him not having a space, you know, going back there, I mean, he kind of sealed his fate with the... With the way he left, he, you know, he thought it was a funny thing to do, but announcing you're quitting by doing an NWO-style t-shirt reveal in your place of employment, even at a wrestling magazine, might not have been the best idea as far as potentially being able to go back there. No. Um, and that's from Bill's book. Yeah. That's from the source. Um, you know, WoW was one of those things where it's like, I've seen this. I'm sure other people have. Someone offers you what sounds like an offer you can't refuse. And then after you start working there, they re you realize they have absolutely no idea what they're doing. Yeah, that happens a lot. I mean, you know, the big the story... Mon the, the, the money's there. You know, I guess the infrastructure is there. But <laughs> the, the the planning isn't there. Yeah, and just weird stuff, too. Like, I always remember the story from his book about how they started going, like, to, I mean, and, you know, legally and all this, obviously you should be able to, in terms of maintaining the relationships with the promotions you need, it's more complicated. They would start going directly, like, to WWE talent and offering them, like, five grand for exclusive photo shoots. And that upset the apple cart with WWE. Like, they went to Sable and offered her, like, five grand or something for an exclusive photo shoot. And that caused issues. And 
I mean, the other thing is, like, you and I have talked about this on here before. WoW was not good. I bought some WoW magazines over the years. I mean, they look good. They look, look good, great. But, you know, the thing is. But, the, but, the, but, but again, it's very flashy, look great, but the substance wasn't there. Especially because when WoW was announced, the focus of all the publicity was this is not going to be a KFA magazine. We are going to cover wrestling seriously, yep. like the newsletters and some of the websites, etc. And then outside of Dave Meltzer's column, that pretty much ended up not being true. Yeah. Yeah, just just not good and kind of to a degree a missed opportunity as well. Um, also, I think just with how slick and the printing quality and everything, I mean, it also I think goes to show you just how much, you know, how much that costs, too. Like, I don't know what kind of sales they were doing, but I'm sure that also made things trickier. Like, I'm sure it helped sales to a degree, too. But, you know, there's a reason that PWI only went full color for, what was it, like six months? Yeah. And that was almost a decade earlier. Um, You know, other magazines going out of business. Uh, some of that's just the shifting times. I mean, now the website's closing, I think, is a little more interesting. Uh, like, look, we don't know any of the specifics of these. I would assume IGN was paying people, but WrestleLine, I didn't know this until a few years ago. I know Scott Keith was not getting paid. I would assume that your other recappers and potentially columnist types were not getting paid. So CRZ, potentially Ben Miller, people like that. What the hell was the overhead there? Were they only paying Mike Samuda and Rick Skaya? Like, what was going on that they felt a need to close this site that was doing a lot of traffic? And I remember having ads to some degree. 9-11. 9-11 was a major thing. And so a lot of this stuff going down after the original web, you know, boom went down the year earlier. After the dot com bust, but that was that was more about stocks and stuff. That this is CBS. Again, I mean, nine eleven had a lot to do with a lot of stuff. I guess maybe they felt that 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 they didn't need to use their resources for that. They could have used those resources for something else. You think specifically because it was a bigger mainstream news company? Yeah. Okay, I can see that. Um. I don't remember much about iWrestling.com. I used to go there. I mean, Scoops was basically just allies losing interest and throwing in the towel. Pretty much. Although, he had tried to claim that there was some company running it that he worked for, right? Yeah. And that always seemed kind of like bullshit. So. <sighs> so, I mean, of what was around then... Then Eata. Well, Eata is different, though. Eata is much more of a typical dot-com story and overspending and all that. Um, okay, so when did Wrestling Inc. start? It was before this. It's around by this point. Was WrestleZone around yet? I don't know. Lords of Pain was around, though, right? Yes. Now let's see Oh, yeah. You, now, Lords of Pain still exists, but as, of a, couple, but as of a couple of years ago... They changed the name to a domain they had had for years, but they realized it was better to just rebrand. WrestlingHeadlines.com is Lords of Pain, for those who don't know. Uh, yep, yep. 
Which, it, it made sense. It, it made sense. There was no reason for there to be a LordsOfPain.net anymore. No. Um, so, I mean, of the ones that were around then, I guess those would be the, or close to it, it would be those two or three, right? Lords of Pain for sure, Wrestling Inc. for sure. Wrestling Inc., though, I don't think was bigger till years later, right? But it existed. It was around. But it was around. WrestleZone, I don't remember. But I think it might have been around by then. I can't think of anything else, really, that... Oh, was 411 around then? Yet? It's possible. 411 might have been, so that's another one. So, still a few survivors from then. And the Observer site did exist by this point, too. So that's another one. But but you also had OneWrestling.com. You know, well, a lot of... Well, technically uh, still exists, but... I mean, you had a lot of big websites that was around that kind of also helped eat up some of these other ones. Yeah, and then, you know, what really, I think, helped the likes of your WrestleZone and your Wrestling Inc., just to close the loop here... Once search engine optimization became this big thing, you know, in the late aughts, early 2010s, all of a sudden they had the inside track because they were the ones that were post that were itemizing at everything out into these individual posts, even if they were short, you know, they weren't doing a daily update or whatever. And... They had the right kinds of headlines to get search traffic and all that. So all of a sudden, you know, these sites which already had their followings, once Google News blows up and all that, all of a sudden these sites blow up because they're better equipped than <coughs> at the time a WrestlingObserver.com to really blow up. Yeah. So. Yeah, an interesting time in uh, wrestling history online history and stuff yeah man it's 22 years ago like i said good lord of mercy all right uh let's go to world wrestling federation as we close the show out regarding the october 18th smackdown they thought it was a good show they tried to at least build focus into the top matches on no mercy and did a real good job of building the two important matches well except for the fact that Kurt angle came off like a major third wheel they may as well have had done all, just done Austin versus Rob Van Dam. By the way, does anyone remember that Van Dam pinned Austin a few weeks ago on television? Thereby confusing the main event that Austin Eagle needs to shoot at the time? Dave guessed not, since that should have been pushed heavily in the build-up for this match. It also explains why if nobody remembers results of even the important matches, fans don't care about outcomes. And if they don't care about the outcomes, they don't care about the matches. If they don't care about the matches, they don't buy tickets in the long run. Yeah? Yeah, that was something that wasn't talked about. But a lot going on in this time period with a lot of people's minds. So, yeah. The Rock Chris Jericho interplay remained the highlight of the show. Jericho's really picked up his game when it comes to promos. Gotten away from the standard Jericho promo and has made a real story in his quest to beat The Rock and make it like a win like a win of The Rock is something his career needs. And the title's important. With Rock, for some reason, WCW belt never seems important. As the exception of one interview, he doesn't really put it over. I wonder why. Because it was silly to put the belt on him anyway. I mean, I get, I get it, but I mean, it's it was just silly that he's he was a WCW champion. Well, and then that by this point they've taken the WCW guys completely out of the WCW title picture. Yeah. 
But the very least, though, if they're going to do that, at least have guys that used to work in WCW. Well, Jericho at least. But yeah, now. <laughs> so. I mean, it went from rock feuding with Booker to rock feuding with Jericho. So it's not like there was no former WCW wrestler presence. It's just now there's no invading WCW presence in the WCW title feed. Yeah. The opening segment was one of the few lengthy interviews that didn't seem to never end. Dave has no idea why Stephanie was involved and spent all this time getting over her breast, which they spent all this time on every show on when it did nothing to add to the Rock Jericho stuff. She was terrible in the skit as well, almost becoming a Missy Light caricature of herself. They showed a clip of Jericho's debut from two years ago. Rock was so much bigger, and Jericho was smaller in those days. One of the guys who does the voiceover work on the BattleBots toy commercial sounds all, almost exactly like Lance Russell. Every time Dave hears a commercial, he starts thinking he should see Lawler showing up. I'm just giving all the synopsis Smackdown before we get into like, clips or shit. Uh, funny in that Maven twin. Sounded never... like Lance Russell? I don't remember in this. Dave, in Dave's mind, it did. I, I, I'm i curious to see. If I just search, let's see if YouTube has any BattleBots commercial 2001. Let's see. Uh, okay, so yeah, here's a promo. We have a bunch of promos from 2001, so take your pick, I guess. This season, it starts all over again. Well, not him. 80 Diamond Cut. That's the same guy. Rambo Smash Up! I know, that's for the toys. I forgot they had toys. Okay, I'm trying one more. They've been rebuilt. What? I don't remember anyone that sounded remotely like Lance Russell, so maybe Dave is talking about this guy for some reason. Oh, there is one that says it's for the fall, so let's just try this one. Tuesday, the sparks really start to fly as the middleweight box advances. Okay. It's Van Alright. Dave's thinking of Van Alright sounding like Lance Russell because Lance's Midwestern WCW DJ voice for the upcoming house shows, which he and Van Alright both did, had some similarities. Right? So it has to be that, I would think. To the championship showdown. The road to the Golden Nut continues with a battle by... Right? Now that's Van Alright. I'm pretty sure that's Van Alright. Van Alright is the one that did those W... But it's the guy who did those WCW spots, clearly. Van Alright, sound like this. Van Alright had a different voice for doing the WCW spots. He didn't do his announce. He didn't do his did, live yeah, sports did, voice. What? Yeah, but that's the voice I always know Van Alright using was his CNN voice, which he used on the WCW stuff. He didn't use his CNN voice on the WCW stuff. Oh yes, he sure did. <laughs> I used to watch him on CNN. He used to do a radio hits in Atlanta all the time. Same voice. He always had the same voice, no matter what I heard him on. Whether it was radio interviews, CNN, WCW, he had a little more. A little I mean, bit more I'm more work. familiar with him from MTV Sports, but okay, now, now I'm curious. Okay, so let's see, Vanny, I'll write on CNN Sports tonight. Now for the Friday night NBA report that tips off at the home uh, of a group uh, of champs. If you were expecting some sort of. Le- okay, he did not use that. That's not the voice he used in WCW ads, though. It was a little bit deeper. But you agree with me, though, that the person doing Same BattleBot post. spots did WCW spots? No. You don't <laughs> that don't think... sound like... No! Amazon. So you're saying the WCW guy was Van or right, and you think he sounds nothing like... Well, there was Pittsburgh. multiple guys that did WCW. 
in that years. era. I mean, there was Lance Russell. There was, you know, okay, let's hear this one more time. Tuesday, the sparks really start to fly as the middleweight box advance to the championship showdown. The road to the Golden Knights continues with a BattleBots middleweight finals. One full hour this Tuesday at 10. He sounds similar enough to the WCW guy, though, that I get where Dave made the connection, at least. But anyway, all right, enough of this. Yeah. All right, um... Funny that Maven's win over Taz, they did more to get Nitty over than Maven. As they got the camera on her. Crowd was kind of dead, but there was a chant for Maven, which makes no sense. It's only a couple of weeks tough enough here in Canada, since this was in Montreal. And Maven didn't really click until the last third of the season. Also because his momentum is dead from being squashed three weeks in a row. You know, you got a pin. Don't fool yourself. He was squashed. Long run, it doesn't matter because he's not ready, but it could have been a fun up before the tough enough bird out made it to a flash. <clears throat> Chris Jericho to land in the rock out with a chair, also getting the people's elbow. Dave thought the man Austin RVD stuff told a good story that intrigued into, to the pay-per-view. Angle versus RVD in the main event was a really good match. One of the problems right now is they got almost everyone working the same style. New Japan used to have that problem. Everyone, well, not everyone, but most of the guys, technically become so proficient in style, so there are a few bad matches, but all the matches start looking the same. That is a major problem in wrestling today. One of the reasons RVD gets over in the ring is because he does things differently. As a worker of the WF style, he's probably on the bottom guys because of his timing of when to do things isn't really there. He always busts people up, but his high spots are unique. When in there with Angle, they had the most entertaining match on the show, and it's because Van Dam did what others don't. Also, a pretty good build to the finish where RVD splashed Austin to end the show. All right, so clip-wise. All right, so the first clip that I think we should play would be uh, after that long opening promo, Steve Austin and the Alliance is throwing a party for Rob Van Dam. All right, let's see. Who's not there yet? God, a lot of this invasion stuff runs together. And yes, this is a very long opening segment. I I have no recollection of what he's talking about with the promo being about Stephanie's boobs either, because this is... Months after the initial surgery and promo about Well, Rock and Jericho both joined in, and that's when they talked about her her breasts, and then she threw a fit and walked backstage and blah, blah, blah. blah. Okay. Well, all right. I'm up to the party. Yeah, 17 and a half minutes into the the show. Let's uh, get away from this first talking set. Rock's seating Caroline here. Yes. Also, I... uh, I was I was anticipating almost, and then I saw it was a different thing when Dave talked about the um, you remind you saying that reminds me when Dave was talking about the Jericho debut segment being shown or a clip of it being shown. There's a there's some point in this era where they show it, and I don't know if he's friends with Dwayne yet when he writes this, but Dave wrote this whole thing about how noticeable he felt it was that Rock had a completely different face. A few years later. Yeah, it was, it, there was something to that. I never felt like it changed that much in like a short period of time. But there it were did. changes. Anyway. What's this? Oh, my God. 
all the champagne or don't pop all the balloons and drink all the beer. We gotta save some for when RVD gets here. Yeah. I made the double cookies. They're good, aren't they? They're good, huh? Yeah. Cookies notwithstanding, we're here to celebrate. Yeah! 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 The RVD proved oh. without a shadow of a doubt last Monday night when he hit Kurt Angle with the five-star frog splash. Way up! He proved to Stone Cold Steve Austin without a shadow of a doubt. He's on my side. He's on the side of the alliance. I know some of you people doubted him. I know it's just natural. Big deal. It's okay. I never doubted him. And he proved himself. Yeah. Yeah. So when that man walks through that door, we're going to celebrate for that little right here tonight. Excuse me one minute. No, it just dawned on me. You know, if, I mean, you talk about the impact of the five-star frog splash by Rob Van Dam. If Van Dam hits that five-star frog splash on angle this Sunday at No Mercy, wham, as you said it, if Van Dam hits that, Van Dam could be the new WWF champion, and he doesn't even have to beat you to do it. What? What? (laughs) Would you say something about Van Dam hitting a five-star frog splash on angle? One, two, three. I'm not going to hit this shit. Leave. Yeah, get out of here. Get out of here. Come out. Get out You're a party pooper. I'm a lot of you. Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. Party Pooper Jones over here. But I digress. <laughs> what? <laughs> <clears throat> so, that's the first Alliance skit. Uh, we're not going to play the next one, because Regal and Steph introduce Christian to the party, as he's now a member of the Alliance. Oh, God. Austin, Austin shook him's hand and welcomed him to the team. All right, then we, uh, we got Maven over Taz. Um... Van Dam showed up. He uh, was in the limousine, looked in the limo, told an identified person, you're a cool dude. And then uh, we get Van Dam showing up at the party eventually, Bix. So uh, that's right after this, what you're showing. So there we go. All right. So let's go to Rob Van Dam at the now showing up at the Alliance party. Oh, wait. I have to get to the beginning of the segment. You, you got you get you had to f- figure out your timing on these, Chris. Well, you got to do a little bit better job of. Go, I mean, you're you didn't five even interval. tell me that it was what the <laughs> thing was, and then you threw right to it. How am I supposed to? Uh, you scrub too fast. All right. Well, anyway, as as it transitions from Mick Foley and Terry Runnels, Foley with that hairstyle there, and then that era there. Yes. As we near the end of the second run of Commissioner McFoley. Yes. Steve, man. Steve. We'd love to stay in part. Who's wearing the top hat? I'm not sure. Let's see that again. Steve. Oh, Stevie Richards. Yeah, Richards. Well, it's not quite a top hat. What would you call that? It's a, uh, cha- no, I wouldn't say a chapeau. It was a, a derby. 
I don't think that's a derby. I mean, what's his face? Big Bully Busick wore a derby. That's not a derby. Well, it's, it's just a hat. In between the two, I guess. Anyway. Yeah. We'd love to stay and party, but uh, me and Book got a match. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. Gotta go. Gotta go. Enjoy the party, guys. Uh, TNT? Yes, TNT. <laughs> one of the few teams to hold both the WWF and WCW World Tag Team title. <laughs> That great tag team we all remember, TNT. I like TNT. I like Booker and the Gold Dust. It's Texas T. I like TNT better when it was Mr. T as a private investigator for an activist law firm. Or, well, the the, the best TNT was Tony Allis and Tommy Rich. Which, by the way, the full run of TNT is on Tubi. Well, good. That's good. You just said how good authority he's going to be here. I'm trying to throw a party, man. Where's he at? That's his problem, not mine. I said he's going to be What is all this? What's going on? I'm trying to throw a party for you, man. For me? God dang, it's good to see you. How's it going? I'll be back. It feels good, doesn't it? Chicken soup for the soul. What's going on, man? Nothing. I'm having a party for you, you know, because you did the right thing. Did the thing like, hey, you did the right thing last Monday when you hit Kurt with the five-star, right? Yeah. You're going to do the right thing this Sunday. Back in me. <laughs> Kurt Angle, triple threat. You and me. Wham! WWF title stays right with us. Man, I'm so proud of you. Yeah. You look good. You been in the gym? <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Hey, you look real good. I'm looking forward to Sunday. Wow. All right, wow. me too. Dude, kid, you know what you're doing? You're reaching for that star, ain't yeah, you? Yeah, just like you said. You're going to be a big star. I can't wait. Wow. You know what? You got a big match tonight. You got a big match. Uh, you against Kurt Angle. Yeah. <laughs> you struck your shoulders. I know you're confident, but I want you to take him out. What the heck keeps getting bleeped here? I guess it's whatever UPN was airing. It. I mean, doing it in time censoring. No, no, the network versions are not the UPN edits, or at least not the stuff UPN specifically edited. Well, maybe it's Canadian. I don't know. No, no, no. The, whatever these edits are, they're done on the WWF side. Well, I don't know. Because, yeah, the, the where and what they were saying, both of them, it came. It didn't seem like anything obvious, so that was odd. Yeah. And again, this is a pre-taped SmackDown in 2001, like... What would they even be saying in a backstage pre-tape that would need to get bleeped? Mm. Very strange. I'm going to be watching you. I'm going to be urging you on. I'm going to be pushing for you. I'm going to be looking at that monitor. Go RVD! Go RVD! I'm going to be your biggest supporter. Right. I like you. I like what you do. You mean the world to me. Really? Okay. And, uh... Well, hey, hey, I start crying. Yes, if you'll let me. I don't give a lot of presents away, but what I'm going to do is I've taken my watch off my arm and I'm going to give it to you. You know what this watch is saying? I hold it up in my ear. His watch is saying, it's time for RVD to be a big famous star. 
It's yours. Thank you. All right, man. I want you to whip his tonight. <laughs> well, we're about to get something to, to, to go further than that. But Booker T and Test beat Undertaker and Kane when uh, Test hit Taker with the big boot and Booker fell on Taker and pinned him. So Booker got a pin on Undertaker on television at this point in time. How about that, huh? Uh, I'm sure Taker's friends didn't like that. <laughs> Test is uh, it's pretty big here. Are you saying right, Test so, looks like he's doing a lot of Test? <laughs> yes. I mean, he's All not right, the so, only one. Jeez. Yeah, that's some. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, guys is, this are era. Big in this era. Oh, take a look at some 2001 promo photos of WWF guys when you get a chance. Uh, I mean, yeah, I watched the TV. So. No, but I'm saying, <laughs> like, it's it's pronounced though. Yeah. Uh, like. Like, you can tell they're doing some interesting shit. <laughs> well, anyway, after the match, we get the shot of who was in the limousine that Rob Van Dam got out of. It was Vince McMahon. <gasps> uh-huh. That didn't go over too well. So let's go to the Alliance uh, locker room to see uh, how they react to seeing this. He didn't have his sports coat on when he got out of the limo, and now his driver, whoever's putting it on him. <laughs> Okay. See here. <laughs> it starts with a close up on Austin's face. And it's a big scowl. Yes. Those piercing blue eyes. Yeah, he's staring down RVD. <laughs> what? That's what you've got to say to me? Look at me. Did you just get out of a car with Vince McMahon? Why? <laughs> what in the hell were you doing in a car with Vince McMahon? Steve, we were talking. Just talking. Joe, just talking? Yeah. What were you talking about? Actually, he was just telling me, like, the same stuff you always tell me. He says I'm a great athlete. I, I should reach for the stars. Oh, I told you to reach for the stars, huh? Yeah, he said Well, if I... you're with Mr. McMahon and you're standing in hell, how are you going to reach for the star? <laughs> you know, hey, hey, no, 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 no. No. I bet he also told you this. You deserve to be a champion. Did he tell you that? He did say that. Oh, really? I wonder how I knew that. Do you not understand what Vince McMahon is? He is the devil, RVD. Nobody knows that more than me. I've always heard that all along. But I didn't think he was that bad of a guy. Well, what else did he say? He, he told me uh, he'd see me this Sunday. No mercy. What? <laughs> he said what? He'd see me this Sunday at no mercy. I don't see what the big deal is. It's Watch. I said, give me my watch. <laughs> Do you know what? Look at me. 
Do you know what this watch is saying now? It says, it's time for RVD to make a decision. RVD, this Sunday, you are either with me or you are against me. Is everything cool? Yeah, Steve. Cool. You know, it's pretty much a given. And your RVD, it's always cool. I think you should leave. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. performances in that segment. <laughs> Regal with his facial. Uh, Austin, who you could tell at times was trying not to laugh as he was delivering his yes. lines. <laughs> oh, hey, it's the Duchess of Dudleyville, Stacey Keebler. And, and RVD. Yeah. This, uh, that's good shit. Good shit. Good shit. Yes, the uh, Jerry uh, beat Devon here, uh, where uh, Tori Wilson ripped off Stacy's dress after the match, picks. How about that? Well, it's 2001. Also, this is a King Kong Bundy singlet era <laughs> big show. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, highlights aired of Linda McMahon representing New York Mayor Ray, Rudy Giuliani with a check for $1 million. Excuse me? <laughs> I guess you can watch it, Bix, right here as we uh, move forward if it's still on here. Yeah, it looks like it All is. Right. So, All right. as we cut to WWF New York and Times Square, now the uh, Hard Rock. Part of Times Square, New York City, the place to watch No Mercy on Sunday. Also, the place where WWF CEO Linda McMahon made a major announcement earlier this week on Sunday Night Heat. Oh, it will be my privilege. On behalf of all of the World Wrestling Federation superstars, employees, and most importantly, the fans worldwide in the World Wrestling Federation, to present to the Honorable Rudy Giuliani a check in the amount of $1 million for the $10,000. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that makes more sense. We hope that it will somehow... It won't compensate for anyone's personal loss, but we hope that it will be helpful. You know, this will, it, it really will help. It will help a great deal because all, the most you can do for a family to help them is to say, well, they'll be financially secure. And this will help a lot of firefighters and police officers' families be financially secure. Well, and it helps them to recover. I wanted an opportunity to say hello to the mayor himself because we think he's been such an incredible stalwart during all of this and really has been the glue that has moved all of this forward. So it was a pleasure to meet him, present the check personally, and he was very gracious. <laughs> Thank you personally for you. being the kind of guy that we've had here in New Thank York you. during this time. And your, your, um, your restaurant is a great addition. Thank you. <laughs> to, to Times Square. We've been happy to be able to give back a little bit in such a, a, a tragic situation, but uh, we wanted to say we care and we're here. New York City and all the people in it we smell what you're cooking. What? 
Chris Jericho has already had a physical. So, I mean, this is a, we're a month and a week after 9-11. Yes. Um, and, I mean, it's still very, very fresh, you know, in the, in the minds of New Yorkers for sure. And, you know, that is a very gracious donation at the time, a million dollars to – to the city of New York, but boy, is this something looking at this in hindsight. Well, it was to the Twin Towers <laughs> Fund, which I'm trying to remember yeah. what that was specifically. Oh, you mean the fact that a little over 19 years later, they plotted a coup together? That's what I'm saying. It's just so weird to look at this when Giuliani was America's mayor, you know, at the time, and, you know, his reputation is nowhere near what it is now. I mean, you talk about. You talk about one of the guys that really just totally screwed his reputation over for basically a bunch of bullshit. Rudy Giuliani is one of those guys. Holy shit. Well, who knows what was going on with him, though, in general, as we learn more, like, you know, the thing that he, you know, what he was caught doing in the second Borat movie, the lawsuit now where it appears that the woman who worked for him secretly recorded everything like i'm sure shit like that was probably going on longer than we realize but yeah, but still you can't but you can't then you can't deny it's just still that you can't deny you know he he transformed new york city as a as the mayor you know you look at what new york city was before he was elected mayor and then what it became afterwards i mean yeah, I mean, he he was spearheading a major uh, reconstruction of the city, especially the whole Times Square thing. Exactly. Good lord, folks! I mean, the young folks today just don't realize the reputation that New York City had, especially Times Square. I mean, Times Square was literally I mean, the deuce on HBO. That was Times Square. And New York City. I mean, New York City was always known for. Being trashy and just violent crime and this, that, and the other. Just had a bad reputation. But, uh, yeah, all the shit he's done, you know, post-mayor, you know, and all the other shit he's done. Yeah, just just totally just ruined any goodwill he had, you know, that he built up all those years. That's just insane. So All for uh, Donald Trump. Well, not just for Trump, but yes. But, uh... Okay, I'm looking at there was an audit of the Twin Towers Fund in May '03. There had been over 107 million in the fund. Uh, okay, with the exception of a few minor errors below, the fund had adequate controls over the revenues it received to ensure all contributions and other income received was accurately recorded in their books and records. In addition, distributions from the fund were made in accordance with the distribution committee. Rules and board-approved eligibility guidelines. Finally, funds administrative expenses were reasonable and necessary for its operation. And there were some minor errors, but it doesn't look like it was anything too big. So it seems like seems like the fund, thankfully, did operate above board. Which is rare when it comes to shit like that. <laughs> Very oh, yeah. rare. Oh, it ended up even. Oh, they, oh, oh, no, that was just from one source. They ended up dispersing over two hundred sixteen million. Yes, it's rare that that these funds that get around didn't get screwed around with, uh, you know, by somebody that was uh, had access to it. So to have something like that that uh, 
you know, man, I've been untouched is, uh, it's quite the, the, uh, the achievement. Yes. Although, a, lot char- a lot of these charities, man, just nothing but stuff that people put out there and then they steal from it. Yes. Although, uh, his de- it was Giuliani's deputy counsel, Lawrence A. Levy, who I guess he was his deputy counsel as mayor, maybe or something. And then start was helped him start the fund. And then, uh, after the fund closed out, Levy joined Giuliani to form Giuliani partners. And there you go. All right, back to SmackDown. So, uh, yeah, so we had Raven and Jason down. Are you Brian Alvarez now? Being being Rock and Chris Jericho by his qualification. That is a match. Um, Yeah, that's where Jericho hit Rock Rock with a chair shot. Rock hit people's elbow. Edge stormed into a room looking for Christian. He was surrounded by the Alliance and then eventually attacked by Christian. The more things change, the more they stay the same. But instead of alliance, it's people that see Christian as a dad. And then Kurt Angle went Wait, to a new contest with RBD. You're pronouncing his name wrong. That, that is, of course, Christian Cage. Well, whatever. If you're Nigel McGinnis, at least. Oh, my God. Michael Cole's frosted hair here. Well, this is that era. And Angle RVD, where we had all the stuff going on. And the show ended with Vince doing the RVD point as a crowd channel along with him as he did it. So there you go. That is SmackDown. Yeah. Oh, no, there's uh, some live. Oh, they're plugging the official theme for No Mercy, by the way, which is "Click Click Boom" by Saliva. A great song. Yes. Lots of live notes from Montreal. Ray Rougeau, welcome to fans. I got a big pop. He's still working with WF doing voiceovers for France. Although his French commentary is not seen in Quebec. Rougeau probably told people regarding the current product, there's no way he would even consider being a pro wrestler today because of the physical risks required. Electricity for all the Rock Jericho stuff was off the charts. More signs for RVD than anyone else on the show. It is expected that RVD will return to Montreal on March 18th. I mean, RVD Raw will return to Montreal on March 18th, the day at the WrestleMania. There was one sort of loud Vince Screw Brett chant. Only one Earl Hebner sign got through security, and, and Hebner, like an Ottawa, was kept off the show. <laughs> Vince did nothing on the show to get in a dig at Brett, and one person high up remarked this finally this night shows that issue has been put to bed. Funniest sign during the Undertaker's match was Dead Crowd Inc. <laughs> well, here's what's notable about that. This is the first show in Montreal since Survivor Series 97. It's the first show, period? Mm-hmm. First WF show in Montreal since Survivor Series. Wow. 97. I I if I'm not, not mistaken, what that. I read. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they waited a while. <laughs> I mean, because you look, all right, so 98. No, that's wrong. I don't know where I read that that said that. Maybe it's the first, maybe even the first TV. Probably. Because they ran, a, they ran, they ran a house show there on March the 6th, 98, August 2nd, 98 house show, November 8th, 98 house show. All right. Then you go to 99. They ran, they canceled the show on May 29th because of Owen's death. July 2nd house show, November 21st house show, and then 2000, they ran March 5th house show. That was the only show they ran 2000 in Montreal. And then 2001, March 18th, and then uh, this show. Yeah, the first TV. That's what it was. Mm. So they hadn't been there for TV or pay-per-view since Survivor Series 97. Gotcha. By the way, Chris, do you know why uh – 
Not long after this, they stopped using Dead Man Inc. Because it was a song or something, wasn't it? No, because a white supremacist prison gang started using the name and became fairly prominent. And, uh, yeah. Well, that shouldn't surprise nobody, I guess, considering. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure Mark was just... <coughs> I'm sure Mark was very forgiving of them taking away the name for that reason. <laughs> oh, me. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, uh, SmackDown drew a 3.6 rating, 4.1 realistic, uh, and a six share. Finished in fifth place of the six networks on the competitive night, which included booking shows such as Friends, which did a 16.0, Survivor, which did 11.4, CSI, which did a 14.1, Will and Grace, which did a 10.4, and the Yankees-Mariners playoff game, which did a 7.5 on Fox. And... Just as a reminder, because I feel like it just it's better to explain it each time since it doesn't take long. Realistic rating is because normally wrestling fans are used to cable ratings, which in this era we're only seeing cable ratings that are taken out of a percentage of the universe they're in, as opposed to out of every home with a TV like broadcast ratings are. So Dave does a realistic rating, quote unquote out of the homes with UPN, because UPN's not in every home, to give something more comparable to the cable ratings we are getting. There you go. All right, so that was the go-home show for No Mercy. Why is he not explaining this every week? Shouldn't he explain this every week? Can you mind just jumping into the Observer one week? What's well, a realistic rating. doesn't feel like he has to explain it like you do. Because people probably, I mean, I mean if you're reading in real time, you understand what he's talking about. But he doesn't, about. Ex- he doesn't explain how the cable ratings work that often either. So, I don't know. Well, well anyway. Amidst so much negative news came one of the best pay-per-view shows of the year. The No Mercy pay-per-view on August tw- uh, excuse me, October 21st from the Savas Center in St. Louis. The stars of the show were not only the wrestlers, but the crowd itself. While the glory days of St. Louis wrestling may have been decades ago, this is a crowd that came to enjoy long, hard-fought matches. And that's why the, what they were providing. While Rock and Chris Jericho came into the match of the year range for their performance, they had a crowd that had decided to love the confrontation. A St. Louis staple with a young baby face, ironically planned to go heel, climbing the mountain was challenging the established superstar. Granted, it was unique since the baby face climbing was actually older than the established superstar, but the emotion was there. The storyline of Jericho being unable to win the big one. And the television buildup, which included Jericho delivering a people's elbow, and Rock telling him the reason he hadn't been on top is just that he's not that good, struck a chord, at least with those who are following the product closely. While it's not been reflecting any business comparisons, the Rock Jericho feud has been the best, best angle in a long time. There was actually a moment right before the finish where Jericho blocked the people's elbow and turned it to the walls of Jericho. And then as Rock was about to reach the ropes, Pulled into the center, they had a tap out finish, but it was for the crowd in nobody's business. However, the storyline didn't call for it. Instead, Stephanie McMahon did a run in and indirectly led to Jericho, the king of false starts, winning the WCW title. Whether this turns into be yet another false start or the beginning of a Jericho as a bona fide top guy is probably something nobody really knows because the direction of the company changes so fast. But the two of them stole the show. It also brings up yet another question, as the crowd was more as the match went on behind Jericho than Rock, but the plan was for Jericho to turn. 
Given what happened to business when Austin was turned, turning rock against people's will is a huge risk. No jokes about Petty Feth here. There wasn't a bad match on the card, except the women's lingerie match, and that provided what was advertised as well. A bigger issue than the content of the show was the direct TV issue. Neither side backed down at the end, and most direct TV subscribers had no access to the show. Our response, which is usually a pretty good indicator of a good or bad buy rate, was on the low end. As it turned out, me and direct TV subscribers who have illegal access cards were able to view the show for free. Since direct TV and WF did agree to fulfill certain contracts with establishments that ordered the shows in one year package from direct TV, and that fee was put on channel 592. Not sure if this is related or not, but on Dish Network, like with DirecTV, if you order pay-per-view, you typically get the replay for free. However, this time, that wasn't the case. At the last minute, WF announced a live webcast of the show as a $15 pay-per-view. Most reports we got said it was a disaster. The server crashed during the first two matches. One report we got is that with a 300K stream, the quality wasn't bad. But with a lesser power computer, it was not a pleasant experience. As it turned out, about an hour before the show, only 500 orders have been placed. USC tried this more than a year ago when it had a little pay-per-view penetration. Looking at internet webcasting as a way to bypass cable. It opened up a new market, and they only did 1,000 orders, so it's just not something the masses were ready for. Wow, there's a lot going on in this paragraph. <laughs> okay. Um, DirecTV uh, hacked cards. Now. Oh, yes. Oh, I know about them. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know there were some people who would use modified cards with actual subscriptions. But wasn't it possible nope. to get... That's what I was about to say. Wasn't it possible to get... Or the main thing that you would get modified cards and you wouldn't even need to actually interface with DirecTV? Like, I in had, any legal I, way? I had a buddy of mine that specialized in this. And he tried his best to get me to take one. I said, I ain't doing it. I ain't playing that game. And I'm glad I didn't because he got zapped every card he he, he got, he made. It, it zapped him every single time. You know, I mean, to the point where he had to get a new receiver. Oh, it killed it his receiver? receiver? Oh. It fucked his receiver up so much from all the times they were zapping his cards that it wouldn't read any card. Hmm. You know, but I'm guessing he had like the burner. He wasn't constantly buying new cards. He had the card burner so he could update it. I would think. Well, either way, I mean, he just constantly kept trying to get me to get one. I'm not getting this shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, but yeah, but I mean, the thing that I think people wouldn't realize now is, and especially because I think people know, you know, hacked back, back to, better. Real, real quick, the people that don't direct TV back in those days, you could not get any programming unless you had an access card. That you had to put in the receiver. If you didn't have an access card, you couldn't pick up shit. Right. You had they to have the card. But the thing that's was... What, that's, what program, that's what gave you your program guides. That's what you know, did everything. This right. card. But there were people who would hack the cards. And the thing is, because it's satellite, it's one-way communication. If you have a hacked card, you don't... It's not like cable where you need to at least have a basic plan to get... To use a hacked box and get free pay-per-view and stuff. With Hack Direct TV, you didn't have to pay them a cent. No, that's the thing. Yeah, because it's just pulling down the signal out of the air. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know the the only communication that a receiver ever had, you know, in that era at least, had towards Direct TV was if you were ordering pay per view and it would make a phone call to Direct TV. 
Yeah, so, because your phone your phone was hooked up to your receiver through your Ethernet cable. Yeah. So if you have a hacked card, you just get every channel, and you have no need to actually communicate back to them. So the only way they had to fight it was to do these things where they would send. They had some way of sussing out. I don't know how they it were sending signals. At all. They were sending signals to the satellite. They sent a signal through the satellite that somehow only disabled the bad, the hacked cards. Exactly. Yes. It didn't screw. It didn't screw with the with the legit cards. No. Never. Who was it that got in a ton of trouble for uh, going on the radio and saying it? it was it Craig Carton? Uh, sounds like something he would have done. <laughs> I'm looking. Uh... But but yeah, like I said, my buddy got zapped. I, that's it, probably ten times. And so he finally just gave up. <laughs> he just finally gave up on it and just went his normal business. You know, just did his, you know, you know, used the TV the proper way. And now, I mean, and then, you know, it went too long after that is when they quit even using access cards, period. And it was just it, whatever it was was built into the new receivers. Yes. But yeah, yes. I mean, this. Because I mean, you don't have to have you don't have to hook up a phone line anymore. You know, that man do that forever. Hook a phone line up to your receiver no more. I mean, yeah, you don't have to worry about none of that stuff anymore. Well, how did they end up changing ordering pay per view? I guess by over oh, the internet, I would think, right? Because you have That's to just, be able to communicate back to them somehow. Well, you always just hit the button. It's you know, always hit a button on. I mean, back in the day, even though you hit up the phone, or you used to order by but by your remote control. But it had to have a way to communicate back to them because satellite is one way. Well, it's because going through the phone line. That's but what then I'm once saying. The, but but yeah, I guess you know now it's through high speed internet that right. you don't need you don't need it no more. Right. I'm guessing that it's just synced over Wi Fi these days. Well, over Wi Fi, yes, yes, yes. But yes, so that's you know, back to where what we were talking about. If you had a hacked card you could get the channel that had the closed circuit feed because that was sent out over DirecTV. So if you had a card, you could still watch the pay-per-views on DirecTV throughout this whole impasse. Um, well, through, 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 you know, it, through the deal that they have with uh, the bars, yes. Right. So internet streaming, and at this point, I guess because you're not offering comparable quality necessarily – they're char- able to charge less without pissing off cable companies. Okay, so 2001. Trying to think where we are in the general landscape of streaming. Not, and stuff. It, it ain't good. <laughs> it ain't good yet, it, but it, like things it, are it improving good. a little for people with broadband. Like there was the there was the 300k America One stream. Remember? But not many people had that technology. I mean, 2001, you're still looking at a mix of the bulk of, of people in this country on dial-up Yeah, still. And this is, I think, right around the beginning of me having cable internet, if I remember right. I, yeah, I mean, I didn't get high-speed internet for quite a few years after this. It wasn't available in my area. Hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I mean... <laughs> It, it, some places took a while. Yeah, I don't know if I consider like the number of buys a disaster. You know. Yeah. I feel like UFC, given their penetration in terms of like, well, oh wait, this is a one, so they're getting back on. No, wait, but it's not right away. He's saying he did it he a year said, ago. He said two thousand. Yeah. So 
given that they're doing well, I mean, they're doing well relative to DirecTV, but like, honestly, I feel like doing a thousand orders in the context of 2000 UFC with them not being covered anywhere is pretty good. Yeah. Especially the state of the internet at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just crazy reading this stuff, though. You know, with the technology that we have now, you know, what it was, you know, when it's just now starting to get going. I mean, now, I mean, let's just, you know, before we move on, let's just, I mean, be blunt about it. These days, much of the time, what you can get over streaming is better quality than what you can get over the air. Uh, not just over yeah. the air or over cable, I should say. Well, DirecTV doesn't do – I mean the highest resolution they have is 1080i unless you have a 4K receiver that you, you could use for 4K pro, pro programming. But even then, that's only on separate channels. Right. There are only a few 4K channels. Right. Whereas like, you know, if I, when I was watching Last of Us or Yellow Jackets well, or whatever this so- last season – Sunday Ticket. Sunday Ticket this year is on YouTube TV. And, you know, watching it on watching that compared to me watching the broadcast version, you can see major differences. Is it 4K or is it 1080p? Uh, the YouTube uh, TV is, uh, I think, it's a 4K. Okay. It's either that or 1080p. One of the two. I mean. But, but yeah, it was a, like watching. Like, yeah, watching, like, The Last of Us with the Dolby Vision HDR and everything, once I got the new TV, it was definitely noticeable, it's in some scenes at least, the better quality. Yeah, because, yeah, you can't – there's a little bit of 4K cable and stuff, and there's nothing broadcast. So, you know, that's how far we've come. Yeah. All right, so let's get back to the show here as uh, I switch tabs. Alright, uh, the only real negative on the show is both the main events ended up with McMahon family interference leading the finishes. There's a clamor for less involvement, particularly Shane and Stephanie. If there are any complaints about the show, it usually revolved around this. The main event, a three-way with Steve Austin retaining the title of a Rob Van Damme current angle, was built up with the idea that Vince McMahon would make a difference. It was a risk because they basically told the fans the finish wasn't going to be until Vince came out. However, the performance by all three, and angle in particular, was such that it was a match that had heat all the way. The decision for Van Dam to do the job instead of Angle is like one of those political deals. There's been a lot of dressing room talk for the show that this would be the night Van Dam got his payback. There's a lot of resentment of Van Dam's push, particularly because many see it as Paul Heyman's manipulation, and Heyman has both his friends and foes politically, both in the dressing room and the office. Adding the salt to the wound is that Van Dam gets such a great crowd reaction every night, and it's just the Van Dam push started, business has been way down. Van Dam opening people up our way so often hasn't helped those who are going to be resentful of a newcomer that the crowd took so strongly, even before the company reacted to it, and started making him a major part of the show. All this basically allows those who believe Van Dam should and shouldn't be given the huge push with plenty of legitimate arguments on either side, which makes it even more of an issue. Several had compared Van Dam with Jericho when he arrived. Van Dam had the good fortune to arrive when Triple H wasn't around. He didn't run into that problem. But the arguments for Jericho is that he got just as strong reactions when he arrived, and whatever sloppiness and weaknesses he may have had as a worker weren't as much Van, as Van Damme's. But he's always kept in the pack, even though a lot of wrestlers did see him as the guy, even more than Chris Benoit, because Jericho's stronger interviews and more charismatic, as the next guy in line for the push that Van Damme got. 
When the team is winning, they're using as a quarterback controversy. When the team is losing, there's often too much emphasis put on the quarterback. As it turned out, Austin was split up in Harway once again, near 12 staples in the back of his head. But this time it was from two Harvard chair shot by Vincent Mann. <laughs> Van Dam. Van Dam's an interesting thing here because Dave brings up the point that yes, when he starts up and is getting exposure, there's no Triple H around. Yeah. And it kind of makes you wonder how the alliance angle would have went if Triple H was around. I've thought about that before, and the only answer I can ever muster is different. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, we always see it how it is now. I mean, how it was when he wasn't there and how bad it was. How is it if he is there? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does he go to WCW instead of Austin? I mean, is he the WF savior? I mean, who knows? It's definitely an interesting thought of, of how it would have went with him there. But we don't have that, so we didn't get it, get that chance. He is a genius for tearing his quad at the exact time he did. <laughs> you can say that. All right, the show drill sold at 15,647, which was 14,486, fans 762, 255, and another 123,466, or 86 in merchandise sales. All right, uh, the two dart matches saw APA beat Chris Canyon and Hugh Morris and Bradshaw Penn Canyon after the fan closed line from hell in the first heat match. Oh, these are heat matches, not dart matches. And then you had uh, Kidman retain the Cruiserweight title, pinning Scotty Tuhani, the W7 Cruiserweight title. We have a backslide using the ropes. Scotty used the worm on Kevin after the match to get a pop. Well, uh, remember, Chris? I mean, yes, it's the WCW Cruiserweight title. The WWF slash E Cruiserweight title has always been the WCW Cruiserweight title. It's the WCW Cruiserweight title and the WWF Light Heavyweight title. Yes, yes. And then they, the Light Heavyweight title just stops existing and the WCW Cruiserweight title becomes the WWF Cruiserweight title. Yes. Initially, with the WCW belt that says WCW on it. Well, of course. All right, the pay-per-view started off with the Hardys retaining the WCW tag titles being Lance Storm and Hurricane Helms 742 in a hot opener. Both announcers talk about how Helms started out training with the Hardys in North Carolina. Ivory, Molly, and Lita were all at ringside, which is at least one person too many. Ivory interfered to start a brief heat spot on Jeff. Hurricane did a cape launch on, on both the Hardys on the floor. Funer falls, Lita speared Molly, Jeff gave Ivy the old leg drop, low blow spy. Storm had the half grab on Jeff when Lita came off the top with her on Rana. Crowd was really hot for the wrestling holes at prelim matches. Matt ended up uh, delivered the twist of Baylor Hurricane, followed by Jeff Swanton, and Matt got the pin. They were clearly tr- treating the WCW belts as secondary WF belts, which is in everyone's mind they are, but they got to change that perception. Or they might as well have just dropped the belts, three and a quarter stars. So guess what they do? It, the, the program's ending in a month. Yeah. yeah. William Regal confronted Rob Van Dam with a stern warning, telling him to apologize to Steve Austin. Van Dam refused, and Regal warned him not to do anything he might regret. Vince showed up, so he was going to make an impact. Great. Taspin Kane in 1009. Notice WCW guys who go over on WF Mainline Star are actually WF guys. Well, yeah. The two put together a good match. Kane threw Tess over the top rope. There's a press slam spot, although he didn't get Tess all the way up. Tess clocked him on the ring bell right in front of Neil Patrick. 
to establish Patrick as the heel. And pretty much told everyone the screw job was coming. We still can get the pin. Tess Lit was busted open early. Tess whipped Kane shown to the post and did his high kick outside the ring and threw him in for a near fall. Tess made a second kick. Kane choked slam for a near fall. Traded punches. That wasn't so good. Kane missed the clothesline off the top. Tested the pump out of slam. No, he's feet on three in front of the man. And even they did the elbow at the top for a near fall. The crowd was popping. They actually cared about who won or lose this way. Tess got a chair, but Kane dropped hit the chair in his face. Kane grabbed the chair, but Nick Patrick stopped him from using it. This threatened Kane so Tess could do what he was supposed to do, which was to kick a death. But it was more like the football kick to the chin for the pin. After the match, Kane chose to land Nick Patrick twice, left him for dead with a power bomb. Three stars. Kane was having a pretty nice little run of good matches here. Yeah. When he was in singles, I should say. In tags yeah, he with was Undertaker, fine. not so much. He was fine. Stacy Keebler showed Matt Hardy her lingerie. Matt was mesmerized. Then Lita showed up. They hugged. Matt's mind was elsewhere. Trouble in paradise. Uh-oh. <sighs> Which leads to Tori Wilson beating Stacy Keebler in three minutes and eight seconds for the lingerie match. The deal is that the wrestle in lingerie. Probably more conservative lingerie than people were thinking, but what people were thinking probably wouldn't have done the trick because he two, these two tried to wrestle. It wasn't good. In fact, it was embarrassing by most standards. Keebler brought out a cat of nine tails and whipped both Wilson and referee Jack Doan, the perfect referee for, name for this match. They rolled over Doan. They got up and did this Malenko Guerrero series of cradles. Seriously, they wonders if those two ever thought when they came up with all those reversals, they'd be using a match like this six years later. Tori tried the Tajiri springboard body block off the ropes. Tried being the key word. And then Cradle Keebler. It's probably better than it had any right to be and probably isn't worth rating as a wrestling match. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Let's see, we've got a stamp mare off the second rope. <laughs> There's the, the springboard. Oh, my goodness. I mean, honestly, that's not Tori's fault. That's Stacy's fault. Yeah. Oh, that's a great pinfall. Oh, and she spanked her. <laughs> and she basically did, like, a reverse alligator clutch on her. Like, kind of a between an O'Connor roll and an alligator clutch. But... Yeah, she tried to do the Tajiri, like, yeah, handspring, like, superstar elbow, and Stacy was too close to her, so she just bumped into her. And this is the era where we don't have Lawler on commentary, so he's not reacting to this as, uh... Well, let's let's hear how, uh, Paulie reacted. Yeah, today this match would get a cowboy hat emoji tweet. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right, so uh, this followed up with, oh, how timely. 
Edge beat Christian to win the Continental Ladder match at 2216. Hey. They need to retire on a ladder match, at least until Mania. These guys went out there and killed themselves, and the best reaction is going to be we've already seen this. This is a 2001. <laughs> but yet we still have ladder matches. I mean, well, not with the same kinds of bumps, though. I know, but still, it's the ladders. I mean, yeah, it's always going to be impressive to watch, but still, I mean, there's not a whole lot more new stuff you can do with ladders and tables, but goddamn, the people don't lose their fucking minds for tables. Ladders too, but tables even more. I just, I don't get it, but it is what it is. Yeah, well, I mean, think about it this way, like, in terms of, you know, being overexposed in 2001, you know, it was what uh, less than six months earlier that they had the sec no i just realized yeah between mania between mania and this point it's a little over six months or thereabouts you have you've had two tlc matches and at least you know this latter match if not more you know you had the mania tlc you had the benoit and jericho tlc you have this latter match it's a lot yeah, yeah, it is. <clears throat> anyway, the two falls on ladders. Christian crosses up on a ladder. Teeter tar spot with Edge's chin. Edge did the old Quebecers cannonball or fantastic slip finish on Christian up top of the ladder. Christian catapulted Edge's face to the ladder. So two ladders and a climb. At one point, Edge did with a little reverse DT off about six or so feet up an eight-foot ladder. Christian did an actual reverse DT on Edge from the same height. Christian brought in two chairs for the concerto, but Edge managed to throw Christian's head into the chair. Edge brought a third ladder. All three were stood up under the belt. Actually, before this, Edge put the ladder horizontal on two chairs, put Christian on the ladder, and splashed him off the top rope. After all three ladders were set up, they both climbed, lost balance, and both threw over the top rope to the floor. Christian was climbing, and in reverse to the previous finish, Edge gave him a low blow with a chair. Managed to edge lay Christian over the back of one, the two ladders with his head on the chair, whacked him for the sec- with the second chair for the concerto, then grabbed the belt to win. Can't fault the effort, but it just seemed way too early in the program for Edge to win, let alone do a ladder match. This wasn't designed to be the blow-off of the program, three and three-quarter stars. And then it was, and then they basically never interact with each other again on screen until a few weeks ago. Basically, yeah. Which is really weird when you think about it. Well, no, and they yeah. did the rum- they did the rumble together a few years ago too. But you know, yeah. when Christian yeah. came back. But other than that, like, and yeah, that ladder bridge splash—they are not yet doing the gimmicked wood ladder, so that looked like it absolutely sucked for Christian to take because that ladder sure didn't did. budge. Yeah. Dudley is retaining the tag titles. The F tag titles being Big Show and Tajiri in 919. Tajiri did a flip dive over the ropes on Buff Guys. Bubba came back with a full Nelson bomb on Tajiri. Tajiri had Devon on a thrust kick as Devon came off the ropes. Tagged the Big Show behind the rest back, allowing them to do the What's Up on Tajiri. Can you imagine 15 years someone reading this scene in a wrestling move called What's Up? Well, how about 22 years, Dave? What's up? Then again, imagine what some of the booking ideas will sound like on hindsight. <laughs> Better than some of the booking ideas we've had in recent years. When, when was the actual What's Up ad com- campaign? 2000. Okay, so it's still fairly recent. Oh, very, yes. Okay. Tajiri turned a fireball to a DTO on Bubba in a nice spot. Snow f- show tagged in. Not out Snow. It showed good aggressiveness. 
Sebastian on Bubba for but Devon clipped him. A tarantula by Tajiri on Devon. Tajiri did a springboard off the ropes with a double elbow on the both Dudleys and then Blue missed. But it wound up in the eyes of the referee Jimmy Corderas. Big Show chose Lamb Bubba, but no referee. Rhino came out and got a huge pop. Like, scary huge when he gored Big Show. Tajiri gave Devon a kick to the side of the head for a near fall, but ended up being vanquished with a 3D. Someone there, Paul Heyman, made a comparison with the Midnight Express and the Dudleys. Not sure Dave would go that far, but Rhino, after the match, said he the Lions wasn't going to be a joke anymore. Somehow, Dave thinks when we check back in two months, that will be a comedy line. Three and a quarter stars. Oh, there won't be an alliance in two months. <laughs> no. But, I mean, considering, I mean, it's Dudley's against the Jerry and Big Show. I mean, I remember that match being a fun match. And Rhino, Rhino was always that guy, man, who always got big pops. Yes. Well, you knew this was going to happen. After SmackDown, Undertaker pinned Booker T in 12-12. Very good brawl. This may have been the most impressive Booker's loss since, look, since coming here. Because Undertaker isn't the easiest guy to have a good match with. Now, the Undertaker didn't hustle because he worked hard and gave Booker a lot of offense, and he usually does. Great crowd heat as well, especially for big spots. Booker miss, hit a missile drop kick for near fall early. He came off the ropes into a foot up by the other taker, who got near fall after a DDT and a hug and leg drop. Huge pop for the spinner rooting, both a lot of cheers and boos. Booker uses that skip for near fall as taker, got his foot over the ropes. Booker had a look, did a low blow, but ended up taking the last right power bomb out of the corner for the pin. Not the right finish, three and a quarter stars. Well, I mean, he pinned him on TV, so you know if that's going to happen, you know he's going to lose more yeah. than not. So yeah, and I gotta say, I mean, especially this era where it is his finish and he has no other finish. I hated how often they did the heel suddenly does the ten punches for no apparent reason and gets last ride at finish. They overused yeah. that so much. I mean, God, yep. like, I don't know if it was his ability to lift people that way or whatever that changed, but, like, when they would do last ride spots in, like, the later Mania Streak matches, it was usually set up that way, too. Like, I don't know what it, they just completely overdid that, that it was, because it was always people like Heels or even the type of babyface who would not do that, who did it. Like, it was such a telegraph. Well, also, because in general, like, in that era, like, Babyfaces even doing the ten punches in the corner had largely gone away. Yeah, it was a rare spot. So every time you see it and someone's doing it to The Undertaker, it's like, oh, we know what's about to happen here. Well, yeah, and, and it, but that happens a lot in matches, though, with people. I mean, it's just, you you know, it's especially with finishes. They still overdid it, though. You just know that, okay... We're the, fi the finish ain't happen until such such happens. Like Dave mentioned with the Vince thing in the main event of this show. People knew that Vince was going to be involved in the finish, so no finish was going to be believable until Vince showed up. Hmm. You know? So. Yeah. All right. Chris Jericho won the WCW title from The Rock in 2344. Crowd was electrically even locked up, almost like Rock and Austin and Mania. They needed to bottle this crowd and take them on tour. Jim Ross brought up some of the great title events in St. Louis history and they're throwing out names like Kaniski, Briscoe, and Flair. For some reason, Jim Ross brought up the Black Scorpion. Flair was Black Scorpion in 1989 Starcade in St. Louis, but somehow Dave didn't think quite fit into that category. Heyman said WCW title, they spent far than any title in the sport. 
Well, if considered WCW and NWA titles one, which isn't correctly, I mean, correct technically, but many do. Then it'd be correct, at least as far as this country goes. Both guys wrestle babyface style, or rock playing the old Jerick St. Louis champ role. When people think of the unique style of San Luis events with the babyface for babyface clean title matches, there were fans like both guys with root for the title change because they know it's history. This is pretty close to it. Well, until Stephanie showed up. They lit each other up with chops. You know, Jericho's had matches where everybody's good. I have no idea why that started playing then. Go ahead. His match with Rhino where he slipped off the roads a few times and his three waves with Austin Benoit where he wasn't his best had tagged him with a label of not being a main event worker. Anyway, this should not tag him for at least the next few weeks. Jericho got near falls after Mr. Rocky Hurricanrana. Jericho did a rock bomb and Linus off and then near fall. Based on the story, he couldn't beat Rock. Jericho missed the people's elbow and Rock used a sharpshooter, but Jericho made the ropes. Fans boo when Rock got the move on. The first time they should leaning towards uh, one over the other. And the match story made them favor Jericho's underdog. Rock used a rock bottom through the smash announce table. Jericho blocked another one in the ring, but was hit with a spine buster. Rock set people's elbow, but Jericho blocked it and put it on the walls. Rock nearly got to the road, so Jericho pulled him in. Crowd's ready to explode for a clean finish. That wasn't the story for today. Stephanie showed up and threw a chair in the ring. Jericho knocked her off the apron. Rock hit a DT and then threw Stephanie in the ring, gave her a rock bottom. So Jericho gave Rock a reverse rush on the next week, face first onto a chair for the pin. The stroke. After the match, Rock grabbed the chair and instead hitting Jericho with it, just handed it to him. Four and a half stars. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, a hell of a match for Jericho. He hadn't had one like that in that promotion yet. They had excellent chemistry. Yes, it it's this and the, the Triple H pay-per-view match. The first one are, are his best matches in the company up to this point. But yes, let's go to the clip then and see this. And the, the debut of, not the stroke, the breakdown. Chris? Yeah. You know, for someone who was not a wrestler and probably did not have that much training, when Stephanie would take manager bumps, she took them very well. Try she didn't fall out. That's well, good, but uh, also, especially with the, the the boots she's wearing too, with those heels. Yeah. Um. Now, just to since it hasn't come up, the storyline here is that as one of the heads of the alliance, she's taking interest in the WCW title match. Is the idea? Yeah, basically. Okay. The 
the chair got stuck on the uh, apron skirt. Yeah. And is not cooperating with Jericho trying to push it out of the ring and eventually just gives up. Say that they. Who knows? Because that was weird. 
Because you see him start to talk, and then there's a cut, and it doesn't seem like it happened at the time, and JR doesn't sound like he's goofing on Heyman with the transition to the main event. So, huh. Some odd edits yeah. this week on the network. We've had a few. Yeah. But anyway. And we already talked about the match and stuff, and this was a good feud, and it... If Triple H didn't get in the way, uh, Jericho getting a top heel push would have worked out better. But we know what. Well, that's what you know. That goes well. That goes into the Triple H thing too. If Triple H is here, how does that affect all that? You know, with the Jericho situation. Mm-hmm. I think people forget. Like, yes, he did. I mean, he was a heel, but he did it by cheating and stuff. When Jericho's undisputed champion, like. In terms of like being a serious heel, he was doing the best work of his career up to that point. He was yeah. not comedy heel, Chris Jericho. He was doing these great like conceited heel world champion promos. Like I remember, there was one where he's at, at by like a pool and he's got his belts out with him and stuff. He was doing great work. He was having great main event style matches. Um, I for- holy shit, we'll get to the main event in a second. I I forgot that Kurt Angle ever hit the moon salts on anyone after breaking Bob Holly's arm. And it did not look fun for RVD when he took it. But anyway. No. All right. Steve Austin retained the Dugatown the three-way over Kurt Angle and Rob Van Dam by pinning Van Dam in 15-15. Angle, who's supposed to be the odd man out, ended up being the star of the match. He opened throwing four suplexes in a row, two on each guy. Did a few spots where they throw Angle out of the ring and tease Austin versus Van Dam. Lots of spots where they do their finishers and the third guy would break it up. Austin even got an STF on Van Dam at one point. Austin catapulted Angle into the post and wrapped Van Dam's leg around it. Van Dam did a flip launch outside the ring on both men. Van Dam came off with an after with a leg drop. Angle did his picture-perfect moonsault on Van Dam. Angle also jumped on Van Dam for the pin, but Angle saved. Van Dam went up with both guys laid out for the frost slash, where they both moved, so it kept the mystery as to uh, who, who he was going for. Angle with a German on Van Damme and save. Also with a stunner on Angle and save. Van Damme with slow moonsault on Austin and save. Yeah, he's just going. Angle slam on Van Damme, save. That was one too many as the crowd then popped for the last one. Austin tried to pile driver on the table on the Angle, who flipped out of it. And Austin landed hard on the table, which didn't break. V- uh, Vince came out. Van Damme missed spin kick on Austin. Angle did belly-belly suplex on Van Damme. Austin hit a stunner on Angle. He rolled out of the ring, avoiding the pin. Man, man hit Austin hard in the back of the head with a chair shot, busted him open. Van Damme hit the frost splash, but Angle recovered and made a save. Angle then hit five German suplexes and got an Olympic slam on Austin. But Shane made the save, knocking Angle out of the ring. Vince attacked Shane. They rolled over the announce table. While in the ring, Austin hit Van Damme with a stunner for the pin. Finish actually was actually flat after an awesome match because the attention was with the McMahon's and the finish is not on the finish itself. After the review ended, McMahon got in the ring and raised Angle's hand to Big Pop, and then with the raise Van Damme's hand, but Van Damme blew him off. And then Kurt Angle turns multiple times in the next one. <laughs> yeah. What was his star rating here? Uh, he didn't have one listed for some reason. Okay. But he rated every other match. It's weird that he forgot to put the star rating. Hmm. <sighs> All right, let's watch the finish of this, shall we? Yes, I'll start with the uh, start with this. Yeah. 
my god. So, Kurt Angle took the Kurt Angle over the top bump, and you could hear it. He smacked his head face first on the floor. Yeah. Uh, that was terrifying. Okay, it was his hand. Oh, it wasn't his head. It was his hand, Bix. Okay. I wonder if his he hand had a purpose for the sound. His head might have hit, though, too. Uh, I mean, you could, it looks like there may be something going on. Let's see. I wish they had a slow-mo on here. Yeah, his hand makes the noise, but I think his head hit, too. And then, okay, wait, now let me go back and watch Vince here. <laughs> Vince is like a cartoon coming hey, to the rows of ringside do they have on that side <laughs> look at how far back the lower bowl crowd is on yeah. the unstable side well, they had a good house yeah Also noticing, yeah, they're not playing any of the entrance music into the TV feed on any of the stuff we've watched so far. But I don't know if I've ever watched this whole show or if I did at the time. Because I remember only hearing about the Rock Jericho match. But I can't remember if I ever watched it back. I remember their Raw match where they switched the title back being quite good, though, too. Yeah. But seems like it was a quality show, especially in a year where they did not have a lot of those. Yeah, I mean, you could tell that the alliance angle is starting to fall by the wayside. So it's still there's more focus on the actual in ring than the angle itself. Yeah. So that that probably helped with the quality of the show. But we're not done, as we have the aftermath coming up. But before that, Triple H worked out in the ring for the first time for the pay-per-view in St. Louis. He's targeting early December for his comeback. Well, it would be another month later. I mean, he, I'm assuming he was cleared, and because of the timing, they just decided to do the in-ring comeback at the Yeah, Rumble. I mean, what? yeah. In one of the strangest moments ever on wrestling television, almost like the moment you've watched something crumble right before your eyes, just as Vince and Liniment Man tease making out inside the ring in front of nearly 10,000 fans in Kansas City, 
and when erupted, a challenge was made and accepted. For the member eight teams of our series, which is the biggest money match and with the biggest stipulation in the history of wrestling, with the highest stipulations in the history of wrestling, but we'll, we'll come nowhere close to that level, a match with WF versus the Alliance with a loose promotion having to disband. On SmackDown the next night, those draconian stipulations seem to be amended, more along the lines of the losing McMahons and their company would be under the control of the winning McMahons. If the feud was done correctly, the idea that a company would fold as a stipulation. If people still believe in stipulations would do numbers, that would make Rock versus Austin green with envy. We don't need to go into why this show won't do close to Rock versus Austin numbers. It probably won't even approach the original Invasion baby numbers because it's beating a dead horse. So what does this all mean? To give the Alliance a badly needed credibility since they lost virtually all the key matches and when it says Rob Van Dam, no newcomer has been booked in a way to get them over. The Alliance was destroyed, including losing four championships on the lowest rated, non-holiday edition of Raw in its regular time slot many years. The rating is proof of what everyone knows. This angle is dead because WWE and ECW were never given the necessary wins of credibility. Titles mean nothing, although MSG last week and the Austin Angle rating were the ultimate proof of that. And people are sick of the McMahon family on television. It may matters worse, they aren't so keen on The Rock, Austin, and everyone else that used to carry their promotion either. After all, in theory, it's still sort of picking seriously, even though we all know this isn't going to happen. That could be the end of the WF. Which still does mean something after 17 years in national television and another couple of decades of the history of Northeast. It could also be the end of WCW, which has similar lengthy history. If it's traced back to either Jim Carr Promotions in the Carolinas, which goes back to the beginning of time, or George Championship Wrestling, which on a national basis dates back some 23 years on national cable. So why on this show, after this announcement was made, was the angle not even sold as anything special? It was referred to, but hardly as an important point. Hardly as anything to change history. The bottom line is that fans have lost their confidence in the product. They've been taught not to believe in stipulations. Most seem to expect that one side will lose and then still exist. And it really doesn't matter. They've done everything possible to ensure a failure of their own secondary product if they were launching. And if they still think of secondary product, they suppose they could lose and then return next night on Raw with the whole cup in their mask. Why not? If the public doesn't believe the context of the product anyway. <sighs> It's, I mean, you, you get what Dave is saying, but the wrestling fan has changed. You know, um, this they don't believe this shit's real anymore. You know, I mean, and they know that, look, they know that if there's going to be a WF versus WCW battle, the WCW is not going to win. Yes, although it does devalue it if they're not going to live up to it. Well, of course. But still, I mean, good lord! He, he acts like reneging on stip matches is something that's not, not been done forever. You know, wrestling promotions have been doing doing that for decades. This is nothing new. And you can I mean, overdo it. You can, if you have the right story, you can do it. But now, granted, well, they don't they don't go back on it anyway. But no. The whole angle was fucked up to begin with, so why <laughs> why should you expect anything different? You know? That's just the way it is. Our viewers of Raw continue their path of rage. The show to be redone at the last minute as they had a show written, and about three hours before showtime, they got word to Austin, who the show was built around along with the McMahons, wouldn't be able to appear. Oops. So the show with Vince and Linda coming out holding hands. Let's see. The backstory is that Vince had her committed to a sanitarium and drugged her up to fool around with Tristratus. 
Then she recovered, caught him with his pants down with Tori Wilson. They haven't been seen together since. So what explanation was given for all this? Well, the same explanation Regal gave for joining the Alliance, although at least Vince had a lengthy interview to explain the issue, which was ignored. And they wonder why ratings are falling. Vince came out and actually handed it therapy. Then thought about being in the best shape of his life, like he was Bruno San Martino or something. And the two were about to make out when Stephanie and Stephanie, Stane and, Shane and Stephanie came out. <laughs> they in about 30 seconds set of the Rivers Series match and announced the matches for the show. Mama called Stephanie a man-eater and Shane a wuss, which Dave spells W-O-O-S. Jeez, the guy goes toe-to-toe with the rock and angle, and now he's a wuss? Regal came out and kept Shane from hitting the ring on Vince. Actually, this segment only went nine minutes. It just felt like 20. You see, that's the biggest problem, bigger problem than anything else, is not the stipulation of shit, is how they you know, do shit that don't explain like Vince and Linda being back together again, like husband and wife. Linda was last on TV announcing we would start seeing WCW matches to appease Shane as an yes. Vince move. Yes. And now they're holding their hands together. It was ridiculous. And right, I guess we're going to watch four months ago. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I guess we're going to watch uh, Vince and Linda be passionate here, Bix. Yes, yes, just that unbridled passion that surely has been there in the last, uh, I don't know, eight years of their relationship or thereabouts. But before I do, maybe I need a little personal jump start. Yeah! Oh, yeah, baby! Here comes the money! Here we go! All of the chemistry of Bill and Hillary in 2016. What is Stephanie wearing here? Let's see. Oh, they're ungrateful children. Two kids that didn't go to the woodshed often enough. The co-owner of the Alliance. A cut-off sleeveless sweater with leather skirt. Okay. Probably the first time that Shane and Stephanie walked in on uh, Vince and Linda doing some type of coitus. Probably or probably not? Probably not. Well, that's not coitus, Chris. Well, some type of. Some type of making out or uh, heavy, heavy petting or uh, whatever. Shane McMahon and Stephanie McMahon Hill. Well, quite frankly, it wouldn't hurt my feelings at all. But be that as it may. <laughs> also, Lin- Linda's uh, power suit here is not working well with the TV cameras. It's turning into one of those optical illusions. You know, one one thing that makes me sick is watching two old people kiss. Why don't? Why do you think I don't like a bald anymore? Ah. <laughs> Oh, man. Hey, it's still Stephanie's old voice. Why don't you two old prunes just dry up and blow away? (laughs) How disrespectful. I mean, really, you've survived long enough, Mom and Dad. Why don't you just move on down to Florida and retire with the rest of the elderly people? 
before you know, actually, uh, kids, you know, actually, we, we've, we've thought about that. But uh, we decide now is probably not the time, not just yet. You see, we didn't have everything handed to us on a silver platter like you have. You see, everything that we have, we got it the old-fashioned way. Unlike the two of you, we earned it. And the way that we earned it was, well, we took risk. We took calculated risk. Like buying your father's promotion for far below market value and being allowed to pay in installments that were significantly less than what the company had profited each quarter. Yeah, Vince definitely had his advantages, but he, but Vince did grind in yeah. his younger years. Well, also, someone who was not coming from a position of privilege would not have been able to get the lines of credit and loans that he had to finance the expansion either. But also, Vince also, you know, again, didn't grow up in the greatest of No, no, he didn't. He didn't, but in terms of building his business, well, yeah, it's a bit of a different story, yeah. It helped, yeah, to have dad. And quite frankly... There we go again. <laughs> that's what we're here tonight to propose uh, yet another calculated risk. You see, um, I've had it with this alliance crap, this invasion crap. What I'm proposing is thing come to a head once and for all. What I'm proposing is that Survivor Series. That for once, that name truly is what it means, surviving. What I'm suggesting to the two of you is there's one match. And in that one match, that match will determine which entity will finally survive, Shane. Stephanie. What I'm proposing is, well, maybe it's the survival of the fittest, if you would. It's winner take all at Survivor Series. What about it? Wow. Now that is high stakes. The ultimate stakes. What's the matter? Afraid to lose everything you have? Hey, first off, take the bass out of your voice. You understand me? You want to put it all on the line? You want to put it all on the line? You're on. You're on a Survivor Series. Bring it. Well, that's terrific. That takes care of Survivor Series. And I'm also going to propose that tonight be the beginning of the end for the two of you. <coughs> oh, yeah. You see, all these, and quite frankly, you've done a, a decent job of acquiring WWF championships. All that comes to an end tonight. Let's start. Let's start with the WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Oh, hey, 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 hey. I propose back, that it... Back down just one second. Stone Cold Steve Austin, let's take the World Wrestling Federation champion. Let's take him for one second. Last night at No Mercy, it was you, Dad, that blasted Stone Cold Steve Austin in the back of the head with a steel chair. Thus, you screwed yourself. Austin had 12 staples. 
to close that wound in the back of his head. Austin got a concussion because of you, and therefore Stone Cold Steve Austin, unfortunately, will not be here to compete this evening. But you know who is here to compete and who will be competing? Speaking of champions, is the new WCW champion, Chris Jericho. Steph, sorry. Since Austin isn't going to be here to compete, I, I, I regret to inform you that Chris Jericho has already been booked to compete here tonight. Uh, as a matter of fact, in this very ring, Chris Jericho's involved in a tag team match. Jericho is going to help beat the Dudley boys and bring back the WWF title where it belongs. And by the way, by the way, Jericho's tag team partner... Here tonight, The Rock. Oh my God! Jericho and The Rock together. And quite frankly, quite frankly, if the two of you are up for it, there are lots more challenges headed your way here tonight. Hey, you want to keep throwing out challenges, huh, Dad? Well, how about this challenge? What's to stop me from walking down this ramp and kicking your ass? Here we go. They got it on last night to the father and son and no mercy. And wait, there's the Alliance Commissioner William Regal of WWF Turnbull. Come on, Shane. Hey, come on, Shane. What is stopping you from coming into the ring? Huh? Vince ready, willing, and able to fight his own son right here. What a volatile situation this is. Hold on. Ready, ready and willing. Able, I don't know. You're lucky. What is going on with Heyman's audio on this show so far? I have no idea. Not in front of mom. What a Not in front son. of mom. Oh, come on. What a loving son is Shane McMahon. I like Shane O'Mac. Not in front of, of, no one. of mom. Vince. Look at our children. What has happened to them? Where did we go wrong? Look at our daughter. Our daughter has become a man-eater. And our son is a wuss. Wow. Well, uh, I guess that segment set the land speed record for quite frankly's. Yeah. Um, God, I remember thinking not just the Vince Linda thing, and I it really just rewatching it, hammered it home again now. The way Shane just accepts immediately, there's no back and forth. <laughs> Stephanie yeah, doesn't say anything. Yeah. It's just very blunt and abrupt. If the intent was like, okay, we're done with this shit, mission accomplished, I guess, but yeah, it came off very uh, uninspired. 
Yeah. Perhaps even lackadaisical. Yeah. <clears throat> lead and Trish Stratus beat Molly and Ivory in 420. When Lita pinned Ivory at the Moonsault, bad and too long. 420 <laughs> too long. Vince Linda confronted RVD and asked him to join the WF. RVD turned him down politely, and Vince, you know the baby face and all this, told RVD they either with him or against him. Wonder where he got that line. Hmm. Matt was looking for Lita, but saw Trish wearing nothing but a towel. Then Lita came, and Matt wanted to take a shower of her. Dave said this was perversely entertaining. Okay, I'll try to skip ahead to this. I see, I, I see <laughs> that we had a stack or two read and, and billboard. So, you know, nice reminder of the time when uh, WWF and other major programming were sponsored by Trucker Pills. <laughs> yeah, stack or two was a thing. It was a big thing back then. Yeah, I mean, imagine just taking an entire box of Sudafed in one pill. Basically that. <laughs> I don't think that's too much of an exaggeration, right? No. As I skip past uh, Vincent, Linda, and Rob, and now Jericho with his mutton chops. and Oh, Xbox Slam of the Week. Oh, this is the launch of the Xbox, isn't it? Yeah, the Xbox is coming in November, yeah. So wait, Christian Edge and Christian. When did the PS2 come out? I think it's been out. I think it came out the year earlier. No, that's what I'm saying. Wait, I... so PlayStation 2 release date. Okay, PlayStation was March 4th, 2000. Okay. I did not remember how, mu- how much longer after... Well, excuse me, how long after Dreamcast and PS2, Xbox came out. <clears throat> you know, that were two years after Dreamcast and almost two years after <clears throat> PS2. So when was GameCube? Okay, GameCube just came out in September. Well, anyway, now let's... Go to the end of the slam of the week and into the uh, Hardy and Friends drama. Lita! Lita! Whoa! Excuse me. Well, she's got pants on. Did you see Lita? No, I haven't seen her since by the way, it was a great match. Thank I you. thought you did really good. Thank Congratulations. You. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, well, I haven't seen her, but I'm going to go take a shower. Okay, okay. well, go right ahead. Sorry, I was looking for Lita. I didn't mean to barge in. Wait, does she still have a top on? I see straps. Or do I? Okay, maybe not. That's her hair. Okay. So is he just going to hang in the women's locker room now? He licked his lips a little, yes. Hey! What are you doing in here? Um, I, uh, I'm looking for you. I was looking for you. Well, I was looking for you. I wanted to come in and congratulate you on your great victory tonight. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Okay, I'm going to shower up and I'll see you out there, okay? Well, no, no, hey, I, I, uh, I got a better idea. Okay. Instead of showering here, let's me and you go find a private secluded location. Have a little shower together. How's that sound? Okay. Good? That's good. Great. Come on. You come with me. Is the implication that besides not wanting her to cross paths with Trish right now, that he's also become a bit randy, as they may say, uh, from <laughs> Trish? Got, yeah, Trish got him riz, rizzed up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. All right. So Foley and Regal did a comment together, and we're not having a Costello. Foley said he wanted the run-ins and more clean finishes. It, 
So that's what that was. Edge Kurt Angle had the fakest conversation you've ever heard. And when Rhino gave Edge this awesome gore through a garage door, and I pull apart with Angle. Okay, I want to hear the fakest conversation you've ever heard as we transition from Foley <coughs> wanting to play Connect Four with Regal. He's English. Hey, congrats on last night. That was one of the best ladder matches I've ever seen. Thanks. I mean, I'm feeling it. But it was totally worth it. I'll bet it was. You know, you, me, and Christian, we used to hang out. And uh, I never really liked the kid. Never trusted him. He, he had these beady little eyes. Kind of reminded me of the world's ugliest pretty boy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I do. That's good stuff. Imagine how ugly he's going to be after that concerto on top of the ladders last night. Oh, pretty ugly. Yeah. Are you sure you guys had the same parents? Yeah, I know. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? That conversation was brutal. The highlight of that, besides the gore, is Lombardi repeatedly making sure he's on camera. (laughs) Saw those years at the Terry Garman School of Self-Defense. I mean, honestly, I kind of hope that they didn't teach camera awareness at the Terry Garman School of Self-Defense. Tajiri won the Dojo Cruiserweight title from Kidman at 501 with a kick side of the head. Kidman has gained noticeable weight. His knee didn't seem healed as it buckled in spots. Yeah, he gained some polish. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Let's see what he looks like here. Oh, yeah. Bill Kidman has definitely been hit, hit, uh, taking the supplements. He doesn't look huge, though. This is not no, what he would... to get. He got bigger. Yeah. And then he cut his hair, which made him look even more bigger. Yes. Heyman and JR did talk about Kidman once having a relationship with Tori dead crowd most entertaining thing in the match was them talking about big show's weight and jr made a remark about what what do they want for him then to send him the weight watchers and Heyman said i read the roth report where jr you said they were going to bring big show back until he gets to 375 which is about 108 pounds less than he was in his last weight <laughs> trading near falls but that was slopper and respected what would even be considered a healthy weight for Big Show in this era? Um, I mean, what? What is his legit know. height? About seven one. Yeah. I mean, he got in good shape as he got older. So at least, I mean, what he looked like when he got older, I guess. Yeah. Well, he put on more muscle though, and it's more in his later years. Like, I'm curious then, like, what the like. What's his legit weight when he starts in WCW, then, is kind of more what I'm wondering. Oh, he's in great shape in WCW, though. At the beginning, yes. Yeah. But I'm curious, like, is that 375? Is that what we're talking about here? I don't know what his legit weight was. They probably gave work weights. Oh, I'm sure they did. Um, But anyway, I DDT, DDT, DDP came out. You know he wants to be a motivational speaker. When his wrestling career ends. And judging from this segment, Dave thinks he should realize his career ended on March 26, 2001. He got no reaction except the crowd repeats his catchphrases with him. Kane came out and chose slamming him as DP ripped on Kane for being ugly. He understands the catchphrase deal where people repeat after him, but otherwise this gimmick is terrible. 
He got it from watching TV previews for the Bob Patterson show, and that show's already dead as well. Ah, yes, Jason Alexander's uh, Bob Patterson. So mm-hmm. is this? So this is one of the earliest appearances of this version of DDP. Yes, yes. Not the earliest because, as no. it says, they're already doing it's me, it's me, it's DDP. Yeah. Okay, I'm curious to see this. Yo, it's me, it's me, it's DDP. Well, isn't this an interesting development? A fine, upstanding member of the Alliance. A plug, it's he, it's he, it's DDP. Well, we heard earlier, ladies and gentlemen, if you just joined us, that at Survivor Series, there's going to be one... Okay, I'm skipping ahead. See, in this era, though, he's not telling you not to eat gluten and all that stuff he does now. Oh, stop. Look at his teeth. He helped me it get over. Like got a mouthful of dominoes. It's me, D-D-P. And I came here tonight to do a, deliver a message that all of you could relate to. Losing. Chiefs. They have been losing. I also came here to deliver a message to all those superstars in the back who lost their matches at no mercy. I can't watch this. This is bad. This is much worse than I, I, I was thinking. I don't know thinking. why you even were trying. I was expecting <laughs> it to at least be a little interesting. I did not expect it to be this bad. Well, anyway, turning on you. Rhino eleven twenty nine with the ankle lock, and um, in three weeks, Angle has gone from WF champion to winning Canyon's belt. Hard fought match, but Angle was for the first time showing signs of all the hard matches he's done, catching up to him. They blew a net breaker spot, and the crowd really let him have it. Holy lack of psychology, Molly. Angle hit three Germans, which should at least be sold for half a second, and Rhino made a meat comeback. Rhino one point gored Angle to the floor. Bradshaw pin Hurricane with a clothesline from Hell 309 to win the European title. Picture the famous Kevin Nash Lance Storm conversation on Nitro only lasted three minutes. Is it my imagination, or as soon as somebody gets a little cult following, it's the first thing they try to do is squash them? That's true. Regal and Foley had more interplay, mainly so the writers could do the line where Regal yelled at Foley for playing with his knob and playing with himself. <sighs> Undertaker Kane beat Booker T and Tess in 8-11. We came pin Tess. After Tombstone apologized for their high kick from Undertaker. Undertaker also seemed to show the after effects from the match the night before. Crowd wasn't much into this, and kind of boring. RVD pinned Big Show after Van Damme and Aiden and Frost Flash 445. Originally supposed to be RVD versus The Undertaker. Plan A was for RVD to win. The kind of give him steam from the pay view loss. Plan B, now because Taker refused to do the job, but because several agents felt it was sending bad messages for RVD to beat Undertaker to the dressing room. Please. So they set up finish where Austin interfering cost RVD the match. With Austin out, they couldn't come up with any kind of agreement on what to do, so they didn't want either to lose. So they scrapped the whole match with Big Show in to do the job and gave Undertaker his win in the tag match. Ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Maybe the interview at WF New York. He's about 20% over in that building as he was three weeks ago. Kind of a nervous promo. If he had got this promo on Tough Enough that night, we'd be watching Josh get squashed on SmackDown. He's lo- he said he lucked out beating Taz and would be leaving for developmental territories. Taz then choked him out to set up Taz versus Al Snow. 
Finally, Rock and Jericho came to save the show. Good interplay interview, teasing a rematch. Jericho gave Rock the name play from WCW belt as a present. And Rock gave Jericho a chair, saying Jericho would need the rematch. Rock and Jericho, they beat the Dudleys and win a tag title in 748. That's four title changes in one night. All going from the Elias to the WF. Not one of which meant a thing. On the lowest rated show in more than three years. Main event was a good match. Only real teases were Rock and Jericho bumping into each other at one point, and right before the finish, Jericho and Rock would actually miss a drop kick. Crowd was a lot deader than you'd think. Finish saw the Rock about to get 3D'd when Jericho saved him. Rock then pinned Devon with the Rock bottom. After the match, Rock grabbed both tab belts and the WCW belt and gave Jericho the tab belt and did a tease for giving the WCW belt as well. <clears throat> the show <clears throat> ended with Vince and Linda making out backstage. TNN had a really, had the really good sense as they pulled out of the show right before they started going at it, and Star Trek came on. But a few seconds later, they went back for the closest segments of the show. <clears throat> TNN also screwed up on the West Coast feed, where about three minutes of the main event was cut out, as Ashley were playing Baywatch for going back to the show. All right, before we talk about that, I want to see Vince and Linda at the end here. You know what? This has been a great night for the World Wrestling Federation. And you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking this is cause for a celebration of sorts. Well, uh, what'd you have in mind? Why don't we start with this? People, they're still married, Bix. In 2001. What? Did they do this for legal reasons? And then there's Shane and Stephanie watching it. Which we don't get here. Yeah. Uh, on the network. Also, had two an episode of Raw with two different segments where they have couples be like, yeah, we're gonna fuck. <laughs> Alright. <clears throat> so... <clears throat> Let's go to Brian Alvarez. The new TNN popped away to a cleavage-filled episode of Baywatch right before the main event here on the West Coast. I was sitting here watching a commercial after Chris Jericho made his appearance, and all of a sudden there were a bunch of girls in bikinis and David House off on the screen. It lasted about three minutes before jumping back to Raw. There was also a snafu at the end. Dave had emailed me and talked about how Vince and Linda did this revolting kiss. So I was thrilled beyond belief when it appeared the Tina cut away to Star Trek for the lip lock occurred. However, my friend Vince refused to let me shut the tape off. Wait a second, he said. I figured it was just because he's a Star Trek dork and wanted to know what the episode it was. Instead, Tina suddenly cut back to Raw just in time to show his 56-year-old Vince's tongue going down his wife's throat. I almost killed Vince right there. Brian's buddy. Very high, yes. Very high, um, yes. What time are they watching Raw that he's taping the West Coast feed and and watching it after? (laughs) Is Raw 8 to 10 here or 9 to 11? 9 to 11. So they're not watching this together until at least 11 o'clock local time. Okay. Good lord. Um, but like I said about the, the whole, 
Here, I mean, here's a sign of where shit's going when they give all basically all the alliance titles away in one night to the uh, people. Oh, don't worry, they're going to switch them back and forth a bunch more until the paper. <laughs> I know, but still, yes. Well, it's too bad we don't have. I tell you what, though, it is too bad we don't have uh, Triple H and Stephanie on TV pretending they're still married. Ah, what makes you say <laughs> that? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Would. It's not like they stopped wearing their wedding rings in public all of a sudden or anything. <laughs> Come on. But, 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 it's just, well, Stephanie, like a uh, father, my daughter. In what you know? way? <laughs> well, the, the, the situation here as far the as the, the marriage. The situation of convenience, yes. But that happens a lot. Good goddamn. Yeah. I mean. Well, look at the I news. Mean, just, uh, uh, Will and Will Jada. Jada. <laughs> yeah. But they had a funky marriage anyway the whole time. So, eh. Well, that isn't necessarily marriage of convenience, I guess, at that point. Theirs is a little different, but no, Bill and Hillary seems to be more of an arrangement, yes. Well, Vince and Linda in that line, yes. Yes, with their haircuts and their pantsuits and... And, ste- and, and, there. and Stephanie and Paul, you know, there's probably some type of deal here. Where I don't know if I would say that, but sure. I mean, there's probably something going on there. You know, I've heard of, I've heard of marriages that when there's kids involved, that they wait until the kids <laughs> graduate high school, and then when right. that happens, that they decide to split up. That happens. That happens. That's a thing. Yes. Yes. So we'll see. Yes. But anyway. All right, despite coming to death to a strong pay-per-view, Raw fell to a slowest rating in normal time slot for a non-holiday show since March 30th, 1998. And even that was during a period with head-to-head competition from Nitro. The August 22nd show did a 3.92 rating, 3.63 first hour, 4.18 second hour, and a 5.8 share. The numbers of viewers watching wrestling down 5.3 million, which peaked as 12 million during the height of the war. And a few Raw main events have topped 10 million on their own. Represents the lowest total for non-holiday night in nearly six years. Raw on Christmas night, when overall viewership levels were way down, drew a 3.87 rating, but on that night, it was 7.0 share. The bad news is no excuses fly for the overall trend, which has been a 30% drop in Raw viewership since it peaked just 12 weeks ago for Raw's return. This is on a show which saw the return to Raw of Vincent Mann and only the second Raw episode since the return of McFoley. Granted, there was no Austin, but that was never specifically spelled out to the viewer. While the combination of going against both Monday Night Football and the American League Championship Series, both involving New York teams, did hurt. The fact is the football ratings, 9.90 and a 16 share, as compared to 9.85 last week, were virtually identical. And the baseball ratings, which is the Yankees game last week as well, were down to 8.36 last week to 7.63 this week. The show, once again, showed a tremendous decline among males over the age of 30 from the low figures from the previous week. And for that matter, males of every age were down. That's whatever reason, women viewership was way up from last week, while male viewership was way down. Real quick, isn't it something, reading the, the, uh, again, 2001, the football ratings? Nine, was it 9.9 was Monday Night Football that night. As we record this show, the Cowboys Chargers Monday Night Football game on August 16th, was a 19. <laughs> a 19. 
All right, I got to see what the Monday night game was. Let's see here. All right, so I'll go to my deal here. All right, so this was August the 22nd. Oh, it was the Eagles against the Giants. I mean, that should – I mean, Giants are just come off the Super Bowl. Eagles have, are getting on. Donovan McNabb, they're becoming a hot team. So you look at that, like, wow, I mean, that's a, a marquee matchup, great rivalry. But that shows you where even in 2001, that's where the NFL was at that time. It was it was huge, but it's not the juggernaut as it is today. So how many million viewers would that have been in 2001? <clears throat> oh, shit, I don't know, but 9.9 rating, I mean... I said they just did a nineteen. Well, they didn't do a nineteen rating. They did a nine. They did about ninety million viewers this week. Yeah. Well, still, I mean, I wouldn't think it'd be that that it much was, more. Than it was it that much more? No, you're right. It's in that range. I just don't remember exactly what. Um, <clears throat> but still, it's uh, weird that as big culturally as it already was. It's just what is it that made the NFL like this different? I told model? you the other day what it was. The, the the rise of fantasy football. Yes, you did. Yeah, we did talk about this. Yeah. Women beginning majorly into football, mm-hmm. and just you you have to have stars, and and when you have stars, you know on and, and you know star quarterbacks that that builds the league up, you know. So there's a lot that goes into it. Okay, okay. So it was a hundred and five. Point four million households with TV at this point. So in the U.S. So what was the rating? A nine point nine, you said. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> this would be households then, not viewers. We'd have to then extrapolate from there. So, but still, okay. So one hundred five four oh 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 times point oh nine nine. So that's. Ten point four three million households. So viewer wise, it depends on how many viewers per home. They could they could have outdone what this week's Monday Night Football did combined <coughs> in twenty twenty three. It's possible. <coughs> my throat, I'm losing my throat again. The the thing is, is that this is the thing about TV ratings now. TV ratings. It's so convoluted now as far as how to try to explain it mm. compared to back then. You know, it's it's just so different. With the demo taking priority and all that. Yes, yes. Well, and also now and then the way that we don't really ex- outside <clears throat> releases see quote-unquote cable ratings anymore. We see them out of the whole universe of everyone with television and <clears throat> all that. So... I mean, back in the day, they always used as, like, the rule of thumb 2.4 viewers per home for, like, your average TV show, I guess, or something likely to have multiple people watching, like, football. So there's a decent chance this did do better than what aired this week in 2023, but it varies. Like, wrestling, wrestling never really got that high. Like, wrestling was more, you know, like for when we have those figures, wrestling usually was like 1.3 to 1.6 viewers per home average. So confusing. <laughs> but anyway, 
I don't know if I can make it through the rest of the whole deal here. I'm going to close this. All right. <clears throat> the rating Pete with Rock and Jericho against the Dudley's main event doing a 4.35 rating with RVD and Big Show in second place with a 4.26. The good news is, unlike in previous weeks, while few are interested in the product at any time in years, those who are left were loyal to that ratings grew almost the entire show, so the masses that were watching didn't dislike the show. In particular, the Angle versus Rhino match saw tremendous growth, adding about 498,000 viewers, but it was really the only period showing big growth. Weekend numbers for the 2021st weren't good either. Heat drew 1.22 and a two share for the first show and a 0.51 rating for the replay, which doesn't appear to bode well for any kind of strong baby buy rate. Excess was down 0.52 and a one share. Excess being moved up two hours to 8 p.m. Eastern and 10 on 27th. <clears throat> That's another thing, too. I would say, you know, shares is more important in this era than it is now. You don't hear nothing about demo ratings. It's all about shares, total ratings. That's why, I could, you know, talking about TV ratings now is so different to what it used to be. Yeah. I mean, there are some, you still get shares for broadcast stuff. But it, we never see them for cable anymore. For whatever no. reason. Just whoever's getting that data is not putting it out there. Don't know why I find this so funny, Dave said, but Billy Gunn pinned Brock Lesnar in a dark match at the Raw tapings. Granted, at this point, Billy Gunn's a far superior former and is on the roster while Lesnar's on developmental talent. Dave gets since wins and losses mean nothing. It doesn't matter, but he thinks the beginning of the sentence spells out the problem right there. He's a fucking... Developmental dude, Dave. It is a dart match. Also, if he's you know? lose to someone, I mean, might as well be someone bigger than him. But still, I mean, it's a fucking dart match. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count. Yeah, that I whatever. Yeah. All right, let's go to the torch. Hulk Hogan's telling friends that Vince Man has an offer on the table that could lead to his WF return. Over the years, Hogan's earned a reputation for leaking false information regarding how in demand he is. Oh, I'm shocked. However, there may be some to the WF offer, as recent published reports say Eric Bischoff has told Hogan to explore his WF options. In recent months, Hogan's appeared on the Above Love Sponge Rio program in Florida and confirmed reports he's been negotiating with Universal Studios with the idea of opening a Kickstarter rest promotion. He later announced that he and Universal had in discussions. Originally, most industry analysts believed Universal was unwilling to meet Hogan's lofty salary demands. However, a key source told the torch that Hogan still technically contracted with Tom Warner as a wrestling consultant, and that Hogan's lawyers actually advised him to drop out of the Universal project. The source reports that while Hogan's WCW wrestling contract expired in June of this year, his consulting contract does not expire until June 2002. According to the source, the wording of the contract states that Hogan can do consulting work for outside parties because WCW is no longer owned by L.L. Tom Warner. However, the wording is great enough that Hogan's lawyers aren't sure whether he could legally wrestle for another company. The source claims Time Warner has already paid Hogan in full, believed to be $100,000, for the remainder of his consulting deal. Industry analysts do not believe the company which Hogan is suing, as far as his defamation of character lawsuit he fighting regarding the Vince Russo incident, will be willing to negotiate a buyout. Some believe the company may make an exception for the WF, or if Hogan agrees to drop his legal claims against the company. Well, if they already paid him in full, why does he need a buyout? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that don't make no sense. Yeah, that's not how those words work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, something's missing here. Let me see if I can refresh my memory on what exactly those terms were. 
Because there was, yeah, this whole thing with, like, the last year and consulting and all that. Um, but he's he's there in a matter of, you know, two and a half months. Yeah. Basically. I think he did get it. I think it was reported that he got a buyout, at least. But he goes to WF in, in you know, at the beginning of the year, so. Yeah. We know what eventually happens. And he's not the only one that does that either. As we go to another update. Well, oh, yes. According to us, close to Kevin Nash, he's adding it if it's a given, he's coming in. He's largely given the, up the, the idea of doing the Tokyo Dome show since New Japan doesn't seem that interested in paying big money for the Outsiders reunion. The money doesn't seem to be a major sticking point since he's expecting to work on top, and those on top are still very well paid, regardless of downside. His sticking point is said to be the schedule, as we talked about before. He doesn't want to work more than 12 days a month. There are WF guys who contractually have 15 day maximums. As another last week, on a full weekend month, theoretically, Undertaker's doing 13 dates. Rot, when he goes back as a regular, is theoretically going to be doing the 13 dates. He's been given an easier schedule at this point because he just has first child and hasn't worked many house shows. That would be Simone. While nobody's saying this publicly, there are mixed feelings regarding Hall because of his track record. Nash is saying he won't go in without Hall. Hmm. Let's, go to the, let's go to the torch. There's concern among some in the WF that those downside guarantees the Hall and Nash won't be enough to lure Hall and Nash from a lighter schedule in Japan. WF wants Hall and Nash to work up to 15 dates a month, and Hall and Nash will prefer to work less than that, although they're willing to work house show dates regularly. The management is not being shy about letting Hall and Nash know they won't tolerate the type of locker room politicking they were known for in their previous WF stint. Hall and Nash believe it was a different time then, and the sure management, there's no reason to believe a similar situation would occur. And reports out of Japan confirm that Hall's fallen back into some of the lifestyle patterns that derailed his WCW career, although it's not nearly at the level it was a couple of years ago. And both go in. So, with Hogan. And so Hall they, is at least trying to make a good faith effort to get clean at the time. Once he's there, he's taking yeah. ant abuse. There's the, you know whole thing there where they did the skit where they poured the beer on him and that was the whole thing. Yeah. <clears throat> I think we covered that week, didn't we? We did. Um, so, I mean, interesting Nash saying he's not going without all. Well, I'm, I mean, <clears throat> if, if they don't take all, does he go? You know? Don't know. Don't know what, you know, what ended up being the ground rules, but they both go. Privately, some former WCW guys who are there are saying things becoming more and more similar to WCW cir- circa late 1999. When business was great, everyone for the most part was a team player, but now the business has gone down, people are more and more looking out for their own interest. A tale that is, is uh, you know, happens a lot of time in wrestling. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and many promotions. So, yeah. All right, so we talk, we talk about Rob Van Dam. Let's go to the torch. Rob Van Dam's reckless working styles become the subject of locker room debate, including a locker room address by The Undertaker. <laughs> Originally, most long-time deaf wrestlers didn't create much of a fuss when Van Dam's stiff kicks opened up cuts and injured his opponents. Meanwhile, wrestlers who worked with him in ECW repeatedly predicted that the kicks would earn him locker room heat with the re- veterans. That's exactly what took place after Van Dam caught Kurt Angle with a stiff kick, blunting Angle's nose at the October 16th SmackDown taping. 
After the match, Undertaker held what one source described as a press conference in front of the locker room, complaining about Van Damme's work. Wrestler reaction was said to be mixed. Some wrestlers agreed with Taker, while others said to be probably questioning Taker's motivations. In recent months, Taker's developed a reputation in some circles for what is perceived as him attempting to hold down younger wrestlers. Meanwhile, other wrestlers echoed Taker's comments, agreeing that management must address Van Damme's style before someone's seriously injured. Austin said they're taking a calmer approach to, to the situation. Taker was originally scheduled to Van Damme on Raw this week, but Big Show wrestled him instead. That may have been a simple change of direction by the bookers, or may have been political since Taker didn't want to face Van Damme. Well, that adds some uh, context to that whole thing, doesn't it? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, just good. I said just a little. <laughs> and I'd be curious, just how much more did it bother them that it was someone who was throwing these live rounds, and it didn't even look that good? <clears throat> oh, you know about Arante. How do you mean? He seems like the kind of guy that would be bothered by that. Yes, yes, because it's one thing if you're throwing nice-looking shots and busting people up. It's another if it's the old looks-like-shit-hurts-like-hell. Yeah. And Rob Van Damme's kicks just never look that good. They always look kind of floaty and, eh, like, um... I won't say who, but uh, I tried, I pulled this up to refresh my memory. Remember when RVD did the Jack Perry match a few months ago, and he looked like he just absolutely destroyed him with the uh, twisting leg drop to the barricade? Yeah. So I shared that, and someone uh, messaged me, Rob nailed everyone with everything. I never minded, but he sent Kurt Angle to the hospital four weeks in a row. Yeah. Well, Undertaker was the only problem that Rob Van Dam had. What? One observer reports since spending sending uh, one observer reports sensing tension between Austin and Van Dam. I think there's animosity, but then they're minute to each other. The wrestler said, "I don't think Austin's been very pleased with the entire program." Another wrestler said, "Van Dam hasn't paid the proper respect to Austin." Deferring to him on match planning, for instance, but as if Van Dam's probably oblivious to his approach being disrespectful. Well, thanks, Chris Jericho and some unnamed wrestler. Why do you think Jericho? I got to think the first one's Jericho. This is a torch. Well, and it's torch pre-weird era of Wade hating Jericho. And there's no, I mean, I can't think of any Minneapolis guys there right at the moment. So, uh, well, and that, would, and, well, and also that any of those quotes sound like either. Yeah. House shows on October 20th for Columbia, Missouri, June 2943, paying 70750 which debuts the lowest house, house show gate so far this year. Raw on the 22nd, Kansas City, June 9368, paying 318412 Arena merchandise sales for the past week, not including the pay-per-view in St. Louis, was 176616 or 647 ahead. Columbia, they only did a couple pay-per-view run-throughs. Dudley's against the Jerry Big Show, Christian Edge. They may have planned a Hardy Storm Hurricane as well, except Jeff missed the show and ended up doing a mixed tag with Molly and Hurricane against Matt Lita, ending when Storm accidentally kicked Hurricane. But the notes here, a couple undercard situations, saw them do something of a local deal with Russ McCullough, who played football at the University of Missouri and did a lot of local media building up the show, teaming up with Randy Orton, 
who's also from Missouri, the state, not the college. And they were put over Tommy Dreamer and Justin Credible with Russ pinning Dreamer after a leg drop, which is the right thing to do for the local show. Brock Lesnar had his first loss in a WF ring, putting over Canyon. Dave guesses really doesn't matter to house show in an Alway market, and they probably just wanted to test to see how he would react to losing, but otherwise it doesn't really make much sense. Again, Dave, it doesn't matter. Wait, is that why Brock ended up not liking gays, as he put it, though? <laughs> well, who knows if he even knew. It's Brock. Uh, Van Damme went over Booker Clean. Kane over Tess when the main bouts. Foley and Regal were in respective corners for an event. And Foley used Sako on Regal at the end. Yes, house show. Good lord. All right. Um, THQ, which has the video game license, reports a strong third quarter. The WF SmackDown Just Bring a Game is considered one of the 10 most anticipated holiday release games. Well, good for them. And meanwhile, Jack Specific is getting a percentage of this for doing nothing because they did crimes. Yes. <laughs> there are a lot of website reports that Scorpion King is going to need four weeks of additional shooting. According to WF sources, nothing is confirmed whether that happen or when that will happen. Obviously, Rock's schedule could be interrupted somewhat if more shooting needs to be done. Speaking on The Rock... We've had a note from people in Austin and Dallas when they did the initial unification match of Austin that local advertisement for the show didn't list the match. The local advertisement was built around Raw returning but not listing specific names or matches. Dallas drew well because it was the first rush show to the new building. While Austin drew what about how shows are doing these days. In New York, it was known by insiders two weeks out about the Rock Austin main event. It wasn't hit hard local advertising in that match until the last week. It should be noted that the announcement did result in only 900 tickets being sold in the last week. So the fact which should be a huge match wasn't a big ticket seller did hold true. Yeah, local advertising, Bix. Yep. It, it does help. <laughs> then and now. Let's go to figure four weekly. Stacy Ke- Keeler was on Howard Stern and was, of course, grilled to death about her sex life. She said she only slept with three people in her life. A high school boyfriend of seven years who she broke up with after making her WCW debut, David Flair, and a recent friend, quote-unquote. Brian, so I can just hear the rumor mill starting. She said David fell too much in love with her, so she had to break his heart. Oh. She said she wanted her next boyfriend to be a challenge. Someone who wasn't a wrestling fan who wouldn't ogle over her. Well, that's going to be a hell of a challenge finding anyone, whether he's a wrestling fan or a percussionist in an orchestra, who's not going to ogle over her. <laughs> she never. She said she'd never been to a strip club and wanted to go go to one with Howard the next time she was in town. Oh, I can. Oh, I can only uh, hear that how that conversation was going. We opened the phone line. Stupid callers. First, which asked why there was no black female wrestling in WWF. What a moron. Stacey set this, mer- set this person straight by quickly rounding off Jazz, Jackie, and Charmel, who always work with the company. She said she was an A-cup and would absolutely never get breast implants. Write that one down. She never really did. I, don't, I mean, I don't no, think she, she ever got did. E- no. I don't think she got anything done. Not even a little touch. No, she looked she like al- how you would expect Stacey Keeler to look in her early 40s. Yeah. She also said she was willing to do a new layout for Playboy. Well, that never happened. But could you imagine if it did? God Almighty. That would have been a, be- a, g- a great seller. Stern on the air said he wanted to get the pay-per-view just to see the lingerie match. On the October 22nd Stern show, someone called him up and asked him about it. And Stern said he forgot about it and was pissed. 
he mentioned how hot she was. On October 23rd, Joey Fatone from NSYNC was on the show, and Stern asked him about the rumors regarding he and Joni Lauer. He said it was all bullshit, that they were friends, but when they see each other in public, they try to play to the rumors. Stern didn't make all the requisite jokes about her looking like a guy. I have no memory of this. I do remember the Joni Lauer, Joni, Joey Fatone uh, deal. I do remember that. And I remember Stacy being on Stern, but I don't I, – I have no memories of what was done on the show. But, uh, but yeah, it's 2001 Stern, so, I mean, par for the course. Oh, the, the first <clears throat> Google result for uh, putting Joni Lauer and Joey Fatone's names in you know, quotes in the same search – is a result from who's dated who.com. Oh, okay. So I'm not sure if they're saying they have or haven't, but uh, it says they had an encounter in 2002, is what this site <laughs> claims, I guess. Casual encounter? Oh, wait. There, okay. There's a, there's a pop dirt citation. Joni Lauer confirms romance with Joey Fatone. Entertainment Tonight reports that during an interview with KZLA in Hollywood, the ex-wrestler known as China, J- Joni Lauer, uh, reported res- responded when asked about being linked to NSYNC Joey Fatone. Was true or not? She said, that's true. When asked for details, she said, nothing really. I mean, first of all, I found out he's involved with somebody else. So does this equate to a quote-unquote brief fling? <laughs> Isn't this something that... Uh... NSYNC is now getting back together. Isn't that something that they're, that they're back together again, putting out new music? It's crazy. All of them? Yeah, they're all together again. Absolutely. They've already done TV stuff together. Yeah, all of them. Even Justin Timberlake. Even JT. Absolutely. Yes. Huh. Oh, yeah. Okay, I haven't seen I I had seen something about it, but I didn't realize he was part of it. Wow. Okay. Yeah, JT. Yeah, back with the boys. Very quiet Ross report this week. He spent much of the week on the road, first to TVs, then doing a first day on sale in Tulsa before TV start all over again. Regal suffered a partially torn right tricep bicep that'll keep my vest for a few weeks when it goes physical therapy. He doesn't need surgery, which would likely cut him out several months. Takamichinoku dislocated his shoulder, which he's had problems with for a couple of years and needs surgery. They're trying to fit him in the Dr. James Andrews' schedule. They hope to have Rakishi and OVW or HWA soon to start training and have him return to the Ring of Survivor Series for WF. Sean Stacey has cleared the return. Scott into Tuhati's wow. neck continues to act up. Johnny the Bull broke his thumb in a few weeks. Made a point to the younger wrestlers in developmental territory to slow down their matches and concentrate more on storytelling. Flying moves that do not fit into the psychology for the match are waste in motion. I like the aerial stuff when it makes sense. Too many talents think they have to get their stuff in for a contest to be compelling. Not true if it's not a vital part of a bigger story being told by all the participants. Dave said he is right in the perfect world and wrestling is at that. For guys who are over with the audience, that is 100% true. For guys who aren't over, it's very difficult to get a jaded audience to care. And doing technically and psychologically sound matches by guys who aren't over first makes things very difficult for the wrestlers. They compensate and often overcompensate by doing crazy moves or hard chair shots or break tables because they're an easy momentary pop. Although usually that momentary pop does nothing to build a match or build heat past that pop. Also, there's a feeling when doing hot moves that people notice you more and remember you. Guys of a mental and WF should know that people evaluate them at this point. Jim Cornette, Les Thatcher, Jim Ross, ultimately are looking for a basic logical style match. 
in that sense, this is like a sport that you have to fit into the system set up by the coaches. But as entertainment, you also have to stand out to make it to make it. And usually, the guys do something, doing something different, like Rob Van Dam, can stand out because of their differences. Dave's feelings are that if someone's going wrestling to have fun for a short period of time and wants to be noticed. The high risk stuff is in their goals. That makes sense. If their goal is to get in WF, have a contract, concentrate on what the coaches say and save your body as much as possible while still standing out as you want to be as physically in good shape as possible once you get in WF because that's when the real jaded fans and hardest competition is. Ask me Foley. He probably doesn't regret the bumps he did on pay-per-view shows nearly as much as the bumps he did for $50 payoffs. Yeah. Dave's uh, saying a lot of true stuff there, Bix. Yeah, that's all pretty fair. I don't know if I have that much to add to it. Pretty to the point. Yeah, I mean, that's why a lot of these indie guys from the 2000s, you know, that you thought could have been people that could have gotten WF or should have got looks from WF didn't get looks because of all the stuff they were doing to themselves and the way they were working, you know? Yeah. But times have changed. Even now, and they, and they look for people that's more dynamic now. So it's a different time. But the day's right. It goes back to this is the era where the, the decision makers were Cornette, Thatcher, JR, and that's not the type of wrestling they, they were in into. So, right. all right. Um, back to the torch. One source has a good relationship with Eric Bischoff over the years predicts that Bischoff would join Scott Hall and Kevin Nash on television, WF television, assuming the duo signs with WF. Some current WWF wrestlers have problems with Bischoff in the past have expressed they would be okay with him coming in as long as he kept to himself off camera and acted professionally. And he doesn't come well, in with them, but he comes later nope. in too and mm-hmm. kept to himself off camera and acted professionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to figure four weekly. And about Eric Bischoff. This is the kind of thing that can only happen in wrestling. Chris Jericho on the WCW website announced he was dedicating his title win there at Bischoff and wanted to shove the belt up his ass for never giving him the chance to run with the ball while in WCW. Well, Bischoff actually responded publicly to the comment on Bob Ryder's OneWrestling.com. He basically said that when Chris was in WCW, he approached Bischoff by doing a WCW title match at Goldberg since he'd been mocking the guy on TV for weeks and felt it would have been a good culmination to that angle. Bischoff said Goldberg was very green at the time, was only capable of going in and killing guys in seconds. He said Jericho's 210-pound rising star who was on a roll. Bryce not sure what any of this has to do with Eric mixing the match. He claimed the match would have had one of three finishes, Jericho getting squashed, Jericho wins, or no contest. Brian guessed this was just justification for not allowing this match to happen. Now he had to attempt to uh, explain this here in print. Brian realized that Eric didn't actually say one thing of value in the entire statement or explain his decision in any sort of net rational manner. Anyway, Eric summed everything up by saying, Bill was not ready for that match and neither was Chris. There's nothing more comical than wrestling personalities fighting wars on the internet. <laughs> oh, ain't that the truth? Just you wait. Just you wait. Oh, I think I may have found the whole Bischoff statement by Googling that quote. Give me a second. Because it brought me to a Wrestling Classics message board post uh, that appears to maybe have it, although it's not loading for some reason, which is weird because that site usually loads quickly. I'm trying Google Cache. Um, That is mysteriously not loading the way it should be either. It's obviously not meant to be. All right, let's move on. Stay with Fearful Weekly. There was debate internally about whether to turn Rock or Jericho heel. 
judging from how the Austin turn has killed business, Brian thought a rock turn right now would be disastrous as well. Well, this plan changed. The idea is to go here with Jericho and hook him up with Stephanie. At that point, things like her throwing the chair into the ring in favor of you would make sense. By the way, and this should come as a shot to nobody, Hunter is already lobbying to prevent Jericho and Stephanie from getting together. Hunter, the smartest man in wrestling, learned long ago that Stephanie will never be married to a mid-carter, so he's not looking to get a divorce anytime soon. <laughs> and, of course, what's the program when Hunter comes back? Chris Jericho and Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Eddie Guerrero will be working HWA shows so around the end of November, at which point he'll be called back in WF if all is well. Well, was not well. Let's go to the tours. Developmental wrestler Russ McCullough earned himself heat with a locker room while working on the road with WF crew. McCullough has been working regularly at house shows and TV tapes with Tommy Dreamer. Two weeks ago, McCullough was over her bad-mouthing Dreamer until the developmental wrestler at TV taping. Dreamer's well-liked in the locker room, and other wrestlers did not take well to Russ's comments, which are basically that Dreamer's too heavy to lift for suplexes. <laughs> Following the incident, wrestlers tried to rip McCullough by attaching his name to a first-class seat on a charter flight. The Rivers were hoping that McCullough would sit in the seat and earn himself more heat in the locker room. However, Big Show spoiled the fun after McCullough pointed out his seating assignment. Not in on the joke, Show told McCullough the other wrestlers were likely playing a rib on him, so Russ didn't take the bait. When asked for a review of Russ's work, one wrestler told the torch he sucks. He's a seven-foot-tall former football player. I guess that's what, t- what it takes to make it in this company. <clears throat> How about Big Show ruining the big rib? <laughs> Well, he's probably been through that kind of thing in this company. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Alvarez heard a funny story about Rob Conway. Apparently, he has incredible leg genetics, and they just grow like crazy. He was actually told to stop working out his legs because they grew so fast that it was making his upper body look smaller. Man, what a dilemma. <laughs> well, he's the con man, and he's doing it the con way, <clears throat> and I guess... That makes you have amazing calves and quads. I guess so. Yeah. Um, so is this like a reverse Vince? Where have you been hiding those beautiful legs? Situation. <laughs> I guess. Well, the triumvirate of Jim Ross, Les Thatcher, and Jim Cornette have been pushing hard for development of Rico Constantino to be uh, placed on the active roster. Others in the company are against calling him up because they believe he's too old to be worth investing TV time in. Then why are you even holding on to his contract? Well, it's a, it's a split battle here, Bix. Uh, okay. This is all from the torch, by the way. Also, much, people aren't going to know he's yeah. almost 40 if you don't tell them. I know. Speaking of, although the idea has been pitched, there are no plans for Dallas Page's character to host a Piper's Pit type segment. Vince McMahon is said to be overseeing Page's character. Of course. Don't look for Mike Austin again and renew push if his opponents have anything to say about it. He continues on a rep as a terrible worker in the ring. Two officials continue to be down on Taz's work as a commentator and are seeking a replacement. Are they? <laughs> Obviously not. Some top WF brass believes increasing the raunchiness of the programs again to give the shows the edge they've been missing lately. Well, of course. That's yeah, what they think. That's why I'm tonguing Linda. <laughs> <laughs> Vincent Mann, when discussing the Christian Edge mother is ill angle at the booking meeting, asked if anyone thought it was going too far. Nobody spoke out, although others expressed concern the angle was too closely parallel in the situation with Helen Hart, who remains gravely ill. Yeah. Source said Vincent Mann's return to TV in the past week was more than just a one week situation. 
Maybe Slater would once again become a regular on their character. Maybe this would distract him so the creative team can do their jobs when inside a cracked. There is some concern among office workers that Vince's self-induced work schedule will lead to health problems. Source said that Vince has been working harder than usual and has also been difficult to deal with. He's been very stubborn lately, one source reports. Oh, just you wait. And speaking of the writing, and this is what we've closed the show out with finally. Regarding frustration with the writing, WF has a letter it sends out to those looking for writing positions that tells people they need to write a sample program, promo, and vignette. You'll love this line. If you're unaware what a promo or backstage vignette is, just watch a show and you'll understand. Seriously. Dave knows half those people who probably knows what a promo and vignette are who can write things, write rings around this current product, some of whom are very astute fans, some of whom have professional writing backgrounds, and some even with TV writing credentials. Although Dave doesn't think any of them could survive the current political environment because they have a good idea why things are going down, and those opinions are apparently not taken well these days. And they send out letters to people who may not know what a promo or vignette are and have hired writers with, in comparison, no limited product knowledge and even more limited business understanding. Having said that, people like Heyman, Bruce Pritchard, and Michael Hayes have tons of experience and are on the current writing team, and a lack of character consistency with people who grew up as superfans and have been around forever mystifies Dave. The dynamics of writing a wrestling TV show where a primary part of the goal is to get people interested in buying pay-per-view matches is completely different from writing a sitcom. I've read a few samples, Dave said. I think the frustration is further because one, which was so kick-ass, he hit you right off the page, and when he saw it, he was sure they had the person immediately, resulting in the person getting almost an immediate form letter rejection. Two others of nowhere close to that quality resulted in regular correspondence for a while from Stephanie's office until ultimately rejection. On HotJobs.com, when asked for writers, they're looking for people with a college degree in film. TV, drama, media studies, or communication, and five years' experience in TV writing, producing, or directing with episodic or soap opera TV experience preferred. Dave writes like a guy who grew up as a serious student of wrestling over someone who watched some wrestling and has experience on a soap opera any day of the week. Not that experience writing a soap opera isn't good to have for pro wrestling, but rather someone who's seen what angles have popped business and more, what kind of angles have flopped in a wrestling vernacular, and understands half-assed why this, then it, why then any other attribute. Tell me you're talking about John Muse's Jericho pitch without telling me you're talking about John <laughs> Muse's Jericho pitch. <laughs> yeah. And that's good, this era, right? Yeah, good friend John Muse, yeah. Maybe it's not this exact time frame, but it's around this time. Yeah. I think that might have been actually been earlier in the year, but... Still... Well, this is also the year he was supposed to be with WCW pick, so, I mean... It would have, right, it would have been after that, obviously. Um, but I, I remember the story Meltzer always told was he told John, like, this is great, and it will never get you hired because you have it built around pushing Jericho. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they wanted what they want, especially at this time more than ever. They wanted people to be like what they had with Russo and Ferrara, especially Ferrara. Yeah, I mean, it's with more so Ferrara than Russo. That background in TV writing. Duckman. Absolutely. Let's, yeah, let's uh, see what Ed Ferrara's actual credits were at this point. Besides Duckman. Do you have any recollection of what else there was? No, oh, Honey, really. I Shrunk the Kids, the TV show, and the Weird Science. Oh, Yes. That's USA right. Network. Actually, wasn't a, was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids also USA Network? 
I thought it was syndicated, but I could be wrong. Oh, Tattooed Teenage Alien Fighters from Beverly Hills. That's another USA show. I remember that. It was the lowest possible budget version of a Power Rangers type show, basically. It was what it was. Oh, he had written for uh, Big Brother Jake? Oh, there we go. That was on Family Channel, right? Family Channel, yes. The uh, Jake, whatever his last name was. The uh, trainer to the stars. Yeah, Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog, which is the only one episode. One episode of all-new Dennis the Menace. It was three episodes of Tattoo Teen Jalen Fighters from Beverly Hills. Uh, the TV movie uh, in 1996, The Monster's Scary Little Christmas, he wrote. Uh, 11 episodes of Weird Science. And then uh, WWF. So, But still, he had experience in writing. So, Oh, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was in there, too. He did 66 episodes of that. So, yeah, that's his last thing before wrestling. Well, how about that? Yeah. How much of Russo's high opinion of himself do you think comes from the idea of like, oh, I was on the same level of this guy who did real TV? Oh, I'm pretty sure a lot of it. It's like, oh, well, if my writing partner who did all this real TV and now teaches at a university how to write TV thought I was good, then, well, look, with that and all the, the ratings of you know, attitude error and blah, 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 then of, of course he's the greatest of all time or whatever the hell he thinks he is. <clears throat> well, if he was so great, he would still be employed somewhere, but he ain't. All right, that is it for this week. Thank God. Next week on Between the Sheets, we go to a whole different era. Please. As first time in a long time. We go back to 1984. Oh. Yes. In the World Wrestling Federation, Hulk Hogan is uh, battling a knee injury, and it's affecting him. So we'll talk about that. Tito Santana, we talk about his return from uh, his knee surgery. Tonga Kid and Roddy Piper have an interesting TV confrontation. We'll talk about that. Plus, we'll have all kinds of house shows. And... Um, you know, interesting look at the WF at this time here in 1984 during the uh, national invasion. As everything isn't so peachy, we have a lot of the territories. This is 1984. We have um, Portland, where Billy Jack is on his way out. We'll talk about that. Or is he? St. Louis. We have a St. Louis wrestling war that week with WF and uh, the St. Louis Wrestling Club battling it out. And in Kansas City as well. So we'll talk about that. Vern Gagne does some crazy shit in Salt Lake City. We'll talk about that. Uh, we got Mid-South. We got one of the best episodes of Mid-South Wrestling ever on television. Lots of clips here. We'll talk about that. Memphis. We got Rick Rude and King Kong Bundy falling out. We'll talk about that. And a special video from, from a, a special wrestler in Memphis. We'll, talk, we'll have that. Florida, we got uh, Jesse Barr now becoming a big deal in Florida and Dory Funk Jr. suffering in the process. And Jay Youngblood gets a shot of Ric Flair out of all of that. So we'll talk about that. Jimmy Hart debuts on TBS. On Oliver Anderson's Championship Wrestling from Georgia on a fun TV show. Yes, where he uh, has <laughs> war of words with Thunderbolt Patterson. I've yeah, actually seen yes. that fairly recently. 
J.J. Dillon trains at Ricky Steamboat's gym for Star K. We'll talk about that. Oh, is there a Vic cameo? Possibly. Dave's thoughts on Pro Wrestling USA. And we got all kinds of stuff internationally. New Japan's got a couple big shows. All Japan's got big shows where the Freebirds are there. So we'll have news on that. And World Class at the Cotton Bowl. Ooh. And the big Chris Adams, Kevin Von Eric match. Among other stories on that show, Sunshine making her return with a, on a helicopter, and all kinds of stuff going on there. And yes, we do have a guest making his return after six months and not being on the show, the infamous Robert O'Connor. Next week on Between the Sheets. Has it already been six months? April. Okay. And we're, oh, and we're doing it at a time where there's no stampede. There's no stampede, but we do have Montreal and Vancouver to talk about. So. Oh, great. Do we have uh, Leslie Freud, <laughs> Creature in the Third? No, okay. there's no TV. Oh, thank no. God. Okay. Well, but it's actually anyway. a good promotion at this time. <laughs> and there's one thing in the no- that's not in the notes that I'm going to bring up on the show, just so O'Connor can riff on it, oh, that, that takes place around our week. So all that more next week on Between the Sheets. Well, the Observer's also, what, monthly at this point? So, like, it's, it's very... It's, it's, yeah, it's kind of uh, difficult to try to put together these types of shows, which is why I don't try to do a lot of 84 and 85-ish shows because it's hard to put them together. But the Observer worked out that way where I was able to make it work, and I got got a good little show out of this. Well, and also a lot of clips. results and uh... – A lot of clips. Well, there's a little bit of that, but a lot of clips. That helps out too. Okay. All right. Well, Bix, thanks as always. You're the rock of the show. And this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia.
the Between the Seeks Patreon Special Edition number 84. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my co-host, David Biggs and Span. And Biggs, this show will close out seven full years of the Patreon. Hard to believe we've come this far. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, like we've talked about before, I don't know why it doesn't feel that way, but it's like, it's it's always weird to me when we think about how we started the Patreon just a little bit after the first anniversary of the show. It doesn't feel that way. It feels like we've been doing the main show much longer. Yeah, it does. But we are here. Yes. And on that note, we're starting a new little sub-series here. As we're doing a two-part series on Todd is God. Todd Gordon's autobiography. He wrote with Sean Oliver. And uh, we have... uh, a bunch of ECW shows already up in the Patreon, and this is going to be a, uh, you know, a nice little companion to that because we're going to have a different point of view, as we'll have Todd Gordon's point of view instead of the Paul Heyman universe point of view yes. here. So, so it'd be quite a little uh, contrast at times, I'm sure, as we do this. All right, well, let's jump to this. Todd Gordon carrying Ric Flair's bags during Slambury Night for Weekend, Philadelphia. Let's go to the Torch Yearbook. Excerpt from Bruce Mitchell's largest ever fourth annual year-end quiz. Question number 10. Yeah, it's true, department. What renowned professional wrestling promoter was seen beaming like a schoolgirl as he carried the bags of Dick Flair into the hotel the night before Slambury in Philadelphia? A, Tootsmont. B, Jack Pfeffer. C, Phil Zacco. D, Todd Gordon. I should note, Bruce put Jack Pfeiffer. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go to Todd's book. Wayne Keller was a writer responsible for Russell Torch and brightening the senior Heyman's day by printing my glowing report about their son. Report car about their son. When I first asked Eddie to get us into the sheets, Wade is the guy he contacted. Shortly thereafter, Wade and I started talking. He seemed trustworthy and I respected him based on what I'd seen and heard. Then he did something stupid. Open edition of the torch and was shocked to learn I was carrying Ric Flair's bags at WCW show at Philadelphia Civic Center. I called Wade as soon as I read it. Not only did I not carry anyone's bags, I began, but I wasn't even there. Someone I trust saw you. Wade, I'm not lying to you. Bruce Pritchard saw you himself. Bruce Mitchell. You said Bruce Pritchard. <laughs> Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Mitchell saw you himself. Bruce is another wrestling writer who apparently needed an eye exam. He never met me, so I don't know how he could be so certain he'd seen me. Maybe it was another short, bald Jewish guy. There's more than one in this city, or so I'm told. Yes, there is. I was, <laughs> I was so angry, I never lied the way. I always shot straight. For him to say I was lying was a big insult. I might not have answered all his questions in the past, but I never lied to him. That was all I needed to ever speak to that motherfucker again. It bothers me to this day. I would not have gone to the civic center whether or not I was asked to carry a bag for someone. Paul always said not to go to other people's shows. He'll sink your credibility as a promoter. I understood that when he said it, and to this day, I've never been to a show I wasn't promoting or working on. A month after this debacle, we were doing a show in Philly and got word that Bruce Mitchell was coming. He must have gotten new glasses and ready to watch him wrestling. I was coming to the building with Sandman when we spotted Mitchell. Hack started yelling, Gordon, carry my bags, Gordon. Can't tell that guy anything. Okay, before we get to the meat of this, oh, Paul, Paul doesn't want him talking to any other promoters, huh? Interesting. He doesn't want him going to anyone else's shows, huh? <laughs> huh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, that said, what do you make of this? I believe Todd 
Yeah, I do too. Uh, so what the fuck is Bruce Mitchell talking about? I mean, who do you see? I mean, was Bruce was at Slamboree '94? I guess. Did he write about that? I don't know. But do you think he saw someone he thought was Todd Gordon, or do you think he made it up? I don't think he would make that up for nothing. So I don't I'm, I'm getting... either, especially 1994, Bruce. I guess maybe he saw somebody, and maybe somebody told him that's who that was. Oh, you think maybe he was like, oh, who's Karen Flair's bags? And someone jokingly said to him, Todd Gordon, and he took it seriously, maybe? It's possible. It doesn't make no sense. That's, that's the weird thing about it. Because, I mean, why lie about something like that, you know? And the thing with Wade is, <laughs> Wade is being so convinced that that was true. Without, you know, listening to Todd, you know, that tells you about how Wade felt about Bruce. Yeah, and I just pulled up the Slamboree issue. You know how they have the pay-per-view roundtable? Yeah. Oh, no, wait, I'm... <laughs> wait a second. This says 1999. Oh, no, it is the right one. There's just a typo with, or an OCR issue or something that turned into 1999. So here's Bruce's pay-per-view review which by the way he gave this show of all shows a three out of ten this show had too many holes in it and a lot of shoddy decision making on many levels i don't know why i didn't think to put this in the notes but whatever the job of management despite turmoil backstage is to make things look smooth make sure things make sense that wasn't accomplished the following is my laundry list of complaints barry Wyndham's return was not well thought out and he looked horrible flavors Wyndham was better than i expected but it didn't look like barry cared tully blanchard was not used well for instance why didn't Aaron anderson accompany him Terry Funk's patronizing of quote-unquote hardcore fans is getting nauseating. Is he running for office or trying to wrestle? The award ceremony was too long. Since when is the assassin one of the all-time greats? And why is your number one heel being honored? Who's the number one heel at the time? Who's he calling the number one heel that was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 94? Was it Harley? I guess so, yeah. As the as the top heels manager, I guess, is the or one of the top heels manager, I guess. Yeah. Um... Zabisco's going to get a push. Why didn't they play to his strength and give him an interview? Hurts Vader to have him do so many jobs. By their logic, Stinks would have wrestled rude. It was good to see Cactus not actually risk his life. Okay, so that does not sound like someone who's at the show. No. Not in no, the slightest. No. So what's the story? <sighs> Is it possible it's someone other than Bruce... And it, maybe someone else told Bruce and then told Wade, and it's just lost in his memory a little, maybe? It pissed Todd Gordon off, obviously. Yeah, it's stuck in his head, so I don't know. Like, it doesn't seem like it's that kind of thing. I'm curious, like, I'm curious what the next Bruce column is after this, too. Because, like, what... <sighs> That that's really weird. Well, also we need to keep in mind then this is this first ran in the quiz. This is seven eight months later, in the first place that this is even becoming a thing. You know? Yeah. Do we? Or I mean, it's possible that Bruce told Wade at the time too, but it's very strange. Like I. I'm like, I'm sorry, but, like, 
any time. I mean, if we're going by it, uh, Todd remembering this right, because it seems like he's being fairly honest. Every newsletter writer in that era, if they were at the show, they made it clear. Right? Can you think of any time there is a newsletter writer attending a show and reviewing it where it is not made clear in their review that they're at the show? Well, Dave had some of those. That's Dave. <laughs> well, you say any newsletter writer, so no, but he's I, but the still, number one newsletter writer. But still, he says it somewhere, though. How many pay-per-views or anything are there that he went to where it's not somewhere in there that he's at the show? The thing is, is, I mean... It obviously happened, though. It, I mean, it obviously happened where Todd is told that. Yeah. I mean, where he calls Wade up and pissed off about it. I'd, I'd be curious but what Wade would say now, but I don't know if Wade would want to say anything about anything involving Bruce these days. Yeah, Wade probably don't remember. He might. I don't know. But, but I mean, obviously Todd did. Well, yeah. Wouldn't you? But... Maybe it's a story that got out there and it, it got attributed that Bruce was the one that saw it, but it, Bruce was told about it. I don't know. That's the only other thing I can think of. Well, I don't know. But interesting little uh, aside there, regardless. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash Between the Sheets.